Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff, Wattel is your host. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on July 11th, 2022. The time right now, 10.14 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And as I am speaking, the main event of the World Series of Poker is going on. They're close to completing the day, but it is still going. And we have a lot to talk about. We were last on, I believe, on June 26th. So it's been quite some time. It's been two weeks, more than two weeks. So a lot of stuff has happened, and we will catch up. This is going to be a long show, from what I can see, because we have a very long agenda. That is common when we have a week off, basically. But we will cover what needs to be covered, and maybe even some bonus topics if, if there's uh, something I forgot. We have a free roll going on right now. It began at 10. You can still get in until 10.25 Pacific time. You need a validated account in the, on the poker room. So if you don't have that yet, you're not going to get in. But if you have a validated account on the No Fraud Online poker room where it takes place, then you can get in there. And provided you get in before 10.25, which is now 10 minutes from now, you will compete for the $50 cash money that we are giving away free this week which is courtesy of Eric Benzamokin, who provided us actually a lot more than $50, but I'm giving away 50 this week, and we will give away other money of that uh, 200 in upcoming weeks. So this is, this is the Fuck PayPal Again free roll, and it's 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third, and you'll understand why it's called Fuck PayPal Again when we do our first topic, because it's about PayPal and the lawsuit where Eric Benzamokin is the lead attorney in suing PayPal for stealing money from the poker community and many other small business communities around the world. So the fuck PayPal again, free roll going on right now at 10 o'clock, late registration through 1025. Sorry for the short notice, but you know, sometimes that's how it goes here. So it'll be a very small field. So jump in there if you want to try to get a piece of that money. I know it's not huge money, but it's pretty easy to win because it will be a small field. You do need to understand the rules of the free roll to qualify for the free money. Those can be found at PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. That's all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Exactly as it sounds. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD55. 775-372-5255. 8355 is the number, and you can also text that number. You can text that number anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can talk to me via text, and I will respond to you. Now, if you text me during the show, if you text me during the live show, then I may read it on the air, unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to read it on the air. If you text me outside of the show's live hours then I will not read it on the air. But there's never a time it's too early or too late to text me. So keep that in mind. If you have anything to say to me about the show or about anything, you can text me 775-372-8355, which is also our show's main number. Of course, we have the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone, which is located on top of Mount Charleston. And it forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. It's a separate line into the show. 
It cannot be texted, but it can be called 702-430-1808. We have the call to listen line. The call to listen line is a special phone number that you can just call up and listen to the show anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, it's important to understand that the call to listen line is not a number to call and speak to me, but you can listen to me. And the call to listen line will work perfectly. In fact, it will never buffer, unlike other streaming media. This will never buffer. It'll never freeze. It does not require a smartphone. It doesn't require an app. It doesn't require a computer. It does not require the internet. No, 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 no. In fact, even if your cell phone has one bar, this will work. It's very simple. Any phone that can dial a number in the United States can use the call to listen line. That's all you need is a phone that can dial. That phone number, which is different than it used to be, it changed recently, it changed in June, 716-805-6890. If you had previous numbers for the call to listen line, throw them in the garbage because they don't work anymore. 716-805-6890 is the new call to listen line phone number. Works the same as always, just a different phone number. 716-805-6890. And when we're not live on the air then you can call up the Call to Listen line and you can hear our streaming reruns where the system just picks a random rerun over the past 10 plus years and runs it as if it's live and then picks another one, another one, another one until we come back live on the air. If you want to catch the show in the archives, if you're one of the 95% plus of our listeners who do not listen live, most people do not catch this show live, there's a lot of ways you can find us. We are on iTunes, Google Play. Actually, I guess it's called Google Podcasts now, not Google Play anymore. But iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. We're now working on Stitcher. Stitcher was having problems for a while, but I made it work. iHeartMedia, Spotify, which is the one I recommend. Spotify works great. The Bullhorn app, which actually also works pretty well and also has its own call to listen line. If you want to use a call to listen line for the archives, then you can use Bullhorn. That's a little-known app. We're on there. The TuneIn app, which can be used to listen to the live show or the archives. We have two entries on there. Or you can download or play the MP3 file of the show, which I make available every week. You can do that with any device. Or even with Alexa, you can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Say it slowly, but... Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast, and it will play the most current episode. And if you say next, it'll go to the previous episode. A lot of different ways to listen. We're also on Audible. Forgot to mention them. There's another way you'd like us to make the show available. Tell me. But don't say YouTube, because I, I know about YouTube. It's just not easy to get us on YouTube. It would be extra work for me. And I do enough work for this show, because it doesn't make money. I actually had a potential sponsor contact me, not even a poker or gambling sponsor, just a general sponsor contact me, but then they didn't get back to me when I answered them. So we probably won't end up with a sponsor, but this is a sponsor I would have taken. It's actually a well-established company. I was surprised they were interested, but, you know, I'll take that. <laughs> but uh, we will see. I uh, put some feelers out again just to make sure they got my email. Maybe it went to spam or something. But I guess it's also possible that they decided against advertising here. They contacted me. I didn't seek them out. I should probably try to seek out sponsors myself. I make like no effort to do that. 
it's not that I don't want sponsors. I just don't want any sponsors that would prevent me from objectively reporting on everything in poker and gambling. And I would never promote anything that's a scam or might be a scam. But, you know, just a general company that's selling something, I'll be glad to make them a sponsor here. I don't hate money, as you guys know. So I will do the agenda, and then we will get going. So first, I'm going to give you another update about the PayPal lawsuit, the one led by Eric Benzamokin, the attorney who is very generous to this show and I've become personal friends with over time here. I met him because he was a listener of this show, and he's been great to us here. And he is leading a number of people in a lawsuit against PayPal because of PayPal just outright stealing. That's what they were doing. (laughs) It's pretty egregious. And they did it to Chris Moneymaker, which is what got his attention initially. I brought it to him and asked him if he would like to contact Chris about it. And he said yes. So they got together and started the whole thing. You guys probably know the whole story, but I'll give you the most recent update. Because remember, we got some bad news about that in late May about an arbitration-related hearing. And I'll tell you where that currently stands now. There is an update to that. Then we have a lot of World Series of Poker topics because there's always drama at the World Series. There's always interesting stories coming out of the World Series. And it has been two weeks since I was on, two plus weeks. There's a lot of different stories. Let's see how many we got here. Looks like about 12. I'm not even kidding. I think we have 12 stories, 11 or 12. I'm not going to count it right now, but at least 11 stories about the World Series. Two of them about me, nine of them not about me. I always got to talk about myself because this is my show. So I will talk about myself. In fact, I'm going to talk about myself first and then we'll go to the other stuff. GG Poker and Poker Stars have unleashed plans to keep known online cheaters out of live events, which may extend to the World Series eventually. Now, you may say, wait a minute, I see a number of known cheaters in this World Series. Well, yes, it doesn't apply to the 2022 World Series, but next year we may see something different. And this is an effort being led by GG Poker and then a separate one by Poker Stars. I will tell you how I feel about this, and I will tell you if there's any chance that we will be involved in this. Speaking of GG Poker, they have a pretty expensive, involved party every year at the World Series. And I was not invited. I don't know when it started, but I was not invited for the first uh, whatever number of years they've been doing this. But I was this year. All of a sudden, this year, Poker Fraud Alert is starting to get some recognition again. And I was invited to their party. And also, we were official WSOP credentialed media this year. So I'll talk about uh, maybe a, a little change in perception about uh, Poker Fraud Alert's uh, role in the poker world. We've always kind of been on the fringes and done our own thing and not cared about the uh, approval of others, and I still don't. But uh, at the same time, it's it's nice to be noticed. And so I'll tell you about that party, and I did go. I was actually not sure if I was going to go, but I did go, and I was happy I went. So I'll tell you about the party and who was there and where you can find footage of the party. Not my footage, but you can find footage of the party if you want to see what it looks like. And just some stuff related to that. Jared Jaffe caught Brock Wilson, these are both uh, pro poker players, using a helper app on his phone during a tournament at the win. So this doesn't have to do with the World Series, and I'm not going to 
connected to the World Series because it has nothing to do with the World Series. But in a way, it does because this could easily have happened at the World Series. It just didn't. So this kind of sparked a controversy about who was right and who was wrong there. So we'll talk about it. It's not straightforward. And to be clear, uh, Brock Wilson wasn't cheating here, nor do I feel he should have been disqualified. But this did raise an interesting question about, number one, who was in the right in this situation, and number two, what should be done in the future about it. Doug Polk has left CoinFlex as an ambassador. CoinFlex is the embattled stablecoin, which looks like it's circling the drain. And I have an update about the CoinFlex situation and Doug Polk's association with it. Plus, Doug Polk has now taken some heat on social media. In fact, I think the most heat he's ever taken from what I've seen. And he's doing battle right now with one Phil Helmuth about the whole thing. So this is actually be our, be our top story in most weeks, but it's kind of buried in there because we have so much going on here in the last two weeks, including the World Series of Poker. Lane Flack has been inducted to the Poker Hall of Fame. He is not going to be here to see that or to accept any kind of uh, award or anything else because uh, Lane Flack passed away last year. So we'll tell you a bit about uh, the induction of Lane Flack and how I feel about it. Mickey Maz, remember we had him on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and he was kind of combative with me in this interview. He also didn't keep his promise about showing me his win-loss statements at the casinos. Well, he did another video with Spencer Cornelia, and I'm going to play you that video, and there's even a quip in the video that I think is aimed at me, though I'm not named specifically, but I think it's aimed at me. So I'll play that and comment on it. And finally, by request, by request, we're going to talk about Lake Mead, which, as I predicted, was going to get to an even lower level during the summer because the southwestern U.S. gets very little precipitation during the summer. So if Lake Mead was low a few months ago, then it's going to be even lower in the month of July. And guess what? It is. So what does that mean? And what problems might this bring on? So we'll discuss Lake Mead again as our final segment. We're not going to do any coronavirus news this week. Not much new to say. So we will get going here. If you're not in the free roll yet, it's too late. The free roll registration officially closed. Good luck in trying to win uh, $50 of Eric Benzamokin's money. All right, so let's start here. I have an update on Eric Benzamokin and his case against PayPal. If you remember, the last thing I told you was that they lost a hearing. This is in federal court. They lost a hearing to have PayPal, PayPal's uh, compelling of arbitration of their customers, the ones suing them, to have that basically uh, denied and requiring them to face this case in court. Because technically, every user of PayPal has, through the user agreement agreed that if there's any dispute that comes up, number one, it will be handled in arbitration, not in court. And number two, they can't do it as any kind of class. They have to do it individually. What this enables PayPal to do is screw a very large number of people, knowing that a very small percentage of them will attempt to do anything about it legally. And that small percentage cannot be a class according to what they've agreed to. So even if they lose every action brought against them, it's going to be peanuts compared to the amount they gain by screwing people. So that's 
really, really obnoxious that they have that in there. It's, it's like a license to steal. And that's why I feel these agreements that people are forced into, in fact, they don't even know they're entering often because it's buried in terms of service, where they're agreeing to arbitration. I don't think that should be something allowed. I think agreeing to arbitration should be something between uh, small parties or maybe business to business, but something where it's a individual and large business. The individual should never be compelled to arbitration, in my opinion, because all that does is takes away their rights to sue and their rights to sue in a class action form, uh, both of which are very important rights for the consumer. And without those tools in their arsenal, they can get screwed and the company knows it can get away with pretty much anything. And that the maximum losses they could take legally from anything they do is very small. And I'm not just talking about PayPal here. I'm speaking in general. So personally, ignoring the fact that I'm friends with Eric, ignoring the fact that I'm part of the poker community and was very disgusted to see them steal from Chris Moneymaker and Lena Evans and the other people in the poker community. Aside from my personal feelings about this, just in general, I think this is awful. I think this is very much abusing the spirit of arbitration and why arbitration agreements exist. As I was saying on a previous show where we discussed this, this is really something where like two small businesses that are entering in some kind of partnership or some kind of business arrangement can agree to this so they know if it goes bad that uh, they're not going to bankrupt each other with very high attorney's fees in having to deal with a court case. So this way they can do business together without that fear. That's really the reason to have this sort of thing, not for big companies to take away people's rights. So that's it's one of these things which at first seemed to make sense, but then gets uh, perverted and changed into something it was never intended to be. So I'm uh, a big believer in consumer rights, and unfortunately, uh, these type of compelled arbitration agreements with uh, in- individuals and large companies are, are very unfair. But it doesn't matter how I feel about this. It matters how the court feels about this. And uh, that's what they've been trying to do in this uh, lawsuit and uh, they're attempting to force PayPal to answer to what they've done in court. Unfortunately, PayPal won an initial victory on May 26th, and we already reported this, where they were able to get this uh, request denied and they are able to compel arbitration for all of these plaintiffs. So does that mean this whole thing's over? No, because there is an appeal in process. So this is what uh, Eric said to poker.org in an article by uh, Haley Hintz, who's been following this uh, pretty closely. He said, my firm and the Shriver firm, that's uh, another firm that is helping Eric with this uh, very complex lawsuit, My firm and the Shriver firm are extremely grateful for being chosen by originally Chris Moneymaker and then Lena Evans and the rest of the community that supported us. We're not giving up on any of the players or any of the community. We want everyone to get their money back in full. PayPal is literally committing their version of legal theft. The legal term for it is called conversion, but the bottom line is that they cannot simply just keep everybody's money. They can ban users. They can limit their accounts. They can forbid them from using the platform again, but they can't just keep people's hard-earned money. They can't do it. 
And if we're going to keep fighting, so they get, and we're going to keep fighting, so people get their money back. And I'm glad to see that, because what he says is totally true. If you remember, what PayPal does is, if their bot, not even not even a human being, but if their bot determines that you have broken a term of service, then for every perceived violation, they will fine you twenty five hundred dollars per violation. So if you have 12500 in your account and they think you've committed the violation five times, they will take all 12500 You can't speak to anyone about it. You cannot appeal. It's just done. There's not even a human being you can speak to. You can't even give your side to them. They just take your money. That is really what has been happening. And the amount that they have stolen from people in this fashion has got to be staggering. It's got to be a staggering amount of money. So Eric is attempting to sue PayPal over there, so they're trying to compel this to arbitration where each individual who's part of this suit would then have to go to arbitration about their individual case. So even if every one of these individuals won, PayPal would barely be paying anything. Then everybody else who wasn't explicitly part of this suit would get nothing, and PayPal would skate away almost scot-free on this whole thing. So they are attempting to appeal this it's always an uphill battle trying to fight against these arbitration agreements because the problem is that a lot of times the court just sees it with, well, the customer agreed, so that's the way it is. I hope in the appeal, it is seen that PayPal really has all the power in this one. If you don't accept their agreement, it's not like there's any negotiation. It's either use their service and accept that they can screw you and you can only take them to arbitration as an individual or don't use their service. But what else is your option? Venmo? No, they own Venmo. They have the same agreements over there. So you don't have many options. If you refuse to use PayPal, if you refuse to use Venmo, then you are operating at a big disadvantage as far as receiving payments online, both as an individual and as a business, especially as a business. So PayPal wields all the power. In addition, most don't even realize they're agreeing to this. I bet if you polled 100 people who use PayPal and asked them, are you aware that you have agreed to only take this to arbitration if PayPal screws you? I bet 99 or 100 out of the 100 would say, I didn't know that. I'm not even kidding. I really think that's about what we'd get. Because how often do you read the pages and pages of the terms of service on any website you join? Probably never, right? And that's the way most people are. You just don't have time to do that. So this is not fair. And hopefully when they appeal this, I'm not sure which uh, legal precedents they're going to try to use here in the appeal. Uh, Basically, the appeal is attempting to state that the first court got it wrong. That's the only way you can appeal something. You can't bring new facts to the table or new arguments to the table. You can basically say, this is, this is where we feel the previous court made a mistake and have it looked at again. So I'm not sure in what way they are attacking that, but I hope it's successful. Because 100% morally, it should be successful. And I think legally it should too. I'm no expert in this. But it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me why what PayPal is doing, uh, it's hard to believe this is legal. And if it is, then this needs to be changed.
if it were to go to the court system, then there's a good chance that PayPal is going to want to give up and settle at that point. So that would be good, too. So I'll keep you updated on what is happening. Okay, so let's get into the World Series of Poker stuff. So I played the main event. I have played the main event every year since 2005. 2020, I didn't play it. They had some funny version of it, but I don't count that as a real main event. So just ignore 2020. I didn't play it, but I did play 21. That was the only thing I played in 21. The main event has kind of evolved over the years. And it has gotten to where there is more play now in the earlier stages than there used to be. They give you more chips. They move up the levels more slowly. So it's different than it was when I first entered in 05. So for the first uh, four years I played it, not only was the structure faster and you started with fewer chips, so it was more likely to bust on day one than today, but also I just, number one, didn't run well, and number two, didn't play it that well. I wasn't uh, understanding well enough that it's different than the other events. It's even more different now than it used to be, but even then it was different than the other events. So I, I had day one busts from 05 through 08. In 09, I made day two for the first time, but I was a short stack. I happened to end up on a TV table because Phil Helmuth was at my table. And it may seem strange to you now, but I was the secondary name at that table. It was Phil Helmuth as the A-list player. Me is kind of like the C-list player and everybody else was kind of a nobody. But uh, nevertheless, they felt that was worthy of the feature table course if Helmuth wasn't there there was no chance we'd be the feature table but Helmuth's presence and secondarily mine very secondarily mine uh, made it the feature table and I was able to wear some patches to basically almost get my full buy-in back so that was nice and I actually busted to Helmuth when I flopped a set and he uh, he had raised a queen deuce suited under the gun would you believe and flopped the flush draw and turned the flush on me after I had flopped the set so that was the end of me I came into the day short stacked so Get a hand like that, you're going to be gone. 2010 was when I broke through. 2010 was when I made a change. 2010, I looked at it and said, why have I not been doing well here at the main event? And I said, oh, you know what? I have to be more careful. I have to understand this plays slower. The blinds move up slower. Everything's slower. And I should more try to play small ball and try to get players to hang themselves against me. So I made that change. I had a nice day one. Then day two, immediately I started losing and I was short stacked. And I was short stacked throughout the rest of the day two, but I didn't bust. Came into day three short stacked and was short stacked the entire day. Didn't bust. Came into day four short stacked. Short stacked the entire day. Didn't bust. Came into day five short stacked. Short stacked the entire day. Didn't bust. Came into day six short stacked. I was short stacked for most of the day. Then I finally started to make some progress to get chips. And then I got into a big pot with someone who had never played a live tournament before. A Swedish online guy who gave off a lot of tells. I had queens. I got a tell from him that he did not have kings or aces. And I was sure of it. So when he went all in over me, I called. I mean, how can you not call? when you know they don't have kings or aces and you have queens. I was hoping to see jacks or tens, 
but I saw the other possible hand, which was ace-king, and we ran out the race, ace on the flop, and I was crippled, and I busted a few hands later, so I went out 88th place in that one, which to this day is still my deepest main event finish, and I got almost 80,000 for that, and I was starting to smell the final table there. I mean, 88 people left, that is 7,300-something. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I can't wait to play this again. 2011, guy came back and was doing pretty well. Got close to the money, but busted on day three. Not too far from the money. So that was my first uh, close to the money bust. 2012, I came back. Same thing. Did well at the beginning and got to day three, got close to the money and busted. 2013. 2013 was probably my best main event as far as how I played to date. I played really, really well in 2013. I just saw everything really well. I could tell when people were weak and would steal the pot. I could tell when they were strong and I was folding good hands and making the right decision. In fact, uh, someone even complained to me on break that he was very frustrated that every time he had something, I was laying it down and it was getting frustrating to him. He actually told me this and was sincere. Very proud of my play in 2013. However, I start, I, I just stopped winning hands on day three as we were getting close to the money. We weren't uh, close enough where I could play very cautiously and, and wait for the min cash. I had to win something because my stack was dwindling and I just was not getting hands. When I would get something pre-flop, I'd completely miss. So I started dwindling down, down, down. And finally came my opportunity. An open limp from middle position, another limp, Came to me in late position. I have ace-king. I go all in. And the middle position guy had limped with aces. Oops. So that was the end of me. Really frustrating because I I really played that one very well. 2014, I had my first bad table draw. Usually day one of the main event, you have a number of amateurs at your table. Not in 2014. I had a pretty damn tough first table. But the good thing was it didn't last very long, and the table broke. And I thought, oh, good, finally I'll get moved to a better table. No, I got moved to an even worse table. Two awful table draws. I also didn't run well, and I was in a lot of tough spots where I kept flopping top two pair and my opponent just putting massive pressure on me. And I didn't play the best either. So combine all that, that was my only day one bust since 2010, and it remains that way to this day. 2015, just didn't do well. I busted on day two. 2016, basically same story, busted on day two. 2017, probably the second best played main event I've had. Got to deep day three, but I played really well day one and two. For some reason, day day three, I just did not play very well. And I did not run well, so I did not make the money. Again, came very close. Again, was quite upset about that kind of upset at myself because I came into day three with a, an above average stack and I chunked it off. So it's kind of unlike me to do that. Kind of mad at myself. Also didn't run well. 2018, just didn't run well the whole time. Came into day two short and busted. 2019, here I'd been getting frustrated because if you look at this from 11 to 18, I had four different times I got close to the money but didn't make it. But when it's all said and done, I had done eight straight main events not making the money, even though I came close in four of them. 
2019, as I came in thinking, wow, if I bust this again, like I'm kind of wondering why do I even bother playing this? Well, I learned why I bothered playing this because once again, I started doing well. And I did not chunk it off. I got all the way to day five and went out 128th place. So kind of similar to 2010, except I wasn't as short. Uh, most of the way, I wasn't really short. I, I didn't have tons of chips, but I was not uh, short stacked like I was 2010 just constantly. So I made it all the way to day five, got busted by the eventual winner, Hossein Insan. I got uh, 59000 for that. And uh, yeah, I was relatively happy with that performance. Of course, I once again was starting to smell the big money that wasn't too far away. It was 128th out of 8,000 something. Did not play in 2020. I don't even consider that a real main event in 2020 because of COVID. 2021, I came back just for the main event. I did not play any of the preliminary events because of Delta, and I had not been uh, vaccinated in a while. My uh, last vaccine was in April, and it was wearing off. I got another vaccine in October. After enough time passes had passed, I felt uh, safe to go there, and I played the main event in November of 2021, which was the month it was held due to COVID. And a lot of people got COVID there. I did not. The vaccine worked for me. And even though there was COVID right in the same room with me, a number of cases, and I was there for uh, 12 hours a day for three days, I did not get COVID. That was the good news. The bad news was I missed the money by 50 spots. And I've talked about that recently. I talked about it when it happened back in November. Very frustrating. Three long days, 50 spots away from the money out of 8,000-something people entering. Very, very tough lost there in my only main event or my only event that I played in 2021. So I came into the 2022 main event with five of the past 10 mains that I had played being ones where I got close to the money but didn't make it, the closest of which was in 2021. So I'm tired of that happening. Half of the past 10 main events I played, I got close to the money and didn't make it. Only once did I make it in those 10 events, and that was in 2019, where I got pretty deep. So the funny thing is I've never had a min cash. I've never had close to a min cash in the main event. I've either bricked it or run deep. And yet I had five times in the last 10 where I was very close to a min cash and didn't get there. So I don't know what it is with this min cash curse. I just can't get there. So I was getting real tired of that happening. I still only had one day one bust in that time frame. So basically I had... One day, one bust. I had, I guess, uh, three early day two busts. And then uh, one deep run and five very close to the money, but still nothing finishes in the past 10. And if you want to go to the past 11, then I had that other deep run in 2010. So I was ready to do something different here, even if it just meant min-caching. I wasn't trying to min-cache, but I'm like, okay, I think I'll even kind of take a min-cache at this point because I've never had one. Of course, my real eye was on the big prizes towards the end of it. I originally scheduled to play day 1C of the main event. That was the one starting on July 5th. It was uh, running from July 3rd through 6th as far as the day 1s go. So C was the third one taking place on, on the 5th. Did I say the 6th? I meant the 5th. July 5th is the day 1C. Then I noticed that I was getting some comp rooms and that uh, I could rebook the hotels to where I was no longer paying big money to stay during the main event. Suddenly I was getting comps. 
which was nice to see. But uh, without going into the whole story, I saw it was not convenient to play C anymore. So I switched to 1D, which I really didn't want to do because 1D is a big clusterfuck. 1D is really, really crowded, and I, I just like avoiding the whole day 1D thing. That's when, by far, they get the most people. I don't understand why. I don't know why everyone loves 1D so much, but they always have. They always love the last starting day. So even if they add a fifth starting day, then 1E would be the big one. Just whatever the last starting day is, people love. So I had 1D as the one scheduled to play. In fact, I bought into 1D before I left town in late June. I went back to see my family for about a week before returning again to the main event. However, some bad news came down from the World Series on the 4th of July. And remember, I was scheduled to play on the 6th of July now. I had moved it to 1D being the 6th of July. Well, on the 4th of July, they dropped the bad news through the official WSOP account. I have to imagine this was KevMath's post. He's the one who mainly runs that account during the World Series. But they were saying that they strongly encourage people to register for 1C because 1D is going to be a disaster. There's going to be a gigantic line for late registration for alternates even they may have to do they may just run out of space and have to do alternates and that at the very least it's highly likely to have 10-handed play instead of nine-handed play well i hate 10-handed play most people hate 10-handed play it's crowded you know you're stuck at the table with with nine other people instead of eight other people which makes a big difference and it's also more likely someone is going to have a hand And you don't really want that. And you may say, well, why does that matter? Because I'll be in the same boat as everybody else. Well, because if you're constantly running into hands, you're constantly running into real hands or afraid that you are, that can affect how you can play. That can affect how confident you are that your hand is good. And it's just something I don't like. I don't like when there are too many people at the table. Now, the opposite extreme happens when you're playing shorthanded, where you can't sit around waiting for a good hand and you have to play mediocre hands. And that can be tough too. But 10 hand is too much. It's uncomfortable physically, and I don't like it even the way it plays. So this is the main event for 10K. I don't want to play 10 handed. So at the last minute, I dropped everything, literally, and I changed my plans. And I said, okay, well, now I'm going to play day 1C again. So I quickly packed up everything, which I thought I had another day to do. But I quickly got myself ready for the trip back to Vegas, packed up everything, and uh, abandoned my 4th of July plans, as I was going to spend the 4th at home, and uh, rushed back to Vegas so I could be there for the day 1C beginning on July 5th. The problem was I didn't have a hotel room. My hotel room was starting on the 5th in the afternoon, and I needed one for the night of the 4th to play on the 5th. Fortunately, a uh, listener was able to hook me up with the final day of their room, which I appreciated very much. What they did is they had a room that was uh, from July 1st to 5th, and they had another room they could go to. So they went to that other room and just abandoned their room for the final day of that reservation and added me on there so I was able to stay in that room. Wasn't at Paris, but that was fine. I would take it anywhere. So I took my room, and uh, then I packed up my stuff and put it in my car and uh, 
just waited until a break and uh, checked in during the dinner break, actually. And you may wonder, well, why didn't I just add one night to my reservation on site there at Paris where I was staying? Because I was staying at Paris because the event takes place at Paris and Bally's. I ended up in Bally's, but why didn't I just add one night to my Paris room, which I had comp for five nights? Why, why not just add one night even if it's going to be some extra money? Well, do you really have to ask? Here I thought I had five nights free. And I was all proud of myself that I got my five-night stay for free at Paris during the main event. And now because they can't accommodate everybody on day 1D, I have to pay? Uh Uh-uh. So I put some effort into finding someone to give me a room for that night on the 4th. And then I moved to my Comp Paris room. That's why I didn't just add one night to my reservation. I hope you understand now. So let's get into the actual event itself. So when I got to Vegas, uh, it was pretty late, and I went there and changed day 1D to 1C. They were very happy to have me do this because it opened up another spot for 1D, which they desperately needed. So they were thrilled to have me do that. Obviously, no trouble, and I didn't have to bring any money down there even to the cashier. They just switched the days. So I had my 1C assignment. It was in Bally's again. So I showed up, and uh, I was disappointed with the table draw, to say the least. I got my second worst table draw that I've ever gotten in the main event, only second to 2014. That was the only harder table draw I got than this one. That's not to say every single opponent of the other eight people was really tough, but a lot of them were. And then... Like, even the empty seats at first were eventually filled by good players. So there really were not many amateurs at the table. I had a number of Europeans at the table and others from other countries besides Europe. Like, I had a guy from Brazil who was good. And these were all pros. All these people from the other countries were pros. And the even some of the Americans at the table were pros. And even when people busted later in the day, they were replaced by pros. So I got very, a very tough table, both starting and as the day wore on. Now, not a lot of people busted because the main event, day one, doesn't have a lot of busts. But when people did bust, it, they were replaced by better players. So you got even harder. So I was not happy at all with this table. Now, if I were to be, I guess, uh, kind of an angler... I could have gotten out of this because there was a big flaw in something that they announced. And I think they started announcing this as of day 1C. I didn't really pay attention on day A and B. But they announced, which at first seemed like it was a good idea, that if you show up late, that your chips are not in play until you sit down. Well, I've been saying that for a while, that that should be the rule. Because it sucks just because you register early that you get blinded off, whereas the people who register later don't. So I actually agree with that part of it. The problem is that there is a loophole that if you just don't show up for the first two hours, they boot you off the table and then move you to the late reg area, which means that you would get a new table. Now, that's the big flaw there, because let's say you show up or you even send a friend to take a look so they don't think that you're pulling this, but either you show up 
and kind of look from a distance but close enough to see who's there or send a friend over to do it, even take a friend over there to uh, take a photo of the table and then text it to you, whatever. Just somehow see who's sitting there and look if you recognize people or just kind of from the looks of people, okay, this looks like a Euro pro. Okay, this looks like a good young player. Okay, this guy looks like he's probably uh, a rec player who's a 55-year-old businessman. Like you, you can just look at everybody and get an idea approximately of how good you think they are. Sometimes you'll end up being wrong, but you, you can kind of get an idea just by looking at the table, and you can especially get an idea if you recognize people there and you know they're good. So as was very quickly recognized by people who were seeing this policy that was tweeted out, that this could be exploited. And I don't know how many people did, but I guess I could have. I guess I could have walked up and seen all these Euros and uh, Brazilians and other people who uh, I knew were probably good sitting at the table. I could have just kept walking. No one there knew me. So I could have just kept walking and waited until two hours passed and then had myself put back into the late reg pool and then gone in the late reg line and gotten a new table. I didn't do that, but that could have been done. So the way they could have stopped this was by allowing your chips to not enter play until you sit down, but not reassigning you. They could even make it to where if you don't show up within X number of hours, I mean, two is is way too few, but let's say they they could make it if you don't show up in the first five hours that you can re-enter, but only the next day. Something like that. And if it's the final day, then your options are to enter on day two, which everybody can do, or just uh, get a refund. But at the very least, they shouldn't let you re-enter that same day. Or they should just make it like uh, they used to have it, except minus the blinding off. They could have it where this is your seat, and it'll start blinding off after X number of hours. So they could say, first four hours, you don't blind off. After that, we put it out there, it blinds off. But there's no way you can get out of this. If you don't show up, too bad. Right? If you don't show up, you can get a refund, but you can't re-register. Something like that. That's what they should do. But here, just letting people show up two hours late and get a table change, that's very bad. But I didn't do that. So it was tough there. It was a tough table for day one. You expect it to be tough on day three, day four, not on day one. But it was tough on day one. There was one European guy who was a good player, but he was to my right. He was two to my right, and that was the good part. The bad part is what this guy loved to do would be if he sensed you had a weak hand, that he would overbet the river. And I kept ending up in spots where I just could not call that overbet. Because, like, yeah, I would call with weaker holdings than usual when he makes that overbet, seeing that he kept doing it. But I'm sure he saw me as this uh, middle-aged fish who he could easily bet off on the river by just overbetting after I checked the turn. Because every time I checked the turn, he'd he'd fire an overbet on the river, and I never had anything to call. I always either missed a draw or I uh, I had ace high. Uh, something where I just didn't think it was going to be good. And the problem is he was probably also doing this when he wanted a call figuring you're going to call and he's going to get money out of you. So he probably wasn't only doing it when he missed and when you missed. But I I never got to see because I never had anything even close to strong enough to call him on the river in that spot. I was waiting for it to happen. In fact, I was even thinking of a way I could set him up like this 
where if I had something good that I actually would check the river and let, let him overbet the river and then I'd raise him or something like that. I couldn't do it. So I had to just keep folding. I'm sure he was very proud of himself there <laughs> knocking me off. I knew exactly what he was doing, but I didn't want to say it. So that was uh, that was frustrating. So I, I wasn't doing all that well throughout uh, most of the day, kind of uh, dwindling down. I had a hand with aces against a guy, an older guy with a weird play style. This was an American guy who just, he was probably in his 60s and he had an odd play style, kind of similar to the guys I saw at the seniors event. He entered a lot of hands pre-flop. And then post-flop, he was just kind of weird. He wasn't good, but he was just kind of weird the way he played. Well, I had aces, so he limped pre, and I raised over him with the aces. And then the flop came 10-something-something with two diamonds. It was a 10-high flop. And he bet out. So I almost raised him, but I said, you know what? I'm just going to call this, and then whatever hits the turn, if it's not a 10 or a diamond, I'm going to raise him. So basically a non-scare turn I'm going to raise, otherwise... Uh, I'll see what I do. Because I know when he's firing the 10 diamond-diamond board, he probably has a 10 or has diamonds. And if for whatever reason he puts a ton of pressure back on me, then I'll let it go. So, like, let's say he had pocket sixes and did this and just thinks he's going to bet me off. And then let's say an off-suited six hits the turn. Well, obviously I don't see that coming. So if he'll bet the turn, I'll raise him, he'll put a big raise over on me, and and I'll let it go. Because... His play style was weird, but he wasn't just spewing like that. So that was my plan. It was on the turn I was going to raise him, and then if he didn't uh, re-raise me, then provided nothing scare hit on the river, I'd value bet him and probably uh, get some nice chips out of him. Because one thing he wasn't good at was making value folds. So I'm all ready to raise him on the turn, and a 10 hits. <laughs> Second 10. And he fires out pretty big. Not like an overbet, but something fairly big. I think it was 10K, which at that point in the event was pretty big. It was a 60K starting stack. So I'm thinking, oh, shit, come on. So, okay, what if I call this now with my aces? Then what do I do on the river? What if he fires uh, 20 on the river? What do I do? Like, do I incinerate most of my stack here, calling him down if he's got a 10? So I, I sat there thinking, what do I do? Like, do I really fold aces here? 10, 10, 3, 2? Two diamonds when he fired the flop and now is firing the turn? Yeah, what if he has eights? What if he has nines? What if he has sevens, sixes? What if he has just diamonds? I almost felt like a fish folding, but I just go, you know what? I just think he's got me. I think he's either flopped a set or more likely has a 10. So I tossed it, and I watched him as I tossed it. And as I tossed it, I saw a very genuine frustration and sigh that he did. This was not Hollywooding, I promise you. He seemed legitimately frustrated because I was tanking there. He was probably thinking, come on, call, 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 call. And he probably thought I was going to call. And I tossed it and he couldn't contain his emotion. He didn't say what he had and I didn't ask him. And he quickly tried to suppress it after doing it. He was like, Ugh. and then he quickly tried to go back, hoping I didn't see that. So I was pretty convinced I made the right fold there. He either had a 10 or flopped a set. So I thought, okay, well, this kind of sucks to lose aces this way, but at least I lost the minimum, made the right move. As we got close to the final level of the day, I finally had something good happen. I'd been struggling all day. I I went to dinner with only uh, 37K out of the 60, which, you know, isn't awful, but that definitely wasn't what I was hoping to do was lose most of my, you know, most of half a stack. 
when I was going to dinner. And it was kind of like a thing where I was just losing and not winning that many. I didn't lose any big hands. So I come back from dinner, and I was grinding it back up. So by near the end of that level, which is two hours, so now we're near the eighth hour of play. You play ten hours each day. I got myself barely back over starting stack, which felt like a victory because I was really working hard to do that. Like I was uh, really grinding it out and just winning small pots and pushing myself back up over starting stack. So I was happy. Okay, well, you know, if I finish starting stack today, I guess compared to how the rest of the day was going, it's not that bad. And there's a tough table and I didn't run well. So, okay, fine. If I can squeeze out just starting stack here, it's not the worst. Well, then here came the aces again. So... I raised, and I think it was like middle position. The guy to my direct left, a Brazilian pro, re-raised me. So I re-raised him. Now, he had a shorter stack than I did. So I re-raised him, and he thought about it and called. So my plan, given the stack sizes here in the blinds, was that with most flops, I was going to check-raise him all in. I was going to represent that I had a missed ace-king let him bet and pot commit himself and then check raise them all in. So I thought, okay, let's not see a paired board. Like I don't want to see king, king or queen, queen something. That's what I don't want to see. So board came paired, but it was 884. So that's not the worst paired board. He Remember, he three bet me and I four bet him and he still called. So the chance of him having an eight or even pocket fours is pretty low because he probably would have laid it down. This guy was... Uh, a good enough player to where he knew I had something real. He knew I had a big hand, and he put in enough pre calling me. And remember, it's not like he had a deep stack to where he was hoping to spike a miracle and then get all my chips. This guy was uh, already getting short, not super short, but he's already getting sh uh, on the shorter side. So he's not going to waste all these chips calling pre when he knows I have something big trying to set mine. So I knew he must have something fairly good himself, but obviously I have the best with aces. So that's why I just didn't want to see, like, king-king or queen-queen. Uh, I didn't want to see, uh, you know, he has ace-queen, ace-king. I, I didn't want to see that. 8-8-4 I was pretty happy with. So I thought, okay, I'm definitely check-raising him all in. Someone asked me, actually someone who listened to the show asked why I don't lead out there. I didn't want to lead out because I was afraid that if I played it too strong that he was going to realize I probably had a higher pair than he did and let it go. So let's say he had jacks. He may not want to put his whole tournament life on the line if he has jacks, if he's really strongly putting me on something very big. So I want him to pot commit himself there, or basically stack commit himself. That is the, where he's bet uh, enough on the flop to where it becomes harder for him to lay down if I check raise him. So I checked, and he bet. So I check raised him all in. And he didn't snap call, so obviously I have him there. If he has aces, for sure, he's snap calling. If he's got an eight, he's snap calling. If he's got a, if he got fours, he's snap calling. So obviously he must have a pair, an over pair to the board there, like I thought he did. And now he's wondering if he should call it. Now, on one hand, you could say that my check raise looks super strong and could make him lay it down more easily. On the other, he's already put another bet in, and now he has fewer chips left. And that's what his thought process was. He was thinking, okay, I, I have a feeling I'm screwed. I mean, he was actually talking out loud because 
he could because I already went all in. It's just me and him. So he said, I don't know if I can lay this down. He said, I, I can't see how I could. And he said, I think you have the best hand, but you also may think you have the best hand and not realize that I do. So right when he said that, I knew he must have kings because by him saying that, he, I thought he was trying to say, and he was saying that maybe I have queens and thinks that's the best hand, when in reality he has kings and it's not, but he also thinks it's more likely I have aces. He didn't say that out loud, but that's what he meant by, I think you have the best hand, but you also may think you do and not. So I thought, okay, he's got kings here. The question is, is he going to call? So he kept saying, yeah, I just, and he kept like counting his chips, and he realized that it just was too hard to lay down because of the chance I had queens. So at that point, I was very proud of the fact that I did this check raise because it had him put additional chips in the pot and left him with fewer chips behind, which made it a lot harder to make this lay down, even though he put me on aces. So finally, after some thought, he called and flipped over kings, 10 on the turn, and then a picture on the river. And my heart jumps for a second, but it was a queen. And he was out. And I had 109k. That's much better. Much better. I was happy to finish with anything over 100, believe me, after the way that day had gone. And then a few more hands, and the level was over. We had our final 20-minute break of the day. I was feeling good. And I thought, all right, let's see what it can end with. Even if I end with the same 109, it'll be fine, but let's see if I can even do better. All right, day's turning around. And I eliminated a good player directly to my left. So hopefully he'll be replaced by someone who isn't very good. Well, first problem, he was replaced by a guy who was good, a, a young player. There's not many young players in this, but this guy was young, and uh, he didn't talk much, but it was a young white guy, and he came in with not that many chips, maybe 45K, but he was good. And uh, every time I raised, he came over me with a three bet, uh, then I didn't have a hand that could call him. Like, I'd raise late with Jack Nine offsuit, and he'd three bet me, and I'd have to let it go, so... Uh, he, he was a good player, this guy to my left, this young kid. But I wasn't losing many chips. Uh, I, I just didn't get involved in that many pots. And I lost more than I won, but I still had about 102K for my high of 109 after the first hour of that final level. So we had one hour left to play. I have a hair over 100. And then came... I'd say maybe about another 15 minutes later. Then came the hand I'll never forget. So a player in uh, early position opened, but this guy was opening a lot of pots. So him opening early didn't mean much. He opened, and there were two callers, and then the button to my uh, direct right, uh, he called, and then it came to me on the small blind, and I have jacks. People always uh, joke about jacks, how hard they are to play, how they never win, how they're the bane of all tournament players. Well, yeah, I kind of understand that. So what do you do with jacks here? I either had three or four opponents already in the hand. So I, I raised. I could have just flatted, but I didn't respect the raise of the original raiser. So I figured I probably have the best hand by far here. And jacks don't play all that well after the flop against multiple opponents. So not only that, but a raise, if it clears the field out, I'll be happy to take the 
chips that I can get here just from getting everyone to fold because we had a lot of flatters right here. So I raised the jacks out of the small blind. Big blind folded. Call, 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 call. Okay, well, this is going to be a tough one, I thought. If I don't see a jack on the flop, I have to play cautiously. If I see over cards, I'll probably just check. Well, the first card I saw as they put out the flop, I saw the middle card, which was a jack. All right, great. Then I saw the other two cards, a king and a nine, and they were all clubs. Hmm. Now that becomes real difficult to play. I'm out of position. I flop middle set, but there's three clubs out there, three high clubs on a coordinated board. King, jack, nine, all clubs. Not only that, but two of the opponents have more chips than me. Even though I had like 102K coming into this, two of them had more chips than me, including the original Razor. So how far do I want to go with this one? Do I really want to put it all in against one of these guys if they've flopped a flush or maybe have kings? But then again, how can you lay this down? So I fired at a bet on the flop. Pretty good sized bet I fired. Original Razor, snap fold. Next guy, snap fold. I forget if there's another person in the hand, but the only one left who did not fold was the guy on the button to my direct right who was a 73-year-old recreational player who, in fact, said he was a great-grandfather. Nice guy. But he also didn't anywhere near have me covered. He probably had about uh, 45K total coming into the hand. Keep in mind, pre-flop, we already had about uh, close to 20K in the pot because of my raise. So I knew with the two big stacks gone, with just me and the guy with 45K total, I knew we're getting it in no matter what. So he called. And I thought to myself, let's not see a club on the turn. Well, guess what? We see a club on the turn, four clubs on the turn. Now, had he had more chips, I might have been able to get away from this. But he only had like 22K left at this point. And the pot itself was more than that. The pot itself was like 40 here or 45, something like that. So there, there was no way I could let this go because even if he's got a club, I've got outs for the board pairing. So I thought, what do I do here? I get someone with a real stack. I, I can't uh, do anything here. I can't bet this because they could have the ace and I'm screwed. They could put a raise in and then I'm, I'm in trouble. But this guy, I thought to myself, what if he's got a club that's a low club? Like, let's say he has uh, a 10 of clubs, something like that. Just something that's a, a low club that he's not willing to risk his tournament life on low to medium club. He thinks I have the ace of clubs. So I went all in. I went all in thinking maybe I can get a low club to fall, uh, to fold that is. And uh, if he does have the ace of clubs or if he has any other club and chooses to call me, or maybe he has a straight with queen 10, at least I have outs. I said, no matter what, I have outs. I prefer he doesn't call me if he's ahead of me, obviously, but maybe I have outs and maybe I'll even get a call from something that is behind me. Maybe he's got uh, king nine or jack nine. Maybe he's got pocket nines. You know, there's something he could have that's behind me. Pocket nines actually is the most likely of the bunch that he could have that would be behind me. But I, I had to, just because of what he had left, you know, what could I do? I couldn't check fold that, given what the pot was and what he had left. 
So if he's ahead of me and is going to put it in anyway, and if I have to call, I might as well be the one to make the move and put the pressure on him. So I go all in. Well, he snap calls. So I thought, up, oh, he's got the ace of clubs. Well, that sucks. Better hope for the board to pair. Well, the good news was he did not have the ace of clubs. The bad news, he flopped a straight flush. Queen 10 of clubs he had. He flopped a straight flush. Guess what I got on the river? Of course, I was drawing dead, so I wasn't sweating the river. I knew I lost the hand as soon as he flipped that over. But another king hit the river. So I did get the board paired. I would have beaten any flush, just not a straight flush. I would have beaten any straight. I would have beaten any hand, except for kings, or king jack, or king nine, or a straight flush. (laughs) So he had the straight flush. He flopped a straight flush in the main event against me in a big pot. (sighs) I was back down to 60K. But all right. All right. I could have busted there. Guy didn't have that many chips. I said, I'll shake it off. I'm not going to let this uh, tilt me or anything. Only a few hands later, I got those jacks again. So I raised and I got a guy uh, flatting me from the small blind, different person. Just me and him this time. Flop came, ace high, all clubs. I go, this is the damn clubs again. I had the jack of clubs, though. So he checked. I bet he called. Turn was another five. Decided to check when he checked to me. River, queen of clubs. Well, that's actually not a bad card. Because now, uh, only thing that beats me is the king of clubs or if he's got a boat. So he bets out. I call. He had ace king with the king of clubs. So he was just low playing. (sighs) I guess he liked the flop so much that he decided he doesn't have to run me off. That damn club didn't hit the river. I decent chance I would have folded that river bet because I know he's calling with something. I mean, maybe I would have called thinking he could be chasing clubs. So I, I guess there's a chance I would have called anyway. But that, that was another uh, 10K or so I lost there, maybe 12K. And then I lost a little bit more by the time we ended. So I finished with a, a bit short of 45K, which is very disappointing. Day two, I actually got a pretty decent table draw, a lot better than day one. Unfortunately, the table eventually broke, and I didn't make much progress there. I just wasn't able to win big hands, so I only made. I I think I ended up finishing with fifty-seven k when that table broke. So I went up a little bit, but not as much as I hoped. Then I got moved to a tough table, and uh, in fact, to my left was someone I hadn't seen in a while, a two thousands era player, Brian Devonshire. If you remember him, he sometimes went by Devo. Brian Devonshire is an interesting guy. He was a young guy from Minnesota, was a poker pro, and then pretty much left the poker life to go be a guide in uh, national parks and uh, for, I think, like river rafting excursions and things like that. He was a very like outdoorsy guy and still is. So that, that was what he thought was more of his calling than poker. He was someone who just uh, loved the outdoors, loved nature, loved living among nature, And in fact, he wanted to work in that field of running excursions for people who visit these type of places. So that's what he's been doing for many years. And he said hello to me the second I sat down. 
And uh, he and I were both uh, not getting hands for quite some time. Like, the table was pretty active. It was not an easy table. The players, there were pretty good, but they were pretty active, too. Me and him were just fold, 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 fold. We just kept getting dealt trash. Well, I was obviously not making any progress, just getting blinded down as this was happening. But uh, with my final 40K, which wasn't very much at this point because the blinds had gone up, I had ace-king under the gun. So I raised, and Devonshire thought about it and called. Then two other people called, and uh, we saw the flop with uh, four players. One of the people who called was that kid who has moved to my left on day one. I got him again on day two now, on this, my new table on day two. And he had a lot of chips by this point. So it was me, Devonshire, this kid from day one, and then the fourth guy, who I didn't really know, who also had a lot of chips. The flop was ace, four, two. And I'm forgetting if it was rainbow or not. I think it may have had two diamonds. I think it was ace, four, two, two diamonds. But regardless, at this point, I'm pot committed with ace, king. Because uh, I don't have enough chips to possibly fold this. Just 40k isn't enough that uh, someone with ace, queen, for example, will play this pretty aggressively against me and put it in the 40k, given what the blinds were at this point. So that was it. I was committed on this hand. But then what do I do? Do I bet out? Well, I thought, no. I said, I'm going to do it the same way as I did to that Brazilian pro on day one. I'm going to check as if I missed this and let someone commit themselves. Because of these three players, I mean, one of them's got to have, have the ace, right? We must have someone here who either has an ace or is going to represent the ace. So my plan was to check raise all in. So I checked. Devonshire checked. And then the third guy bet. Then the young guy called, and it came back to me. Well, that's a little bit weird. But okay, maybe they both have aces. I thought maybe it's possible somebody here has a set, but, you know, what can I do? There's no way I can lay this down. It's also very possible that it's uh, one person bluffing, one, one has an ace, one person who has a pocket pair, the other one has an ace. Who knows? Remember, me and Devonshire checked, so someone could just be firing to try to take the pot, which was pretty decent pot already since uh, it was four ways called plus the blinds and antes pre-flop. So I pretend to think about it, even though I know fully what I'm going to do, and I go all in. I'm expecting Devonshire then to quickly toss his hand. He does not. He sits and thinks and thinks and thinks. And I thought, well, shit, what does he have? And I'm wondering if maybe he has flopped a set and is just Hollywooding the thinking and is going to come over on me. Well, he just flats my all-in, which I'm thinking, okay, that's a bad sign. I'm hoping maybe he has the other ace-king. But remember, he didn't re-raise me pre. Well, then the original better on the flop quickly tosses it. Then it comes to the young guy who says, all-in. Oh, shit, I thought. Now I know I'm dead. Between him and Devonshire, one of them's got me. Of course, I have no choice at this point. I'm already committed. I'm already in. Back to Devonshire, who has more chips than I do. Remember, he only called my all-in. He thinks, 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 and makes the call. Devonshire flips over ace-king, 
gives me a little bit of hope, but I know I'm going to see fours from the other guy, and indeed, the other guy has fours. And that is the end of me and the end of Brian Devonshire. And that kid got a lot of chips out of that one. Only 40K being mine, but uh, overall he got a lot of chips because I think Devonshire had like 100 coming into this or 90 or something like that. So that was all, folks. Ace-King versus Ace-King versus fours on an Ace-Deuce-Four board. And that was all she wrote. So between running into the straight flush and that, I was not destined to make a deep run in this main event. I then went and registered for the Mixed Omaha. The Mixed Omaha was an event I wanted to play. It's a $1,500 buy-in. But they moved it to after the main event. So I was only going to make the Mixed Omaha if I busted on day one of the main or fairly early or early middle day two. So I busted uh, early middle day two. That gave me time to go register for Mixed Omaha. Mixed Omaha began at 3 p.m. By the time I registered and sat down, I did take a little bit of a break. I didn't just jump right into Mixed Omaha after busting the main. I wanted to cool down a bit went to my room, relaxed a little bit, but by the time I got down there and registered into my seat, it was probably about 425. But of course, I sit with the full stack. So sat down with my 25K stack at uh, Mixed Omaha about 85 minutes after it had started. And immediately I start losing. I think I split the first pot. Remember, it's a split pot uh, event. Mixed Omaha, I guess I should describe it to you. It is an event which is one-third... Limit Omaha 8 or better, which is the split pot Omaha. One-third pot limit Omaha 8 or better, which is the same game except in pot limit form. And one-third pot limit Big O. Big O is the same as pot limit Omaha 8 or better, except there's an extra card. You have five cards instead of four. So it's limit 08, PL08, and pot limit Big O. And you just keep rotating them. I played this in 2009, or not, I played this 2019, the last time I played it, and I finished 100th to barely min-cash. That was a disappointing event for me in 2019, because I played really well the first day, and finished with one of the biggest stacks in the event, and then I played awful the second day, and barely made a min-cash. One of my worst played World Series days in a long time was that second day of the Mixed Omaha. I just didn't have it that day which is funny because it followed a day where I played well. So here I was again. I didn't play it in uh, 21. It was not offered in 20. And in 21, I just didn't play it because I only played the main. So here I was again. And this one went very different. Unlike in 2019, where I immediately just ran it up. Here, I immediately ran it down. After splitting the first pot I played, I then lost, I didn't count, but probably about 15 straight pots where I entered and saw the flop. I kid you not, like 15 of them. Now, why wasn't I out? Well, because the blinds were so small. And because in the split pot Omaha games, if you miss the flop, you usually just check and fold. That's usually the right thing to do. Sometimes it makes sense to bet and try to bet off your opponents you think may have missed also. But a lot of times it's obvious that someone hit something and you didn't and you just check fold. So it's different than hold them. There's a lot uh, less continuation betting when you've missed. So for that reason, 
I lost, as I said, like 15 straight hands I entered that saw the flop where I just missed or I got counterfeited or something happened. And I had a lot of good starting hands. I wasn't playing loose. I wasn't playing recklessly. I had a lot of good starting hands and then just go in the toilet, either miss the flop or get counterfeited on the turn or someone just puts in a lot of action and I think I'm behind them, whatever it is. I don't think I made bad folds either. I think I legitimately was behind all 15 hands where I lost. So I immediately was, was down to a short stack. <laughs> you can rebuy in this. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to rebuy, but you can rebuy up to two times in this one. I wasn't sure if I would or if I was just kind of burnt out and if I was not going to do it. So I hadn't decided that yet. I was considering it, but wasn't sure. But I thought the decision might be coming soon because I hadn't won a hand yet. I had won zero hands, chopped one, and lost about 15. I'm not even kidding. So I thought, boy, this is a disaster. <laughs> I was just losing everything, and that's, that's part of the reason I didn't want to rebuy. I just felt like I couldn't win anything. It was not a good mindset to be in. So I got uh, dwindled all the way down to 9K and finally got my chips all in with uh, a good hand, and it ended up holding up, and I doubled up to about 20. It's okay. But then I, I started losing again. So the, for the vast majority of day one, I was between 9 and 18K when the starting sack was 25 and the blinds are going up. And of course, people are busting. So the average stack is going up and I'm still stuck between 9 and 18, which isn't even close to starting stack. So I'm short the entire day. It just never changes. But every time I get down to about nine or so, I end up with a good hand to start with, a good starting hand, end up all in, and end up winning. So I'm never busting, but I can't ever run it up. And aside from those all-in hands where I'm down to very little, I'm just losing every single hand. I mean, my one lost record in that event on day one when I saw a flop was horrendous. It was probably the worst one lost record I ever had in an event on a day one. When I say worst, I mean like the number of hands I lost. Obviously, I've had worse events where I uh, bust in the first few hands or whatever that might be, but I don't end up losing that many hands because I'm out quickly. I'm talking about events where I'm staying around for a while. I probably lost the most hands post-flop than I ever have of any event I've ever played on day one. But I still wasn't out. Even though I had a terrible one-loss record, I still wasn't out. So, you know, chip in the chair, right? And I had kind of a feeling. I had kind of a feeling like I'm not going to bust. It was kind of weird. Like you'd think I'd be all frustrated and pissed off and in a bad mood. I really wasn't. I, I kind of found it was funny. Like it was kind of entertaining that I was just hanging around with that same 9 to 18K stack for the entire day one. Yet I wasn't busting. And every time people would check on me, so how are you doing? Oh, I've got like 15K. You've had that all day. Oh, I, I know. Like people couldn't understand how I was stuck there all day with the blinds escalating like they were. How, can, how can't I go one way or the other? Why am I not either busted or moving up? But that's what I was. Well, finally, near the end, I doubled up again and got to around 30. So then I kind of hung around like between 25 and 30, which still was short stacked because a lot of people had busted by then. So the average stack was way higher as were the blinds. But then I had a hand that almost uh, crippled me. Because there is me against uh, one guy, an older guy. I didn't know him, but uh, anyway, he was uh, he f he fired the 
river where it didn't make a lot of sense for him to just fire. And I was reasoning it out in my head. I won't bother to go through the whole action of the hand, but basically I had an ace and a king in my hand, but it was ace, king, jack, jack, something on the board. And this isn't Hold'em. This is, uh, this was Omaha. And, uh, this was Limit Omaha. So he had to fire 6K if he's going to bet. So he fired his 6K on the river. I had 10,500 total. So if I called and lost, I would have been down to 4,500, which is basically crippled. And I'd have almost no chance of uh, cashing the event. And we weren't that close to the money. So that would almost bust me if I called and lost. But if I won, I would have been up to 43K. So I had to sit there and think about it because Ace King on a board of Ace King, Jack, Jack, something, that's just not uh, a very good hand. There was no low. I didn't have to worry about the split pot aspect. I was either going to win or lose or maybe tie, but I just, I had to think about it. Like, do I really want to put almost my entire tournament life on this call? But I thought, well, if I don't, if I fold, I only have 10,500, 10, which is nothing. I mean, we're playing a 3K, 6K limit 08. So what is 10-5? It's not like it's going to be a playable stack. It isn't. Just a little bit better than the 4,500. So I thought, okay, you know what? I just don't believe it. I don't think he's got that jack. He didn't fire out when that jack hit the turn. It just it just doesn't make sense to me. I thought, I just don't think he's got that jack, and I think this might be a bluff because I checked the turn. So I flatted, and he says, flush. And I think, what? Flush? I didn't see a flush out there, and I, I felt like a moron for a second. How did I miss the flush? I didn't think there was a flush possible. I saw there was a flush draw on the flop, but that didn't get there. The flop was with two diamonds and ended up with two hearts by the river, but there was no three of any suit out there. So I thought maybe I, thought maybe I misread it. Well, no, he misread it. Uh, he thought he had a flush in hearts when there were only two hearts on the board. <laughs> and he wasn't angling either. <laughs> he really thought he was betting his flush. <laughs> okay thank you very much it was a difficult decision i mean i guess he accidentally almost bluffed me off but uh i called and he had his fake flush and he looked very surprised when people explained to him it's not a flush maybe i don't know he may have had a senior moment he was an older guy but whatever i was happy to take the chips and that was like the second to last hand of the day, so I finished with 43K, which was my high. I was still like half of average, but that was my high for the event, the 43K. Almost the entire event, I was below 30, and for most of the event, I was below 20. For most of the event, I was less than half average stack. Was less than half average of, 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 uh, yeah, of, the, of the stacks in the event, and I was below starting stack, of course, so I finished above starting stack, which is 25. And I finished about half of average, but still had a lot of work to do coming to day two. Still nowhere near the money. I thought maybe day two will be different. Maybe day two I'll just lose right away. Maybe day two I'll run it up. And I thought maybe I was going to run it up because uh, pretty early in day two, I got it up to 80 with a, was, uh, was pretty much a double. But no, started losing again. And again, for the remainder of day two... I was just sitting there short the entire time. Not busting, but short. And again, same thing. I'd get really low, I'd go all in, and then my hand would hold up. I always went all in with good hands, but I was going all in pre, 
and I think one time post with not much left. And the same guy actually doubled me up three times to my direct left. One of the times he did it with a hand that wasn't very good. The other two times it was just uh, where it was kind of destined to go in and I had the better hand and it held up. But there's a lot of ways you can get bad beat in Omaha. It just wasn't happening, though. When we got it all in, I was uh, managing to win every time when I was short. So that's the only place I got lucky is that uh, every time I was all in with a short stack, I won. I didn't even chop. I won. However, I wouldn't win any other hands. (laughs) So uh, I had the same thing going on, same short stack, and uh, we started getting close to the money. And I thought, wow, can I actually cash with this? Can I actually cash having been short the entire event from the moment I sat down? Remember, I sat down when people had already busted. So I sat down, my starting stack was immediately below average, and then I started losing immediately right after I was beginning to play. I lost 15 hands, like, really fast. So I was short the entire event. And I was half of average or less for almost the entire event. Could I really cash? I've never done that before in my life. I've never once been short the entire event and cashed. But here I was getting real close. And they were paying 116 spots out of the 771 entries. And indeed, I held on in cash. And by the way, I wasn't folding to the money. Number one, I couldn't because I was short. But number two, I, I put it in sometimes without the nuts. I put it in sometimes in spots where I could have been behind. So I, I wasn't playing recklessly, but I wasn't uh, fearing the bubble either. I admit I would have been frustrated here if I bubbled it because of all the effort I put in to maintain the short stack. I was actually proud of this one. I was proud of this cash because there were a lot of times I could have put it in in marginal spots and did not. There's a lot of times I could have easily busted and didn't. There's a lot of times I I read the situation properly and did not waste chips. So this wasn't it just happened to fall where I was short the whole way. I was short the whole way because I preserved the chips. There was a guy, I I meant to ask him to come on here, but it got late. But there was a guy to my direct left. I had a a tough decision on day one. And he kept talking about his blog that he's trying to get going on YouTube. And uh, doesn't have much of an audience, but he's trying to get an audience. And at at the end, I offered to have him come on the show and he could promote his blog and... uh, uh, we were going to talk about our play there, but we, we had one hand. I had to make a tough decision here. This is on day one, not day two. I'm kind of going backwards. But he was with my direct left, and it was me, him, and one other guy. And, uh, you know, both of them were uh, competent players, so th- there weren't any fish in this hand. But uh, the flop came king 9-9, nine, nine, and I had a 9 in my hand. So I bet the flop, and I got two callers. It was king 9-9 nine, nine with two clubs. So I bet the flop two callers. Turn was like a five of clubs. So I checked, and I was actually going to be done with a hand. But I checked, and they both checked. And the river was a seven of clubs. So I bet 3K. Remember, I was short stacked, but not cripples dry. Probably like 18K at this point. I bet. And he comes over for like 15K, this guy to my direct left. And the other one quickly folds. So I had to think about this one. You know, I turned to full house. I have uh, the 9-7 full house. I'm only losing to the king-9 full house, the pocket king's full house, or a 6-8 straight flush. Because there is a 9-5-7 of clubs on the board. 
So I had to think about this one. And I looked at his stack, and he had a similar stack to mine. So had he lost this, he would have been crippled. And I thought to myself, okay, you know what? This guy, I haven't seen this guy. Like, he's not out of line, this guy. Like, I, I don't see him as the type who's going to do this with a hand that is going to lose and that uh, this is going to cripple him. Like, I, I couldn't see him doing this with crap. And he called the flop for some reason. You know, so like, he's not doing this with a flush. He's not doing this with the other 9-7. He's not doing this uh, with just a 9. Something he probably has pocket kings or king 9 or maybe that weird straight flush. He's got to have something here that's really strong that he thinks is better than me. So he might think I hit 9-7, which I did. And I'm thinking, I, I think I have to lay this down. I don't think this guy's going to do it because he doesn't, otherwise if he doesn't, have one of these things, he has to think that I probably have it. Because I hadn't been getting out of line either. I was pretty tight. So especially because of the stack he had and what he was going to be leaving himself with, I thought he's he's got to really have something. So I tossed it. And uh, later when I talked to him when the event was over, for day, well, not the event, the, the day was over, me, him, and actually the third guy were all kind of standing there talking and you know we introduced ourselves and uh, he told me, yeah, I had the kings. <laughs> And he sounded sincere. So he he said he had the kings. He was slow playing, and he was he he figured I hit the nine seven and was trying to kind of over raise, hoping that I would think he's pulling a move on me and call, and that I didn't fall for it. So and I told him the truth. I said, yeah, I had nine seven. It was a tough decision, but you know, I I thought you really had it and let it go. In Hold'em, I couldn't have let that go, but in uh, Omaha, I could because much more likely he has something that beats nine seven there. So that was an interesting hand. Anyway, I I told him. You know, let's. I'll have you on this show, and you can you can plug your blog. Maybe you'll get some traffic on it. And uh, yeah, he seemed like a nice guy. And I, I meant to contact him, but I forgot. Now it's a little too late. I guess he could be up. We have so much to do tonight, though. Maybe we'll have him on next week. He told me he cashed, though. He cashed uh, a little bit more than I did. I didn't see him on day two, but where I ended up finishing was ninety sixth place. Hey, Matt, the rat here. Let me, let me finish this here, and then we'll uh, sure. hear from you. Uh, I ended up finishing 96th place, which just happened to be the second-tier min cash. So the min cash was 24 something $100, and I wasn't trying for the next tier up, which is $26 something. I'm not going to alter my play to uh, make another $200, but it just so happened when I busted, I I was 96th place, even though the, the clock up there showed 103 left, so I didn't even think I made it, and it turned out I did. Uh Right after we hit the money, I told the table the truth. I didn't want them to hear beforehand that I was short the entire way because I didn't want them to think they could uh, make moves on me, that I, that I was trying to get a min cash. Like, I didn't want that image there, so I didn't say anything to anyone. But once, once we hit the money, then I told everybody the story, and they, they were pretty uh, intrigued by it when I told them that I, I told them what my stack was the entire time. And I said, you see how short I've been today? It was like that all yesterday, but even, even worse. So they were pretty intrigued by that. And... Uh, we got to the point where I was down to uh, 16K in, uh, which was like nothing. It was like two big blinds by that point. And uh, so I was looking, obviously, to get it in. And I knew it was, was going to be one of two hands because I was going to be under the gun. And then the next was going to be a blind of 5K and a big blind ante of 5K. So I knew that one of these two, I have to get it in no matter what. So, well, I got dealt isn't big O. I got dealt like uh, King... Queen, Jack, 9, 7, which isn't a great big O hand, but when you're forced to go in one of the two hands, that's not bad. 
So I, I put it in there, actually flopped a straight against the big blind who called me, but then uh, he rivered the low, so we split it. Then big blind, I'm obviously going to be all in no matter what, since I'm already contributing 10K in there, and I had 10K left at this point. So I got a few extra K from that split. But uh, obviously anything but a complete trash hand, like uh, uh, like if I got 4444-something, four, 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 four you know, like quads in your hand, which is a disaster in Omaha, then yeah, I have to let that go. But anything that's, that's not a complete disaster, I have to call. So I, I got a, a pretty crappy hand dealt to me, just kind of five random cards. Of uh, of which, uh, so I, I had a a king and a jack in that hand, like a king jack and like two middle cards and one low card, something like that. Had to go in, wasn't thrilled. The uh, an older Asian guy on the button, Ray, he opened raised, so I thought maybe the fact that the button was raising was a good sign because it folded to him. But then again, this guy wasn't raising with trash, so just had to hope I'd win. And so I ran it out. Of all things, uh, I actually flopped trips the flop was queen jack jack and turned a king so i had a full house on the turn however he actually had pocket queens to flop the boat so believe it or not even though my forced all in hand for the big blind ended up making a full house on the turn i still ended up losing the hand and i was drawing extremely thin coming to the river which of course i didn't get so that was the end of me i actually took a picture of it and posted it on my uh, dandruff poker twitter which is where i do my updates so that was it, and I got 96th place. And I was proud of that one, though. It was the first event I've ever had where from start to finish, I was below average stacked, and where most of the time I was less than half average, and I cashed. That's the only time in my life I have ever done that in any tournament anywhere. So I was proud of that. It wasn't uh, wasn't easy. And I, I turned it into something. And sometimes when you get just bad cards and you can turn it into money, <laughs> even if you don't cash an impressive amount... Uh, you're still happy with it. So that was one. I'm usually not happy to walk away with, with a min cash or pseudo min cash, but th- this time I was. Of course, I would have preferred I, I had a big comeback and got very deep in the event, but given what I was dealt, I'll take it. And that was my final event. So not the best World Series for me, especially because it started so badly where the first four events I played, I couldn't get past 30% of the field, and I busted the main without getting very far. Uh, the seniors event, that one I had a real shot to run very deep, but the cards did me in, which was disappointing. Told you guys about that already. So I ended up having two caches, the seniors, and I had this one. So did not make money in this World Series. Now, it is not as bad as it looks because I only entered one event that was more than $1,500 buy-in, and that was the main. I also only rebought in one event, and that was the seniors, where I ended up cashing more than I rebought. So... Uh, I spent a lot less in buy-ins this World Series than I do other World Series, aside from last year where I just entered the main. I did not sell any pieces of myself in this World Series. Some people ask, can we buy a piece of you? Are you selling pieces? I, I just didn't want to do it this year, so I just didn't do it. So it, it, it was all my money, and I guess you guys are better off you didn't buy pieces. You would have lost money. But uh, So it wasn't as bad as it looked, but I, I still lost overall. Uh, I still had a good time playing. I'm definitely going to come back and play the seniors again. That was one that I'm Definitely going to do every year until I'm in the ground. And then uh, this is my second mixed Omaha cash in uh, in a row, even though it's two very different events for me. <laughs> one where I had a big stack and chunked it off and barely min cash. The other one 
I had a short stack the entire way and didn't chunk it off and got a second tier min cash. And I should have actually had a cash in the PLO8. I just took a brutal beat. I, I'm not going to go into that whole thing, but basically I had it all in against a loose player fairly close to the money. And all he could catch was a six to beat me. And he caught a six. The table was just shaking their heads at this. They, they were going, oh man, that's so sick as I'm walking away. Not not to pacify me, like I'm actually uh, uh, walking away and I'm hearing that in the background about how sick this was, and wow, that's pretty bad. Uh, Brandon Shaq Harris was my to my direct right. He was one of, one of the people saying that. So should have had a third cash there, to be honest, but that's the way poker goes. I mean, usually in in, uh, in, in Omaha, if you get it in, unless you've got uh, some unbeatable nut hand, to have someone down to where they can only catch a six to beat you, that's that's pretty hard to do. But I, I I had the guy in with that, and I would have had a nice stack had I won that hand. But the six fell, and that was that. So that was my PLO8. Otherwise, that would have been my third consecutive PLO8 event cash because I had two straight caches in that one in 18 and 19, and I didn't play it in 2021. So I would have had my third consecutive one there. Should have, but that six robbed it from me. But overall, you can see uh, the the Omaha events. I'm I'm doing pretty well, and just one of these days, I've got I've got to catch on and and uh, go real deep. The farthest I've gone in the, one of these is thirtieth in a PLO eight event. I believe that was a nineteen. Anyway, Matt, uh, hello. How are you doing? Good, good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Hey, first shout out to our friend Ari Angle, who's currently sixty ninth with two point seven million chips. And 139 people left. Yeah, I was going to talk about him. Well, let's, let's get to us here, actually, uh, since you're on and since you mentioned him. Uh, in fact, that was actually going to be the next uh, topic, so that's a good uh, segue. Uh, Ari Engel, who is a every-week listener to this show. Ari Engel really likes this show. Now, I will admit something that uh, I don't like to admit, but I will admit it for full disclosure. Uh, he uses this show to go to sleep. <laughs> He actually told me that, but but still, he, he listens is the point. He listens to every show, and I appreciate that, and Ari is a great tournament player. Uh, he does not have a permanent home. He's actually homeless in a way, where he uh, he travels the world, literally the world, and plays tournament after tournament after tournament. I could not do that. That's something that I would go crazy doing, but he enjoys it, and he does well, and uh, everybody has your respect for him and his game, and a uh, very, very good poker player. Uh, what, however, there was one event that was eluding him. There was one event where he was not a very good poker player, at least results-wise. That was the main event. He has played the main event 14 times up till 2021, and the number of times in those 14 that he has cashed in the main event was... 0.0. .0. This came out in a thread on Twitter that Norman Chad started regarding sleeper picks to win the main event. And Shane Schlager confessed to the public that despite being known as a good no-limit player himself, who goes back many years, that he was 0 for 16 in the main event lifetime. He'd never cashed it. Then Ari came out and confessed that he had a similar record. He was 0 for 14. It surprised people to see that you had guys like Shane Schlager and Ari Engel who had never cashed the main. You know, you know, I think one reason might be, I mean, many years ago, I took one of his uh, training courses, and um, it was it was really good. 
he he is actually a very aggressive player. Uh, if he thinks you're weak, he will attack. And the, I think maybe that style just doesn't really suit the main event with the two-hour levels. You know, I had wondered that, and uh, I, I only have a short sample of playing with him, and this was at the Big 50 three years ago. But uh, I did get moved to his table at the Big 50 near the end of, uh, I think it was day two. And it is true that I witnessed somebody playing a lot of hands and being very aggressive. However, uh, that player was not him. It was me. (laughs) It was funny. He's like, Drop, I didn't know you were like this. I didn't know you had this in you. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, it uh, it was a combination of me getting a lot of hands and me just kind of being aggressive there. It was just kind of an aggressive mood, I guess. But uh, he actually didn't, though. He was in barely any hands. So maybe he just got trash dealt to him. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe, maybe he's changed his style. Yeah, maybe. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, but I don't I know. know. I, like, the way I was playing, I was kind of expected to see out of him. And then I guess the way he was playing, he was expecting to see out of me. It was kind of reverse. It's like we reversed personalities for a second. But uh, that, that was just one event. It was a short time. Though I remember I had to make a really tough lay down in that one that where, where I, had a, I had a boat and it was against a woman who raised me. And uh, she had a bigger boat, something like that. But I knew, like, who it was that there was no chance she was raising me with worse. And so I, I had to lay it down. And, and then she showed it, and I was right. But anyway, f- forget that. I'm, I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I wondered that, too, if he was being aggressive with players that he thought were weak and then would run into real hands, or if it was just running bad. I didn't know. But whatever it is, he must be doing something right this time. Because, as you said, he's running very deep right now, and he's been doing well the whole way in this uh, main event. So he's finally got that monkey off his back. It appeared Shane Schlager was going to also, but Shane got involved in some big pot. I don't know the details, but he he got involved in a big pot, about 70 from the money, and busted. So he missed it again, and he was really mad at himself. He he tweeted that, and... uh, uh, Shane actually said, and he wasn't joking, that he almost went to some crappy room on Fremont Street and uh, did cocaine all night. Shane's very open with the fact that he does a lot of drugs. And he almost really did just go drown himself in cocaine for the night, but then he happened to run into a buddy and they just hung out that night and smoked some pot and ate some burgers or something. (laughs) And he he thanked the guy for stopping him from going into a cocaine binge over what happened. But uh, anyway, back to Ari Engel. Uh, He didn't have to worry about the cocaine binge because he's still in it. And you said he's uh, like 69th out of one something. Yeah, and he actually just—he has 2.7 million. He actually just lost 600,000, I think, on near like that's showing his last chip count thing. Uh, so he was up like around 57th or whatever, but still, um, you know, excellent, excellent job for him. And you—you you were mentioning how he's actually homeless and um, you know living off tournaments and. Yeah, I I honestly believe that it's less than one percent of the tournament players can do that on a sustained basis for like years at a time, like win enough at every tournament they play, or you know, on the average to keep living in hotels. Like, I mean, you might get somebody that binks a tournament, and then within a year they you know they piss it all away because they just play all these large buy-ins and lose it all. Yeah, it it gets and it gets expensive. You're right to stay in tournaments uh, and in hotels, traveling and you know, paying for the flights and the, all the food and all the uh, hotels. It, it is something that that expense really adds up. So you have to be 
winning at a decent clip to even be able to support that, let alone uh, you know accumulate money doing so. So that uh, shows you how well Ari must be doing. And uh, by the way, the average is pretty high right now because there's only 139 left out of 8,663 entrants, which, by the way, is not a record. It fell a little bit short of the Jamie Gold year in 06. But uh, the, the average stack right now is 3.7 million. So are, he, are you counting the uh, chips in that girl's pocket too? Yeah, or, <laughs> or a, Scotty or the Scotty Wynn's uh, pocket. Yeah, there, there, there are two different <laughs> pockets involved in this. Well, we'll get to those later in the show. But yeah, there are two different pockets involved. Uh, before I I go there, um, did you ever were you able to ever get a hold of that guy that I had mentioned to you? I I, I talked to him some, but then I haven't heard what happened since. Yeah, this is someone who had money stolen out of his uh, room or chips stolen out of his room, like worth five. He made a post on Facebook. Uh, I, I don't think you're friends, but um, did he give you a summary of what happened? Or yeah, he, he was, was he going to do an interview late at a later date or what? We we had talked about it, it just didn't happen. So uh, we can oh, still do okay. it. I mean, uh, I wonder if there's I any think updates. He's interested here. in outing them, that's for sure. Okay, well, we can definitely do that. And and now his situation is going to be tougher than the one we helped with uh, William Stonstegard, who had his room double checked in and a guy stole, and then they didn't mm-hmm. want to make it right because. At least they admitted they double-checked the guy in, and they admitted the guy took things. They just didn't believe how much he said got taken and didn't want to give him the whole money. So Mm -hmm. uh, they were shamed into giving the rest of this. Here, when you say, oh, well, someone just stole this from me, but I can't prove I ever had it, and I can't prove it was stolen, that becomes much tougher. But there's still things that can be done here. So uh, I I would like to talk to him further. By the way, I'm I'm browsing through the list of who's still in of names I recognize. And I'm not up to all the known names these days. I only follow tournament poker lightly but uh, i see uh, aaron mermelstein is in with a good stack he's got uh, seven million he's a good player i did uh, put a beat on him three years ago at the main on day one he got moved to my table i had a great starting table that day he got moved near the end of the day which i wasn't thrilled to see uh, at my table but i it like checked around the the flop and then i bet the turn I think it was like a like a three suit board too. I, I I had like nothing but a gut shot, and I bet the turn, and he called with some strong hand, like believing I had something huge, and then I hit a gut the gut shot on the river. So I ended up uh, beating him, and he was very frustrated. But um, uh, before I go here, are you are you? I missed the intro. Are you going to talk about the Matasau blow up too? No, that's actually not even on there. The Matasau blow up. I, I, we we can talk about it in a second. I'm just I'm going through the list here. Uh, we I see that uh, Kenny Tran. Remember that name, a hero caller, Kenny Tran, who I used to play with at Commerce back in the day too. He is uh, in with a, a pretty good stack with 6.2 million. Uh, Taylor Van Kriegenberg, good uh, good tournament pro. He's in this still. With uh, 4.8 million, uh, Corey Aldemir, former, uh, uh, didn't he make uh, like he he didn't win? Did he was either like wasn't he like second or third or did he win? I'm forgetting if he won. He may have won. Forgetting if he was did he win the the World Series or the main event? He either won or so. got very deep. I think he got. I think he was one of the final tableists, like one of the top two or three. Of Rast course, our, is in, Brian Rast is in. 93. Yeah, Brian Rast. We've got uh, Ari Engel, of course. Uh, Jake Abdallah, known as Jay Lama. He's still in with uh, $2.5 million. Uh, let's see who else we have. Um, Daniel Sunig is a Atlantic City player. $2.2 2 Dan and, Smith. No, Dan Smith's there. Yeah. 
and he, he won a bracelet this year, in fact. Asher Conniff, I haven't heard that name in a while. He's in with $1.6 million. And let's see who else I recognize. We're coming near the end here. Marco Johnson, who is a key figure in the Absolute Poker scandal, not someone who did anything wrong. He was a key figure in outing it when uh, it was he was the one who got beaten by Pot Ripper with a 10-high call, the infamous 10-high against his 9-high. So he's in there. And he's near the bottom of the stacks, but he's you know, he's got a shot. He's got over a million still. And uh, that looks like it as far as people I uh, recognize. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, Jake Schindler, accused cheater Jake Schindler, a lot of people are cheering that he is knocked out in uh, 166. A lot of people rooting against it, him. Didn't Bryn Kelly have a big deep run? Yes, Bryn Kenny and yeah. uh, Jake Schindler and Ali Imtravik were all doing well. So people were really annoyed to see this. And uh, like he was the chip leader in day three or something, wasn't he? Um, he was. Yeah, he at one point he was the chip leader, and then uh, I think even at one point Martin Zamani was doing well. <laughs> so, so people were like, "Oh, can, can any of these cheaters lose finally?" Like at least none of them seem to be now down to the in the final. Uh, 150 it looks like uh, 139 yeah so that's good so let's talk we can talk a little bit about Mattisau as a bonus topic uh Mattisau, in fact i saw him i saw him and spoke to him after day one and uh we were we were talking about a number of things he approached me as i uh i wasn't out yet i had just finished my disappointing day one where i only had 45k at the end and Mattisau told me that he had a good day one and he said that that he played not that well until the good pros were moved to his table. I guess he got a good table draw but then some good pros got moved there after the fish busted and then it became a tough table and he told me he played very well once the good pros got moved there and he said you watch this is going to be huge I'm going to this is going to be a huge year for me this is going to be it you're going to see and uh, he tried to give me some words of encouragement about my stack. Say, oh, you still have uh, plenty of time, still have plenty of blinds to play here, don't worry about it, it, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, he talked about how last year's winner had something like that to end the first day, so he was, he was trying to make me feel better, which I appreciate. And, uh, and then I, I wasn't really following him of what he was exactly doing after that, other than seeing he was, like, he finished day two with, with a decent stack also. And then... He had the uh, the blow-up hand, which a lot of people are talking about. So I guess since you brought it up, we might as well discuss it. So he did cash. He got uh, he ended up in 677th place, and they paid what, something like uh, more than 1,000 spots. So he wasn't even that close. 1,300. Cl- yeah, yeah. So he, he, he made it through more than half, almost half the field after the bubble burst so he wasn't anywhere near the bubble but this obviously wasn't what he was looking for the 21,000 cash when he was uh he was really going for the the deep run and he was convinced this year was going to be his year and in uh, the main so obviously i'm sure he was very disappointed but the the hand everybody's talking about is where he put in a uh, he put someone's tournament life to the test with a bluff and the guy well, he he played the hand fine until the river. Yeah, so he he had a uh, seven, but he did not have the ace of clubs. And the board was queen five five with two clubs, 
four of hearts in the turn, king of clubs on the river, and uh, his opponent had nine eight of clubs. So his opponent did have to think about: Does Mattisau possibly have a boat or better flush? So it's not like it's an obvious uh, call. The opponent has to think about it. But uh, what happened was there, there was 162,000 in the pot. The blinds were 6K, 12K. And, of course, uh, Mattisau only had ace high. So he led out for uh, 70,000. And uh, then this opponent raised to 175. So what a lot of people thought is at that point, Mattisau should have said, okay, well, it was a good try, but obviously this guy's got something, so time to toss it. However, I, th- I think he would have had about would I think we had had about like three hundred twenty or three hundred thirty thousand left, which isn't a lot, but he still would have had chips. Right. So that's what happened. And what what's what's really important in this story is not only well, the guy that he was betting into, like had I don't know like a million and a half or like he had a huge amount of chips at that time, and when Madison goes all in for the bluff. It literally was like a min click. It was like a min raise. And the guy had a million chips, like or almost two million chips. So it's like even if your flush is not that great, it's it's a min raise. Right. It, the, the the guy didn't it wasn't for this guy's tournament life, it's for Mattis's tournament life. So that's that's what it was, is that this guy it's not like the guy knows he's going to the rail if he calls and loses, which is it's a lot easier to make the call then. And so the guy did. The guy uh uh the guy had to call another uh Two hundred twenty-five thousand, uh, and because remember, Mattisau made it seventy thousand. The opponent went one seventy-five, so it's another hundred five that got raised by the opponent. And Mattisau had three twenty left behind. So Mattisau could have just folded, knowing his bluff failed, and kept three twenty k, as you said. But uh, for the opponent to call, since he already had a hundred more in than Mattisau had originally put, the opponent only had to call two twenty-five k from his uh, 175 he already put in and had a million still in his stack, or almost yeah. a million. So It's a no-brainer. So, yeah, that's what, that's what I would think. So the guy did tank, but he did call, and uh, I agree with you that uh, up till the river it, it was fine, but that uh, I, this is really one of these spots, and this is always how I felt about the main event, is that it's fine to bluff, and it's fine if you think the person, if you think a scare card hit or something and you might get someone to lay it down, and you want to run some kind of bluff on someone, fine. But you shouldn't risk your tournament life on a bluff because there's there's too many times you're going to get called, especially by somebody who will be fine either way, even if they lose to you. Then it's a lot easier for them to call there. And uh, so here's what Mattisau said about it. He said, well, I know many of the poker world will ridicule my sick suicide bluff, but nobody understood my image and how tight I was playing. By him raising River, he opened... He opened up me for betting all in on River, where he only beats someone on a suicide bluff who had folded every hand for two hours. I appreciate so many top players reaching out to me and telling me how awesome of a bluff that was, how everyone would have snapped folded. See, I, I don't agree with that, though. No uh, way. When Sean Deeb says I'm bluffing there a zero out of one million times, then I know I made the right play. It just wasn't my time. Lots of WSOP left. What I've found at the World Series of Poker is that People have a hard time doing tough laydowns unless they are going to bust the tournament. If they're going to have chips left, and I don't mean like crippled chips. I mean like they have a a playable stack left if they call and lose. It is hard to get them to lay down 
pretty good hands. So that is why I don't like to make those type of bluffs because you get called too often. In fact, a lot of times when I run up to a big stack, it is thanks to people making calls where I have a big hand and they just can't let the hand go. So that's the the, the other side of this is that if you're going to bluff them when they've got something pretty good, then they're usually not going to lay it down, if especially if their tournament life is not at stake. And that's what happened here. And it doesn't matter how tight you are because I mean, it matters some, but it matters less than you think from what I've seen. Well, it's, and especially in, like, I've never played the main event, but in the main event from what I've seen is especially on rivers, and if people are betting, it's a very high percentage chance that they have it. That they have it, or if, especially if you bet and they raise you on the river. Well, exactly. Raising rivers in general, I mean, it almost never happens as a bluff. I mean, it can, but in the main event, people aren't going to be raising rivers with nothing. Yeah. Now, with that said, I will say in day one of the main event, I was you know the same guy who, who busted against me with the kings against my aces. That guy actually did try a bluff river raise against me, which I tank called and won. Uh, but uh, the difference was that... Uh, this wasn't for this guy's tournament life. This guy had uh, more chips than me, and I was the one short-stacked, and, and people kept seeing me fold to aggression because I just was never getting anything. So I had to sit and think for a little bit, but uh, but I called him, and I won. But you know, had this guy put me all in, I, I would have laid it down. Or had he put himself all in or put me all in, I would have laid it down. But it was that uh, had he lost this, this was not going to be the end for him or near the end for him. So when I thought about it, I said, you know, this the, the play of this hand didn't make much sense. I just don't believe he has me. And I called and I won. So, yes, I made a correct hero call there. And I also made a correct hero call on day two at my first table. So I did make two hero calls. But uh, I, uh, both on the river, I got raised. But at the same time, when, when uh, you... you uh, I, I will say that usually when people raise the river, they they have it. And uh, if you don't think they have it, calling them is one thing, but re-raising them for all of your chips is another. And that's the big problem. Well, and and if Mattisau had enough, let's say he was crazy enough to pull that bluff and he had the other guy covered, I'm positive that guy's folding. Yes, I agree with you. Right. That this guy, exactly, because the guy's tournament life is at stake and he's got a lot of chips and he's like, I'm not going to chunk off my good stack on this nine high flush on a paired board. So, all right. But, but also, if he had him covered, he probably would have folded because he said, well, I got more than enough chips to keep going. I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying here yeah. the, the, that if the guy, if Mattisau had this guy covered and this guy, this guy's choices were call and bust or call and double, he, he may not want to do that with a nine high flush with a paired board, but, but not where he only has to call another 225K when he's got a million total sitting I in know. a stack. So, yeah, I agree with you. So yeah, that uh, I I think Mattisau put too much value on the fact that he had not played a hand in a long time, and I've been there too. Believe me, I'm not uh, I'm not like a super loose player at the table. So there are times where I go through trash hands, and I just fold, 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 and it looks like I have nothing. And then when I do play, it looks like I must be uh, really raising with something, and I must look I must look very strong in the hands I do play there. So I, I can understand where you think everyone's looking at you that way, but still. Your opponents do get hands sometimes, 
And especially if you, you're not going to do a lot of damage to their stack, they're not going to lay down a flesh against you. There's no chance. So I, I, don't, I don't understand these people who are claiming that this would have worked. So uh, a guy named Golf and Dogs, I don't know who that is, but Golf and Dogs said this on Twitter. I think Mike needed another 150 or 200K to pull this off, but the fact that the opponent tanked so long with the chips he had tells you the play was fine. I don't know Mike's reads and opponents or what holdings opponents had been showing down. But then a person named uh, Turned Quads responded saying, common misconception is that somehow making someone sit there a while before calling means it was a good bluff. You gain absolutely zero chips when people think for a while. The only thing that matters is if they call or fold. Exactly. See, I was going to say that, that there have been times where I have sat and thought about it when I'm about 90% in one direction, but I just don't want to make the move just yet. So just because you're thinking doesn't mean that you were close to the other side of the decision. And there have been a number of times, if, in fact, this World Series, where I made the move I thought I was going to make as soon as uh, the person acted and I had to respond, but I sat there for a little bit thinking about it. So they may have thought when they were trying to bluff me that I was going to lay it down, but the truth was like I was kind of sitting there like 85 90% thinking, okay, I'm going to call here. And then I do call, and they may think, oh, wow, I almost got it through. And I'm kind of, if, if they were, they were wrong because the whole time I'm thinking I'm probably going to call this. So that, I, I bet that's what was happening here is the guy was thinking, okay, this is the main event. I've got, you know, I can't just rashly act, but I can't see myself laying this down. And he didn't. Also, I, th- I think sometimes Mattisau, I think the way he was describing it is what I would say, and a lot of people would say, he's, he was out-leveling himself by his thinking. He was his, – his leveling was so deep, like – Oh, I'm so tight, and I know it's a suicide bluff because the guys—it's only a min raise, and that's going to make everybody think to fold. And like he outleveled himself, and he just—you know—if you get back to the basics, the guy's got a flush, and it's only a min raise, and yeah. he's got a million chips left. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. That's uh, and that's where people will get themselves into trouble. Is they'll they'll, uh, they'll think too deeply about a situation or how their opponent will look at the situation when the very basics of it is that you're probably going to get called. So, yeah, I, I we agree on this one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Mike, he cashed last year. He cashed this year. He uh, obviously uh, has a lot of poker talent and a uh, very good player. But, uh, you know, he made a mistake here. So that's the way Okay, it goes. I'm out. I'll talk to you later. All right. Yeah, bye. Talk to you later, yeah. I forgot to tell. I told Matt this in DM, but uh, Matt brings gifts every year. I see him from Canada. He brings uh, Canadian items that you can only get there. And something he's been bringing every year are these uh, maple cookies. They're like uh, they're maple, and then they have some filling in the middle. And uh, Benjamin really loves these. <laughs> so I ate. Most of the first package Matt gave me over the time I was at the World Series before I came back, and then I still had a full package that wasn't opened. And not only did Ben finish that first package, but I felt bad about even eating the second. So I uh, saved the second for him and gave it to him. So Ben really loves those uh, maple cookies that Matt brought. So I thank him for that. And very nice guy, Matt the Rat. I spent time with him. We both got uh, covid at the same time, early in the World Series, neither of us had it uh, very severely, though mine was more mild than his. So, okay, that was our bonus topic with Mattisau. We have so many topics tonight. We have a bonus topic in there. Oh, my goodness. All right, so moving on. A person made it very deep in the main and is still in. 
who just is not getting the attention that I feel that she deserves. And every once in a while, you come upon a story of someone in the main event that I think really should be promoted for the sake of poker. Now, one of the best stories that we've ever seen that was promoted for the sake of poker and made poker very successful was Chris Moneymaker's story. If you remember, Chris Moneymaker was an everyman in every sense of the word. He was an accountant from Tennessee. He was not a poker pro. He didn't have a lot of money. He entered a satellite on Poker Stars for 40 bucks, won a main event seat, and came and played in his first main event in 2003 and won it for $2.5 million. And his last name was Moneymaker. And he looked like an average guy. He was an average guy in every sense of the word. So people looked at Chris Moneymaker with the perfect name for this, of course, and they thought, wow, I could be him. Chris Moneymaker didn't come off as somebody that you couldn't be, that you couldn't aspire to be, that you couldn't become yourself or you couldn't be lucky enough to be. He wasn't someone who was intimidating or seemed to be different from you. He just seemed like a regular guy who took 40 bucks and made it into 2.5 million via poker. And that was a very big reason for the poker boom. It also helped that he was a good ambassador for the game. He was a nice guy. He was mild-mannered, didn't have any scandals. You know, so uh, that helped too. And of course, the poker on TV was very big with the whole cards on the WPT and the WSOP. So a number of factors came together to cause the 2000s poker boom. But Chris Moneymaker was a very big part of it. And a big part of that was the fact that he was an average guy. Well, I see a female version of Moneymaker playing right now. But she's not getting very much attention, and I don't understand it. A girl named Shelby Wells, exactly as it sounds, Shelby Wells is her name, is currently deep in the main event. Shelby Wells is a country girl from Kentucky. And if you don't believe me that she's a a country girl from Kentucky, you can go take a look at her Twitter. Her Twitter is Lauren, that's L-O-R-E-N, Schleby, not Shelby, but it's it's like transpose, S-H-L-E-B-Y. So Lauren, L-O-R-E-N, S-H-L-E-B-Y. Like Lauren Schleby. Or it should be Lauren Shelby, but I get, maybe that was taken. I don't know. But uh, she had a whopping $684 in lifetime poker tournament caches prior to this main event. Not 684000 684 That was her entire... Hendon Mob database of tournament caches prior to this. She was from Kentucky. And if you take a look at her Twitter, you will see things such as a picture of her fishing in 2015 in what looks like a local lake somewhere. You'll see that in January of 2022, she was tweeting about how you can get internet for $30 a month if you qualify by your income. She said, I make decent money, but still got approved since my household has three people in it. So she actually got approved for low-income internet this year in January. So how is she in the main event? Well, remember I talked about Nadia Magnus, the woman who was running a contest to give away a free main event seat to a female and that there was some controversy even though she's run this contest for a while, for the first time there was controversy because Bryn Kenny offered a second seat 
right after his uh, cheating scandal and that people thought that he was using this contest to improve his image, that he was basically piggybacking off of uh, Nadia's very well-regarded contest to get uh, women into the main event for free by offering a seat to rehabilitate his image, and people gave Nadia a hard time about this, but she was very stubborn and said, too bad, I'm taking the seat anyway and giving it away. Well, I'm not sure which seat that was won, if it was uh, the one Bryn gave or the one that Nadia was giving in the first place, but one of those two seats was won by Shelby Wells, and by I say one, it's not like a tournament or anything. Like they, they submit some things to her, and she decides based upon some criteria who gets it. I'm not exactly sure how the whole thing works, but uh, one of the recipients of the seats was Shelby Wells. And I have to imagine that uh, yeah, she has a good story. She, this is someone who wants to take a shot at it, a country girl from Kentucky who's uh, not at all a poker pro and just really wants to come to, to Vegas and uh, take a shot at playing the main event, which otherwise she couldn't play. And uh, she has a pretty charming Twitter. Uh, she has completely different politics than I do, so politically we disagree. But uh, uh, it's it's a pretty uh, like charming country girl Twitter, and uh, she's got kind of a brash personality. Uh, oddly enough, she actually has a picture she posted of herself from a few years ago growing shrooms in her home. She posted that picture in February of this year, but apparently it's an old picture. But she posted a picture of herself growing shrooms. She has a number of pet bunnies that she keeps in her backyard. And she's posted pictures of them on her Twitter. Uh, There's one bunny that she has a picture of herself holding and videos of this bunny. So she's very into bunnies. And listen to this. Uh, Maybe Justin Bonomo should meet her. This was in... February of 2022, she tweeted, It's so crazy to me that there are still people who think open relationships are stupid or for people who lack self-respect and are lying about enjoying it. It's 2022. Like, even when I was 14, before having been in a relationship, I was like, yeah, polyamory is clearly peak human companionship. It just makes so much more sense. LOL, like, you don't have to be down for it personally, but to act like it's stupid or immoral is just wrong. Also, I have actually never been in an open relationship, LOL. And even then, I can still acknowledge that open relationships are just so clearly the right way to do it, LOL. So this is kind of weird. She's like pro-open relationship, but she hasn't been in one. And I don't know if she would be, but she's kind of like, it looks like the right thing. I just haven't done it. So I guess she likes them in theory. But still, maybe Justin Matamo should meet her. Uh, she's 27 years old from what I can see. She, I... I don't see her age publicly disclosed anywhere, but that's what I found when I looked it up. And she looks like somewhere around there. And yeah, she looks like what you'd expect. She's not a bad looking girl, but she, she kind of looks like a Kentucky country girl. And you see her fishing and everything like this is exactly what you'd expect. Well, you would think someone like this who is uh, deep in the main and in fact, uh, has more chips than any other female in the main for quite some time, would be big news. But for some reason, nobody's paying attention to her. And even Jennifer Newell, who is a poker journalist, a very good poker journalist, and that's another person I don't agree with her politics at all, but I I respect Jennifer Newell as a person, and I think she's a good journalist. Uh, Jennifer Newell, uh, she 
really loves covering women in poker and highlighting women's accomplishments in poker. Even she didn't list uh, Shelby Wells initially when she was saying who's left in the field that's female. And that was because she didn't know who Shelby Wells was. And when she browsed through the names who were left, she thought Shelby was a dude because that name could go either way. It could be male or female. So I guess she thought it was a guy because it mostly is guys in the main event. So even she overlooked uh, Shelby Wells until someone brought her attention to Shelby. And since then, uh, Jennifer's been trying to get people's attention to her. But I think that Shelby Wells is someone who would really be great for poker. They always talk about trying to get women in the game, and I, I always see these stupid proposals. Oh, get men to treat women better. Well, first of all, that's not that easy. You can't just make all men treat women better. It's always going to fall on some deaf ears, where some men are always going to not treat women well at the table. You also have a number of women who don't treat other women well at the table, and no one wants to focus on that part of the problem. Uh, you also have uh, just... The bottom line is you can complain about it all you want on Twitter, but the people who are going to be seeing that message are not going to be the ones who need to change the behavior. Most of the people who see the message on Twitter and agree with it are going to be the ones who are already treating the women at the table well in the first place. The guys who don't treat women well at the table are not going to be reading it on Twitter and going, hmm, Justin Bonomo says we should treat women better, so I'm going to start treating women better. It doesn't work that way. So like, that's not how you get more women in poker and... The ladies' events, that does help. I think it is good that the World Series has a ladies' event to kind of introduce them into poker in a less threatening environment. But I think what really can attract women to the game is if women see someone who is succeeding that reminds them of an average woman or reminds them of themselves. So when you see Maria Ho winning, for example, uh, the average woman can't relate to Maria Ho. The average woman looks at her and says, okay, you know, Maria Ho, she's, uh, she's been around for a long time in poker, and she's pretty, and she started young, and she looks kind of high maintenance. You know, that's really not me. You know, congratulations to Maria Ho. She's a, she's a good player, and she's a pretty girl. But, you know, that's not me, most women would think. I, I couldn't do that. And you see someone who's more of an average woman who who is kind of just, you know, a, a, a Kentucky country girl with a regular job who's taking a shot and running really deep. That's a story which women can look at and say, wow, I bet I could do that too. That's the type of person you want to promote, exactly like Chris Moneymaker on the male side. Just like dudes looked at Chris Moneymaker and said, hey, I could be him. A lot of them couldn't be, but they thought they could be. I think Shelby Wells would be the same version of this. It wouldn't have the same impact because, you know, poker has had its time with a lot of people. It's never going to be as big as it was in the 2000s. But if we're going to bring women into the game, this is what needs to be highlighted. You need to bring people like Shelby Wells out into the spotlight and say, hey, look, we've got a average Kentucky country girl here who's running really deep in the main. Shelby, in fact, was humble enough to admit when she did stupid things running deep in the main event. Listen to this. She tweeted this uh, today. LMFAO, that's uh, laughing my fucking ass off. Okay, so the good news is I'm above 4 million chips. The bad news is I had a monster hand and thought I was shuffling 25k chips and put out two chips, but it was actually 100k, so everyone snap folds. <laughs> so she, she meant to put out a bet of 50, she accidentally put out a bet of 200, grabbing the wrong chips, and the bet was too big and everybody folded, and she had a monster that she wanted calls with. So she admitted that, where most people would just keep quiet if they made that mistake. She admits it right there. And then she said, then the very next hand, I'm so discombobulated by that fuck-up that I see the small blind fold, and I muck my big blind with a very good hand, not seeing that there was a limp in middle position. Ugh, it's so embarrassing. I'm embarrassed. 
Like, how many people are going to admit that? That they did this in two hands in a row? Deep in the main event. But she's admitting it. She, like, she doesn't have an ego here. She's, she's willing to admit she's made these boneheaded mistakes with, with good hands where she could have gotten more chips. So good for her. You know, I, I like her. I, I like, like reading her, her Twitter, uh, even though I can't relate to some things. I can't relate to growing shrooms. Uh, I can't relate to the the open relationship stuff. You know, like I like her. She's she's uh she's charming. She's real. She's just like an average girl from Kentucky, and she's doing well in the main, and she's still in it. She has two point six million, and is just a little bit below average in chips right now. So good. You know, I hope she goes further, and I hope that she gets more coverage. Because it's a lot more interesting to cover someone like her than the girls who are always there. Or even the ones that aren't always there. The ones that are not as kind of average as her. Like take uh, Kelly Minkin, for example. She kind of broke on the scene some years ago. But Kelly Minkin, she's a lawyer... She uh, has a few college degrees. She's obviously a very intelligent and accomplished girl, and that's great. But again, she, like you look at Kelly Minkin, she's not like an average woman. She like the average woman's not going to look at Kelly Minkin, especially if they know her story, and think, okay, that could be me. They think, oh, well, look at this girl with the multiple degrees and the law, the law degree, and uh, you know, yeah, of course she can do well in poker. So that that's. That's nice to see, but it's it's not the same thing as someone like Shelby Wells. So that's the type of person should be promoted here. And I don't know why poker media is not jumping on this. I was I was waiting, I was watching this happen. I didn't say anything till today, but I I was watching her run it up. I forgot how this even got my attention, but I I saw her running it up on Twitter and I'm like, why is no one saying anything? So finally it's it's getting a little attention, but it's not getting much. I don't get it. Anyway, good luck to her. I don't know her. I've never talked to her. Maybe when she's uh, out of this, we'll try to get her on this show. Kind of uh, fascinated by her. Definitely going to ask her about growing the shrooms. <laughs> uh, by the way, I don't agree about this open relationship thing. Let me quickly deviate from poker talk for a moment to answer what she said there. It's not so much that all open relationships are wrong. You know, if people want to do it, they can. And they shouldn't be told that they can't or or shouldn't. But uh, here, here's the truth: is that human nature brings a lot of jealousy when it comes to romantic relationships. So, in theory, you can say, "Oh, you know, it's great. Just uh, you know, why not have a few girlfriends or a few boyfriends, and then uh, this way." You don't smother the person. This way, everybody can have their own life. This way, people don't get bored. I mean, it, it can sound in theory like something with a high upside. Uh, the problem is that people get jealous. And also the problem is that people tend to be excited by what's new. So what ends up happening is whoever is uh, newer to enter the uh, open or polyamorous uh, relationship is going to get the preference and the other partner that's with them is going to be much more excited about them and the other person is going to have a very hard time not being jealous even if they're not normally jealous they they're going to have a very hard time not being jealous it's very hard to to sit there with your uh, romantic partner being super excited and glowing about somebody else and 
if that does happen, if, if you can watch that and not care, then there's a good chance you also don't care too much about them in the first place. So I've seen, like, really no polyamorous relationships last. I've seen this where uh, either one side is pressuring the other to do it and they will reluctantly go along with it, or where both people enter it kind of doing so because they either are afraid of commitment or their relationship is dying anyway, and this is like a last gasp to save it, where like the options seem to be either we break up or we do this. But ultimately, it never works. It never survives. I'm not saying no one ever has done it successfully. I'm saying it's a lot tougher than it looks. And I think very few human beings are capable of maintaining this in the long term and being happy and without jealousy getting in the way. That's just what I think here. And this is one of these that would seem a lot better in theory than it actually works in practice. And that's because humans are not emotionless robots that can just turn off any kind of jealousy or concern that they're being seen as, as secondary. So I think, uh, I think Shelby shouldn't uh, attempt to do that. I think she should uh, stick to the poker and the shrooms. All right, so good luck to her. And I'll, when she's done with I don't want to bug her right now, but when she's done with this, I'll see if she wants to come on this show. I want to hear more about her. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number you can call or text from the 651. I got 100% agree. Not sure which uh, thing he's talking about. I think he's talking about Shelby being someone who should be promoted because he sent this uh, six minutes ago. Probably not about the open relationship, so maybe that too. So if you want to text anything, if you're listening right now live, 775-372-8355, or if you're listening in the archives, you want to comment. Obviously, I can't answer you during the show if you comment after I've done with the show, but you are welcome to comment anyway, and I will answer you later. Let's move on here. Do you remember when we had Luke Vrabel, who's also known to some people as Slay, Remember we had him on the show? He was kind of drunk, but uh, he had a story that got my attention five years ago, and I didn't know him, but I felt that he was wronged, and I wanted him to come on here, and I wanted to state my opinion. It was kind of a complicated situation, but when I looked at the whole thing, and when the smoke all cleared, I really felt that he got screwed. So he was at a final table of the Colossus, which is a big deal. That's a huge event. This is when the Colossus was a much bigger field event before it got replaced by other beginning-of-the-series low-buy-in events. It still exists now, but it doesn't get the field that it used to. But this is when it was huge. So he was playing for very big money. He's at the final table, which is a big accomplishment in such an event. And uh, Matt Affleck was there. Matt Affleck had a big rail, including his girlfriend. And Matt Affleck's rail was apparently very obnoxious. Now, I've played with Matt Affleck before, and he was very pleasant. He was a nice guy when I played with him. But this was not at a final table. This was at, uh, I think, like 40 left in the event when he was with me. This is a different event. And he was fine, but there was no rail there. But the rail apparently was very loud and obnoxious. And I don't see anyone disputing this. I It, it seems like it is agreed that what happened there was that he had a very loud and obnoxious rail, and that in particular his girlfriend was especially loud and obnoxious. And for whatever reason, his girlfriend was giving a hard time to Luke and kept yelling at him and uh, 
it, it was distracting to him. Luke didn't like this. He's trying to concentrate on this final table and has Matt Affleck's girlfriend yelling at him and other people on the rail yelling at him, and he, he, he wants them to stop. So I think that's totally reasonable. I would want the same thing if I were in that same spot. Now, the problem is Luke Vrabel is a very outspoken guy, and he tends to get uh, riled pretty easily. So he didn't just uh, politely approach the floor man and say, hey, you know what, these people are kind of loud here. Uh, would, would you be nice enough to ask them to calm down? Like He immediately went to the floor man and was like, you know, why the fuck are you letting them yell at me like this? Why are you letting them do this? Why don't you get control? So I do believe he probably approached the floor man kind of rudely. But the bottom line is he was right. He was right that he should be able to play in peace. People are allowed to have a rail, but the rail should not be harassing any players. And it it does appear that Matt Affleck's girlfriend and his friends were harassing him when he was trying to play. And that should not be allowed. They should be told on the rail, stop it. Stop, you know, quiet down. If you want to cheer when Matt wins a hand, great, but uh, don't have your rail heckle people. That's what should have been told to Matt Affleck's rail but that was not told. What happened is it became a battle of egos between Luke and the floor man. And so what the floor man was concentrating on was that Luke was being rude to him and demanding, not that Luke was being abused by the rail when he was trying to play for a lot of money. So it kept escalating, and uh, eventually uh, Luke got a, a penalty for this, I believe, and then Luke started bashing this floor man relentlessly on Twitter, which then resulted in a Caesars ban. So he could not come on Caesar's properties, and he could not play the World Series of Poker. And this happened five years ago, and they would not reverse it. And the justification given was that uh, Luke was just being uh, inappropriate on Twitter and just saying all these awful things about the floor man, and you can't treat Caesar's employees like this, and that uh, you're going to get yourself banned if you behave this way. So, all right, I'm not going to defend everything Luke said and did after the fact, or even the some of the rudeness that he uh had exhibited to the floor man at the time it was happening. However, the bottom line is he was right. He was right in the initial argument, and he was being affected by what was happening. It wasn't just something that was mildly irritating to him. He was playing for a lot of money, and he was getting bashed relentlessly by Matt Affleck's rail. He couldn't concentrate, and that's not right. So that should supersede everything else. Even if they want to say, okay, Luke, you know, you, you can't talk to floor men like this and you can't write what you did on social media if you want to stay here. I could understand giving him a warning like you can't do this again, even if you don't agree with the decision. But a big mistake was made by the floor man by not handling the matter that was going on. And the, the floor man should have put his ego aside and said, even if I think Luke is a jerk, we've got to, we've got to calm down this rail. We've got to stop this. That. That was a big mistake, and, and Luke got screwed in two ways. Number one, they, uh, they, they didn't get control of the rail, and number two, uh, Luke ended up getting banned. So I had him on this show because I, I supported his unbanning. I felt he was uh, treated unfairly here. Even if he wasn't an angel in the whole thing, he was treated unfairly. That was how I felt then. That was how I feel now. I kind of forgot about him, for the most part, for about two years. And then in uh, 2019, during the main event, he came up with kind of a funny gimmick where anybody who busted, he would write some sort of uh, degrading tweet to them and then say, hit the showers and put a little emoji uh, of a shower head. And it was funny. It was it was funny and people really enjoyed it and people thought it was funny. And uh, unfortunately, he got it. Someone was 
overly sensitive and complained about him to Twitter, reported him to Twitter, and he actually got his account banned, and he had, he had to make a second account to shower people, which, which is so lame that someone would make a deal about that. Like, uh, these were uh, entertaining. I mean, they were a little insulting to some people, but that was the whole point. It was kind of like a roast. It was like it was like a roast for each person busting the main event. And you had to understand, like, not to take it personally, that it was just uh, it was for comedy's sake. And I was really enjoying reading these when he was doing them. And... Uh, I, I was a big fan of the of the showering tweets in 2019, and I was going deep in 2019, so I was waiting for my uh, showering. But uh, what happened was, uh, I believe, I, I, and I even sent him five bucks at one point. He was asking everybody to send him five bucks, and I actually sent him five bucks, which I usually would never do, because you know there's, there's a reason why I'm not going to send someone, a stranger to me, that I'm not going to send him five dollars for Twitter content. You know, Twitter's a free platform. I'm not just handing five bucks to people. I know five bucks isn't much, but I'm not just giving you five bucks because you're making funny tweets. But you know what? I was sitting there at the main event enjoying this. It's putting me in a good mood. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I like this. I'm going I'm to reward him for it. So he's asking for five bucks. You know, I'll give him five bucks. So I sent him five bucks. I don't remember what even happened, but we had some kind of thing where he got pissed off at me. And not only did I never get showered, but I got blocked. I actually got blocked uh, by him. And then he, he wrote something nasty about me. And uh, I'm like, well, what happened here? I even sent him the five bucks. What the hell? So I'm like, okay, I sent this guy the five bucks. I, I've been supportive of him about the whole band thing. Like, why is he blocking me? Well, th- then I got a message from his girlfriend. I don't know if he's still with her, but he, he I got a message from his girlfriend that when he told her that she blo- that he blocked me and that he's pissed at me, that she had a talk with him that he shouldn't block supporters like me, that I was someone who's been supportive of him the whole way and uh, had him on my show and, and advocated for him coming back, that he, that he shouldn't uh, block his supporters, he should be, appreciate them. So he actually unblocked me at that point. <laughs> but wait, it's not done. Uh, we kind of had a, a, a checkered relationship on Twitter for a while. And at one point, we were even uh, arguing back and forth, I think as recently as like 2020. But you know what? Even when the guy was kind of a jerk to me, I couldn't bring myself to hate him. I couldn't even bring myself to dislike him. There, there was just something that was uh, appealing about him. I just, I just could never dislike the guy, even when I wanted to. There were times I wanted to. There were times I really wanted to dislike him especially when he blocked me after I sent him five bucks. But uh, I still couldn't bring myself to dislike him. Eventually, he came around and said, you know what? You've always been supportive of me. You know what? Uh, I'm going to stop being a jerk to you, too. So, like, since then, we've gotten along. And he still wasn't unbanned. He still could not play the World Series. And he was quite bitter about it and would always bash Caesars and bash the World Series and... He was very frustrated that he'd have to watch on Twitter all these people playing the World Series, which he he really wanted to still play and couldn't. Some people spoke up on his behalf. Even Poker Bunny spoke up on his behalf, but it fell upon deaf ears. It looked like the World Series of Poker staff, tournament director Jack Effel and the others were not interested in reversing his ban. It looked like it was here to stay. I mean, it was five years. Then enter Nikki P., Nicholas Palma. Nicholas Palma has a rather uh, flawed reputation himself. I mean, pretty damn flawed. Uh, Apparently, he borrowed money he didn't pay back. And let me say there's a lot of uh, 
financial issues involving Nicholas Palma, known as Nicky P, and a lot of people bash him. The uh, the Massey brothers just always lay into him, and there's parody accounts on Twitter making fun of him. So Nicky P is often a punching bag on Twitter, and Nicky P also blocks a ton of people. In fact, Nicky P started blocking people who were just following the parody accounts of his. Even if you've never said anything bad to Nicky P, he blocks you for even following accounts that make fun of him. I was blocked a long time ago because of some things that were written on Poker Fraud Alert. I didn't write them, but they were written up there, and uh, he didn't like that, so I was blocked. Well, Nicky P., who, as I said, by no means has a stellar reputation, he went to Jack Effel and had a conversation about Luke Rabel and unbanning him. And others have tried this before. Others have tried to go to the World Series and say, hey, you know, why don't you unban Luke? And the answer is no, we're not doing it. So what, what chance does Nicky P have, right? Like what influence does Nicky P have? But nevertheless, Nicky P was uh, attempting to do it. And then he tweeted that he was having a very productive conversation with Jack Effel about the matter and that it was looking good, that he's not promising anything. But it was looking good. He was also trying to start a Twitter campaign to get Luke unbanned. Nikki P tweeted on July 5th, if you see Jack Effel today at Bally's, message me ASAP. I got to track him down for for Slay Abita ZOTL, which is his uh, Luke's Twitter. Enough is enough. Justice one time. And write to WSOP Poker News today. Let's get Slay in there tomorrow. So he's trying to say, let's let's find Jack Effel. I will go talk to him. This is what Nikki P is saying. And I'm going to try to get him unbanned so he can play the main tomorrow. This is on July 5th, referring to day 1D of the main that he was hoping that uh, Luke could go play if he gets unbanned. But this isn't even like, what's the chance that's going to be successful? Now, people have been unbanned when very influential players have spoken on their behalf, like Phil Helmuth. But Nicky P is no Phil Helmuth, so how is he going to get it done? But then he tweeted that he had a good conversation, that he found Jack, that he had a good conversation with Jack, and that it's it's looking good. He's not sure, but it's looking good. And then, indeed, Luke was unbanned. Here's Nicky P's video he made where he's saying how happy he is that uh, Jack agreed to unban him. I tracked Jackie Ethel down and I gave him the heart to heart. I was almost crying, looking at him in his eyes. And I told him, let my friend back in. And he did it. Luke's back in, baby. Main event. I'm hopping in there right now. Wow. Freeze. As Jack Ethel walked off, he said, free slave America. I knew my job was done. Finally, one for the home team. The energy these other guys are giving us, it was obvious one was coming our way. Let's fucking go, y'all. Let's go, Lukey. One time for the good guys. I love you, buddy. Wow. I, I didn't expect that. I did not expect that he was going to get Luke unbanned where everybody else had failed. But Nikki P pulls off occasional unexpected feats when it comes to the World Series. Last year, Despite his uh, negative reputation, he was able to get Twitter all up in a panic about Tim Riley's Vax card. Remember that story? 
Remember when uh, Tim Riley was called out for using a fake Vax card after being a big anti-vaxxer and then playing the World Series of Poker of 2021 where you had to be vaxxed? Even Negreanu jumped in on this one. So Nicky P got all that going. That was his miracle of 2021. And he followed up with a bigger miracle of 2022 by getting Luke Vrabel unbanned. Indeed, Luke Vrabel entered the main event on day 1D. So Nicky P was not lying here. He really did get Luke unbanned. And how did he do? How did Luke Vrabel do in his first main event in several years, the first he could play, the first event he could play in several years? How did he end up doing? Well, the story here that would be perfect would be if Nikki P finished second and Luke finished first. But we didn't quite get there. Uh, Nikki P didn't cash, but Luke did. Luke got off to a pretty good start, and he ended up cashing. So he's not still in the event, but he did cash in his first return to the World Series. He even got an interview out of it. Listen to this. You for this new sleigh. Mainly, I've been folding every hand and waiting for aces and kings, and then doubling up uh, when I get those hands. But I've made a couple good folds. You know, a couple good folds. I really measured the zen of my hands and then played them you know there's just certain times where the zen of your hand isn't there so you just kind of let it go you say you know what i don't want to call with nines here it's 19 bigs oh you have to call slay dog but i don't (laughs) he's saying that the zen of your hand tells you whether you should call it's not just the cards you hold it's also the zen and that sometimes he would fold even when people would say he's supposed to call. Now, he also charges people to follow him on Twitter. And if you don't pay him to follow him on Twitter, remember that I paid him five bucks, but that was like as a thanks for these showering tweets. That wasn't paying to follow him. That was just like a gift that he was asking for that I gave him. Not just from me, he was asking from everybody. But he's also demanding that every year you pay him $10 to follow him or he blocks you. And he actually gets a number of people paying him. Now, I have never sent him any dues for following him, and he has not blocked me. Since uh, unblocking me three years ago, he has not blocked me. But I was wondering if he might at some point. And I was also wondering if he was going to demand money from me at some point, knowing that I hadn't paid him. So this all came to a head on July 10th. He was talking about all the stalling that was happening on the bubble, He said, really professional stalling from the fellows at my table. A lot of tables I'd be down to 20 or 22 bigs. Class stuff. Adam, my ID, I'm not sure who that is, would have enjoyed it. So I'm not sure if he's pro-stalling or anti-stalling by that tweet. And in one way, it looks like he's kind of mocking it. The other way, it looks like he's happy the stalling was happening because he was short. Then I sit back. At the 2019 Maine, the stalling was rampant in the entire room, and the floor lost control of the situation. They ended up literally missing the bubble bursting and had to track down the guy later. Congrats on the cash and return, by the way. Return meaning return to the series. So his response back to me, and keep in mind, this guy is always a character and likes to say brash and obnoxious things. So he says back to me, fuck this Slade Dog care about the 2019 main event. Pretty sure you owe me 20 bills too, Todsky. Ship it up. (laughs) The reason 20 is because he claims that inflation has caused him needing 20 from each follower, not 10. (laughs) 
So I didn't know what to say to that. I've been flying under the radar for three years without paying him. And you guys know I'm not going to pay to follow someone on Twitter. That's you know, You're talking to a very, very cheap Jew here. So I just thought maybe if I don't say anything, he'll forget about it. So I, I just didn't answer this. But hold on. He didn't forget. So he responded to his own tweet the next day saying, let's go, Todd. This ain't a drill. I want my money. Well, I wasn't having it. You know, he was the one cashing in the main. He hadn't busted yet either. So he still had a chance to win $10 million. I was the one who was out. I was the one who lost during the series. He, he cashed his only event. And that was the main. And he was still in. So I responded, and I, I was all prepared to get blocked. I didn't want to get blocked, but I was prepared to have it happen. I said, listen, buddy, you're dealing with the second cheapest Jew in poker here, only behind Kessler. That's probably true. You're the one cashing in the main and playing for $10 million while I'm running into a flop straight flush and crying into my cornflakes 300 miles away. Send the bill to my accountant, is what I said to him. However, a listener named Garrett Beckman, who's also a poker player, uh, Garrett Beckman did not want to see a rift between me and Slay and said, sending you for Todd's dues so he can keep following the best thing on Twitter for at least one more year. Venmo incoming. So so Garrett Beckman was actually going to send $20 on my behalf so this way I wouldn't get blocked. I was almost speechless. And then Mark Klang, remember him? We had him on this show. He had that uh, whole controversy of what happened when uh, he won $500,000 in a home blackjack game and they didn't want to pay him. Remember that whole thing? Uh, he apparently listens to this show now. So he's in our audience now. I didn't even know this until recently. But he wrote, this is a mensch right here, referring to Garrett, was tempted to do the same earlier, referring to you know, paying for my $20 to follow Luke, but can't even get gas for the minivan. Let's go Zen Slay, and Todd would tell us, enjoy the greatest show on earth. So then I said, wow, Slay is getting the benefit of one of my generous listeners. Kid's running so good the past week, which is true. Look at it. He was uh, unbanned after five years, thanks to Nikki P. He cashed in the main, the first event he played since the unban, and he was getting 20 bucks from one of my listeners after I wouldn't pay. Well, then Slay stepped in and said he doesn't want this guy's money, that he was actually trying to get my money. He said, ha ha, thanks, Bex, but I wanted Todd's money. I'll find a way to get it another time. I wasn't really going to block him just having fun. It's kind of a bluff, I guess. Slay wasn't really going to block me, even though he was demanding the 20 aggressively. He just was uh, making me think he would block me, but he's still trying to get 20 bucks out of me another way in the future in an unspecified uh, way and time. I know, very weird, right? You'd be probably like, what the hell's going on here? Even I ask myself that sometimes. But I'll say this. I, I'm happy for Luke that he got back into the World Series of Poker. I know this is important to him. I'm glad that he cashed in his first return to the World Series. And I'm glad that he didn't block me. Yeah, this is a, a very outspoken and sometimes obnoxious guy. But I can't ever bring myself to dislike him. And I was legitimately happy for him when I saw he got unbanned. It, it actually made me happy to see he was unbanned. Not just that the ban was wrong. I, I just wanted to see this happen for him one day. So, good job. And I guess uh, I have to give it to Nikki P. Nikki P may have some other issues, but he did good here, right? All right, let's move on. The WSOP didn't handle something well. I know you're shocked. 
I, I guess they handled the Luke thing well by unbanning him. That was good. But they didn't handle something else well, unrelated. And that was they attempted to cover something up, which would have mostly been a non-story had they not attempted that cover-up. This is really a case of the cover-up being worse than the crime, even though there wasn't an actual crime committed. There was something that happened that was not a big deal, and then the WSOP did not want this on social media and did all the wrong things. And I think this was all the fault of one woman working there. But here's a bizarre story that came out of the World Series of Poker on uh, July 3rd. This is on the... The first day of the main event was July 3rd, but this was not at the main event. This was at the uh, Mystery Bounty event. So a person named Christopher DeMassi, and he's on Twitter as DeMassi Poker, D-E-M-A-C-I underscore poker, DeMassi Poker. He tweeted this, Floor woman at WSOP threatening to disqualify players in the Million Dollar Mystery Bounty event if they post the photo of the two three of spades that just appeared on the flop. It has escalated to tournament-wide announcement and barred from all Caesars properties. This is not a bit. So what he's trying to say here is that on the flop, there were two identical cards. The three of spades appeared twice on a flop, and there's a picture of it now. They were trying to prevent this picture from going out, but it went out, of course. So there is a picture of a flop at the World Series of Poker of three of spades, three of spades, five of clubs. Now, how can that happen? That's a faulty deck. And this will occur. They have so many decks, so many thousands and thousands and thousands of decks at the World Series of Poker. Okay, they'll occasionally get a faulty one. It can happen. It has happened before. It's not a huge deal. Ideally, this wouldn't ever occur, but okay, mistakes happen. People can get over it. This would not have been a major scandal. In fact, it's happened before, and people kind of chuckle at it, and they move on. So this would have been yet another one of those stories. I would not have covered it on this show. I would not have said, okay, big story out of the World Series. There were the three of spades appearing twice on a flop. Oh, my God. Like, no. you know, it's, Maybe if it's in a major spot in a tournament, but just at some point in the mystery bounty event, who cares? It's just one of these things can happen when you have that many decks of cards that are in use, and then... They corrected and move on. That should have been all, and then this wouldn't have been a story. But remember what he was saying. He was claiming that a floor woman at the World Series of Poker was threatening to disqualify anyone if they posted that photo on social media, which is crazy. Why? Why is this a secret that this happened? Let people post it and just move on and be done with it. And then he said it escalated to a tournament-wide announcement that anyone who posts that picture is going to get banned completely from all Caesars properties. So did that really happen? Did that really happen or was this being exaggerated or maybe was the story wrong in some way? Well, first of all, if you tell poker players that you absolutely positively cannot post this picture on Twitter, what do people want to go do? Of course, they want to go post the picture on Twitter. (laughs) that's known as the streisand effect the streisand effect is where by talking about something that someone is trying to suppress that more people become aware of the story and this has to do with uh, barbara streisand when this occurred with her so sometimes the attempt to suppress a story becomes more of a story than the story itself 
if you don't want people to pay attention to something happening, you sometimes shouldn't put a tremendous amount of effort to prevent it being talked about, or otherwise that may become the story and then everyone will hear about it. So that's what happened here. This became the big story, not because there were two, three of spades on the flop, but because of the alleged effort to prevent this from being posted on social media. So, of course, with a lot of anonymous people on Twitter, they're going to post this picture. It's going to get around. People are going to post it. And Caesars can't ban them because they have no idea who some of these people are. So the person who first posted it is named LOL Taxes. So how is Caesars going to ban LOL Taxes for this? Even if they're really banning people for this, how, how are they going to ban a person named LOL Taxes? They can't. So, of course, it's going to spread around. And then it got even worse. People started just retweeting this and challenging the World Series to ban them for retweeting. And and these are like known players doing it too, not just uh, anonymous people. So pretty soon hundreds of people or more, maybe thousands of people on Twitter were talking about this. And obviously uh, Twitter cannot, uh, World Series cannot ban hundreds or thousands of people for talking about this photo or po- reposting this photo or retweeting this photo. And that's why you don't attempt this. That's one of many reasons why you don't attempt this. Gags30 who is uh, a known player from Atlantic City. He's uh, Gags30Poker, G-A-G-S-30, number 30 poker on Twitter. He posted, Chorus of boos rained throughout Bally's as they announced you risk being banned from property if you post any photos or videos from inside tournament area. Now, this is a completely different guy than this Christopher DeMasi. So now we're getting a second person saying this happened, except in a bit of a different way. He's not referring to the double three of spades in the flop, Gags is just saying that a bunch of people are booing because they just announced that you risk being banned if you post any photos or videos from inside the tournament area. And he said, it seemed to be the result of some kind of argument and possibly a knee-jerk announcement rather than something official. Then they made a second announcement, semi-rescinding and clarifying, saying that no photos with flash and no video. Now, you might wonder, why would they do that? So apparently they said at first that if you post photos or videos from the tournament area, you risk being banned from all Caesars properties. And then he said they took that back and said, actually, you can post pictures from the tournament area. It just can't be flash photography or video. So why would they even say that? You don't need flash photography or video to post that double three of spades picture. It's light enough in the tournament area. You don't need a flash. And why would you need a video? A picture does just fine. Well, I'll tell you why. The World Series of Poker is kind of funny with rights to post pictures or video of things going on over there. And that's what the media pass is somewhat about. So you can get a media pass if they deem you a credible uh, media organization. And uh, by the way, uh, Poker Fraud Alert got a pass this year. We are a credible media organization. (laughs) Don't laugh at that. We are. We are. But... Technically, you have to have a media pass to post uh, photos from the tournament area, but there's still a lot of strict rules governing what you can do. So that doesn't just give you carte blanche to walk around and uh, uh, post, uh, uh, take videos and uh, all that type of stuff. There's You still have a lot of restrictions of what you can do and where you can interview people. There's a lot of... Uh, rules even for those with a media pass. And I know about this because I get it. And I follow those rules. I'm just saying that uh, this doesn't just give you full access to everything as far as video and photography. And the reason for that is because the World Series of Poker 
has monetary agreements with partners that provide this content, such as Poker News and Poker Go. So you can't just uh, get a media pass and run around doing these things. So there's kind of two tiers of access to post things from the tournament area. Actually, kind of three tiers. So as a player, you are allowed to post pictures of hands at the table. Like I did that. Even without the media pass, I could have easily posted my bust-out hand, which I did from the Mixed Omaha event, the very last World Series hand I played this year. And I, I posted it because it was interesting, because I was all in on the flop, and uh, or all in on for the big blind, not on the flop. I was all in pre-flop for the blind, no matter what. And we we both ended up with full houses, and I lost. So I thought that was interesting, and I posted it. I, I didn't need any kind of special access or pass to post that, and anyone is welcome to take pictures of their bust-out hand or anything else like that, and the World Series doesn't care. Uh, now, as far as uh, taking pictures of people or doing interviews, uh, that type of thing, you do need a media pass, but you do have a lot of restrictions. Then you have organizations like Poker News and Poker Go that have permission to do much more and where they can do uh, video from the floor. And same with CBS. You know, they're, they're covering the World Series, CBS Sports. So that's why you have those uh, interviews with Jeff Platt and they have even more access. So you have those different tiers of access. So when it comes to flash photography and videos, they're basically saying these are things we never allow here. But have you ever heard of anyone being banned from the World Series for flash photography? Which who's using flash photography in the in the tournament room? I mean, who would? It's it's very light in there. You don't need flash photography. You're, <laughs> we're we're not outdoors at six p.m. This is inside of a brightly lit tournament room, so nobody uses flash photography in there. A flash wouldn't even do any good in there. And video. Uh, when have you ever seen anyone who was banned for posting video? And in fact, as a lot of people pointed out. We have people in the tournament room making video and posting it on the internet, such as Daniel Negreanu, such as Mike Matisau. So what about these guys? How come they can do it? So you, you really haven't seen anyone get in trouble for this and definitely not get banned. Now, maybe if a lesser known player than Negreanu or Matisau was doing videos, maybe they would approach them and say, hey, you don't have permission for this. And definitely if you walk around taking video there of tables that are not your own, they'll definitely say something after some point. But why would they have announced that? Why would they have announced that? If, if the goal is to prevent those double three of spades photos from getting around on social media, why would they say you can take pictures, you just can't take flash photography or video? What would even be the point? Well, here's what happened. And I don't know this for sure. This is my theory. But this is what I believe happened. There was one floor woman who just mishandled the whole thing. And they probably gave her a big talking to after this because it was an embarrassment and everyone was was uh, mocking them and giving them a hard time talking about the World Series after this whole incident and the way it played out on Twitter. But what probably happened is this hand went down and people started running over taking pictures of it. And she's like, oh, my God, we've got to protect the World Series uh, image we can't have this getting out on social media. Oh, I know what I'll do, she thought. I'll invoke the little known and little enforced rule about photography in here. So unless you have permission to take photos in the tournament area, we'll just remind everybody you're not allowed to do that. So this way, if they post this picture that we don't want out, 
they're violating the rule. So she didn't denounce, hey, everybody, we just had a flop with two, three of spades on it. And so don't you dare post that on Twitter and embarrass us or you're gone. She didn't say that. She was trying to cite a rule that by technicality, she felt, was going to prevent people from posting this on social media and reminded them that they could be banned from all Caesar's properties if they break it. And she probably thought she was so clever that she's invoking this little used rule and now people can't post it for that reason. Well, people pointed out to her, wait a minute, that's never been the rule. People have always been able to post pictures of their hands at the table. So then she probably looked it up and saw that what people just expressly are not allowed to do is flash photography or video. So why even put that out at that point? Well, because she was still trying to pretend she was just enforcing the general rules there, and it wasn't about this hand. So she's like, well, I tried to enforce the general rule about uh, the photos, but then it turns out that's not actually a rule. So let me try to make it sound better so we weren't actually covering it up. I'm going gonna, gonna to make it sound like we were just reminding people of the rules, and so we'll correct this. So attention, everybody. You actually can take pictures in here, just no flash photography and no video. So yeah, CP, people, all we were doing was just trying to cite the correct rule. Nothing to do with any flop or anything that we don't want people seeing. I think that, that was the point she was trying to put out there, but of course, that just sounded weird. Like... I don't think anyone has ever been in a World Series event where they have ever announced that you're going to get banned for either posting pictures or for posting video. I've never heard that announcement once in all the events I've played, nor has anybody else that I know. This was the first time. And it's not a coincidence. They didn't make these announcements just because they decided they want everyone to know about this rule. This was an attempt to get people not to share that picture without directly saying that that's why they're citing the rule. And then the stupid thing with the flash photography in the video that was to kind of make it look like all they were doing is citing rules. But I was still wondering, like, what really happened? I'm still taking guesses here, obviously. I wasn't there. So I tweeted on July 3rd, same day, I said, if the WSOP really threatened the room with a Caesars ban for sharing a photo of a faulty deck, that's horrendous. 100% of the case of the cover-up being worse than the, quote, crime. Plus, it makes people want to share it even more. Whoever made that announcement screwed up big time. So a person named Terrence Reed responded. He said, I was there working with media. They said, do not use video or flash photography at the risk of being banned. Then the booze came. Then they said, you can take pictures, just no video or flash photography. They didn't screw up. They just reiterated their already in place policy. So I said, I wish we'd get some clarity. I have never once heard that warning in my 17 years of playing events. Something obviously made the warning happen. Do you know if this was after the double threes flop? And he said, it was indeed immediately following that flop and in direct response to it. I agree they handled it poorly, but I don't agree with people misrepresenting what was said to make their point. And I said, I always want the truth to come out. There are some haters of Caesars in the World Series who always want to embarrass them. That's not me. I will defend the World Series if people are criticizing them unfairly. He says, I appreciate that mindset, and I have it too. She did not say, don't post this pic or you're banned. She was, though, trying to discourage spreading of the photo via indirect reciting of policy. You know, just what I told you now. So my guess about what was really happening was correct. So what ended up happening here was they created far, far more outrage than there otherwise would have been because the attempt to cover this up was the big problem, not the erroneous deck itself. So some middle manager, some middle manager or floor woman there panicked that this would embarrass the World Series and tried to suppress the incident by citing a rule that is little enforced and little known. 
So you got to be careful about things like this. Now, to be clear, this was not from Jack Effel. This was not from Ty Stewart. This was not from any bigwig at the World Series. This is by some floor woman or some middle manager who thought they were helping the company and ended up uh, making a big blunder and causing a big scene on social media over it. You just can't do that. You've got to understand the poker community. The poker community is very defiant. The poker community is intelligent. The poker community is not going to be told what they are allowed to say and not allowed to say. You can't say, don't post this. Don't let anyone know this, everybody. You can ask someone not to post something. You know, if you if if you are working at the World Series and someone you have a good relationship with finds out something embarrassing to the series or the company and you say, hey, can you do me a favor and not post about this? Yeah, they may listen to you. But you can't tell an entire room of players, don't post this. And you can't try to work around it by citing some rule and hoping they get the message. You can't. All that's doing is encouraging them to make a big issue about it on social media, and then you look terrible. You can't do it. You've just got to let people post what's happening there, embarrassing or not, apologize if necessary if something looks bad, or just let it go. This they don't even have to apologize for. They could have just let it go. They don't have to answer to this. I think everybody understands that faulty decks happen. I would not have made this segment if it hadn't been for that floor woman. That's pretty big mistake there. And I'm sure she probably got a talking to from a superior going, no, 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 no. That's not how you handle the poker community. You don't, you don't say you're going to get banned if you post a picture of a flop of a faulty deck. You just let them do it and then just hope it goes away and it will go away. That, that's how you handle it. You do not forbid them to post it like you're talking to a child. You're not, you don't have a room of kindergartners here. You have a huge room full of adults who will get very defiant if you say you're not allowed to share this. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Move on to another topic here. Veronica Brill was in some controversy controversy kind of her own creation and it did not have to do with Mike Possel I bet you thought it would be about Mike Possel no not about Possel now of course Veronica Brill was mostly unknown in the poker community until the Mike Possel situation she was fairly well known in the Sacramento poker community and I was aware of who she was for some time before that but most people didn't know who Veronica Brill was And in fact, Mike Possel has long accused her of using the situation to increase her status and visibility in poker. And to be honest, it has increased her status, reputation, and visibility in poker. But you know what? Okay, that's what happened. Veronica did the right thing in the Possel situation. And in fact, she agonized over the decision because she was the unknown player at the time. And she was accusing a better-known player than her of cheating. And if people didn't agree, and if people thought that she was just being a sore loser, then this could have really harmed her reputation. This could have made everybody hate her. And she took that risk. She was the only one who stood up and said something. A lot of people suspected things. She was the only one who stood up and said something. And as a result, she got a lot of attacks from his friends on social media. She got a lot of threats. She got sued, as did I. 
So she took a lot of hits from this that she didn't deserve, and she was 100% right and very brave in this situation. And I've always admired her for that, and I've said so. So I don't agree with Mike Postle here, even if this was the result that she ended up getting more popular in poker as a result of this, which she did. But that wasn't her intention. She was intending to do the right thing, and then for doing the right thing and for everything she went through, uh, and also because uh, she's a pretty female in poker, which always gets the attention of people. You know, this this is what made her more uh, notable in poker, all these things together. So, okay, that's the way it fell, but that's not why she did it. I can't know for sure. I'm not in her head, but that's from everything I can see. And she went through a lot. She went through a lot of negative crap because of this. But this segment is not about Possel. Anyway, Veronica posted a tweet on June 30th, and it got some mixed reactions. So I thought I would bring this up here, and you guys can decide what you think. So Veronica posted on June 30th at 5.49 p.m. Pacific, a guy at my table who's in seat one, table 567, has been derogatory towards me, called me a name in front of the floor, and we both got a warning. Incredible. Now, what she's saying here is that this guy has been very nasty and called her a name right in front of the floor man, and instead of doing something to him, instead of giving him a penalty or disqualifying him, uh, instead, both people got a warning. (laughs) So she got a warning, he got a warning. So she's saying, incredible, like, I I can't believe this has happened here. Why didn't he get the consequence? Why are we both getting a warning? And she actually named the exact table she's at and what seat that this guy is at. So anyone who walks down there can see who he is. She didn't post a picture of him, but uh, she was identifying the exact location where the guy's sitting. Then when a woman said, had the exact same thing happen to me at the Nugget, referring to the Golden Nugget last week, Veronica said, so frustrating, and the other men at the table say nothing. So at first glance, it would appear that Veronica is yet another female who's being mistreated at the poker table, and that the other men were afraid to speak in her defense, and that the floor, who presumably was male, that the floor man ended up giving both of them a penalty and wouldn't even take her seriously that she was a victim of abuse at the table from a dude. So at first, this would seem very straightforward, that Veronica was a victim of mistreatment here. But hold on, there's more to the story. She got some supportive messages at the beginning. She got some white knights offering to come down there and kick the guy's ass. Remember, she said what table that she's at and what seat the guy's in, so presumably the guy could be identified. Uh, But some people responded with skepticism. Some wondered why she would have gotten a warning if she was the complete victim in the situation. Other, criti- other people criticized her for pointing out the exact table and seat number, stating that uh, she's presumably hoping that some male followers of hers are going to come down and beat the guy up or at least intimidate him. Danielle Anderson, who was on her side, even joked that she felt sorry for the next guy to op- occupy that seat if that guy were to bust, which is actually a good point. <laughs> what if that guy busted out and then some other dude gets the seat and then some uh, followers of hers come down and see that guy in the seat and then... Uh, hassle him or even uh, hit him on break. So that's that's another good thing is just another bad thing is naming the seat number and table number that doesn't necessarily identify the person because people move around. But it didn't take long for this guy who is involved and another person at the table to show up in the thread and dispute her version of events. Now, I don't know the name of the guy 
who was involved in this whole thing, but he is on Twitter as DVD King, and I think he might be Australian because his name on Twitter is DVD King Com AU. So presumably he runs uh, DVDKing.com.au, which would be an Australian site. I haven't looked what that is. It's presumably some DVD seller. But he calls himself DVD King, and he claims to have been the guy at the table. We don't have verification that he really was, but I think he was. So this guy named Tom Burden was sympathetic to Veronica. He said, I'm sorry you had to go through that, Veronica. That type of behavior is totally uncalled for, and the floor should support anyone being, ver- being verbally bullied or abused. So then DVD King said, Veronica was behaving way worse, and most of the table complained about her behavior and had the floor called over to give her a warning. Hmm. So DVD King is claiming that she was the abusive one and that most of the table was on his side and that the floor, in fact, came to warn her, not him. He wasn't denying he got warned himself, but he was saying that most of the table was on his side. And in fact, the floor man was really coming over to warn her. So someone named the Deezer asked, how did this actually escalate? And DVD King said, in a four-way pot, I bet pot on the flop, meaning he did a pot-sized bet. This is at a World Series event. She was the next act before two others and showed her hand to the guy beside her, which could influence action. Terrible. So let me stop and explain what he's talking about here. So what he's trying to say is that Veronica did something that I've seen happen a whole lot, both at cash games and in tournaments, especially with social players at the table who like uh, talking to the people they're sitting with, where there's a hand that they really wanted to play or wanted to call on the flop or whatever it is, and then they can't because of the action ahead of them. So they fold, but they show the person sitting next to them, hey, look what I'm folding here, and then they toss it. I've seen that tons of times. Now, you're technically not supposed to do that. It's it's a violation of the show one, show all rule, where you're not supposed to show one player at the table what you have, nor are you supposed to show your cards in the middle of a hand. So she is technically violating the rules there, but this happens all the time. I don't love it, but it happens all the time. So DVD King was annoyed because he must have had a big hand. He bet a pot-sized bet on the flop. He made a big bet on the flop, equivalent to what the pot already was. It was probably PLO or something. And then she had to decide what to do with her hand. Instead of just folding, she picked it up and showed the guy next to her, hey, look what I'm folding here, like showing what a tight folder she is and threw it away, and yet there were two others who hadn't acted yet. So DVD King was saying that by her showing that she was making a tight fold here, it can give a hint to the other two players who haven't acted yet that she was folding something big, and that would give a hint what was in her hand, and that might influence what they're going to call with, because they can kind of uh, deduce what she might be holding and say, oh crap, some of my outs are gone, and then end up not calling. That's, that's the guy's point, is it can influence the action behind her even if they don't see what hand she has. Just the fact that she's showing someone that she's making a tight fold already gives a hint. Which is a reasonable point. A person named uh, DJ Poulsen said, it's obvious you're antagonistic and attention-seeking, he's saying to Veronica. Be better, Veronica. And then DVD King jumped on that and said, this is 100% true. She's just a sad attention-seeker. Then a guy named uh, Faisal, Faisal Siddiqui is his name. He's uh, at Desi Golfer on Twitter, D-E-S-I, and then the word golfer, Faisal Siddiqui. He said he was at the table, and he seems to be a legitimate poker player with some uh, known players following him on Twitter, so it doesn't need to be like a troll account. 
he claims he was also there, and he disputed her version of events. He said, um, the way I recollect, you were both calling each other names. I explicitly asked him to stop. So he was saying that he did defend her and that by saying no men at the table were speaking up is false. He called you weirdo in front of the floor after you were both verbally going at it. I'm the first to condemn any sexist behavior, and there were two sides to this story. Hashtag breathe. So it looks like the, quote, uh, derogatory name was just weirdo, which isn't that bad of a name. I, I thought it was something much worse the way she was putting it. But I guess they were arguing when the floor man came over and he said uh, she's a weirdo or just said uh, just called her weirdo directly, whatever. But that the floor man ended up giving both of them a warning and that this was not a sexist matter at all. It was just a matter of two people at the poker table going at it. He was not saying the DVD King was the victim or was an angel. And I don't believe he was. But this Faisal guy is basically just saying this wasn't sexist behavior. This is just two players not getting along. And to be honest, this is what it looks like to me. To be honest, this does not look like a terrible situation of some guy abusing a girl at the table. I can see why DVD King was annoyed about this. Now, he probably was rude about it. Like, if this bothered him, he could just say, hey, can you not do that next time? This can influence action. You know, I'd appreciate it if you just don't show the person next to you. Like, he could have been nicer about it. And that's probably the way I would have approached it if I were annoyed by this. But he probably said something rude about this. And then she probably got rude back to him. And he probably got rude back to her. And they're going back and forth. And I guess this Faisal guy told him, you know, stop calling her names. You know, let's just calm down, guys. And it just wasn't calming down. So the floor got called. And the floor said, like, both of you... Both of you have to stop. Both of you no more. And he probably even said weirdo with the floor still there. But yeah, the floor probably accurately assessed that they were just going at it and both calling each other nasty names. And it's like, okay, this is a minor thing. Just both of you stop. Just be done. Warning you both of you. Next one who does is going to get a penalty. And that's fine. That, was, that, that ruling's correct, actually. So this was a case of, of someone committing like a minor violation that usually doesn't get complained about, especially if it doesn't happen over and over. So it would be totally fine just like not to say anything in the first place or to say it very politely. I'm not saying that you should be rude to Veronica because she shows the hand she's folding to the guy next to her who's not in the hand who already folded. Like, this happens all the time. So if you're really bothered that this might induce the other two players to figure out that she was holding something that was almost callable and could give them a hint of what outs they may have, okay, you know, definitely say something then if you think that's a concern. But what's done is done, so just wait till the hand's over and say to Veronica, you know, can you please not do that next time? And and say it politely, and that's it. So I, th- I have a feeling he wasn't very polite. I have a feeling he was rude to her. But he did have a point that she shouldn't have done this. He did have a point that it could have affected his action. And then it, it escalated. So I'm not saying one person was right or wrong in this whole thing. They probably both had fault in this matter, she and this DVD king. So they argued, they called each other names, the floor came over and said stop it, and they both stopped. That should have been it. You know, This was not worth bringing it on Twitter and saying, oh, this is a sexist attack and why weren't the men defending me? Well, the men shouldn't defend you unless this is a guy making a sexist attack against you. And this is a guy who's hassling you because you're a woman or mistreating you because you're a woman or even just mistreating you out of nowhere, maybe because you're a woman, maybe not. But if this is just a dispute, which is what this was, this was a typical and mundane dispute at the poker table. I, I see this happening all the time at places like Commerce and the Bike. I see it between two men. I see it between 
a man and a woman. I see it between two women. I've seen this type of thing happen all the time. It's not a gendered matter. It's not a sexist matter. It's just a dispute at the poker table. They both shouldn't have been as rude as they were. And they were both warned, and that's the correct thing, and that should have been it. It should have died right there. I don't think she should have said what seat he was in, because what's the point of that? At best, she's trying to humiliate him so people come down and see him and uh, see this that this guy is the jerk or make comments to him. At worst, she was looking to see him get uh, intimidated or, or beaten up for this because she has a lot of fans. There's a lot of guys that like her. So if you're going to say something like that, it should be when something really egregious has happened. If a guy is really, really abusive to you at the table and no one's saying anything, just out of nowhere, the guy's just being a complete jerk to you, and then you want to call him out and mention what seat he's in, I would think still the problem is if could be confused for a different person if, if he busts and somebody else replaces him and you forget to say so. But at least if you're just getting abused out of nowhere and you're going to say that, that's one thing. But when it was just a fight about procedures at the poker table where you did something he didn't like and you get in a fight about it. I mean, you you shouldn't do that. So I did not like that thread when I saw the way it played out. I think she shouldn't have made it and she's got to be careful. She's got to be careful about uh, bringing things out like this because if you're going to say something that implies that there's some sort of uh, gender-related mistreatment, you have to be pretty sure that's what's happening. Otherwise, when there is gender-related mistreatment, no one's going to believe you or other women. So you have to make sure in those situations you're really calling it what it is. It would be like me saying that I'm being mistreated at the poker table because I'm Jewish. Uh, Probably not. I'm probably being mistreated at the poker table for totally other reasons. In fact, they probably don't even know I'm Jewish unless they listen to this show. So even if I am Jewish and being mistreated at the poker table, that doesn't mean it's because I'm Jewish. It could it could be for, and probably is, for one of many, many other reasons. Even if I'm totally in the right, it usually would not be for that reason. So you got to watch out when you make those accusations. And I think that while DVD King was probably rude and probably was no angel there, I think that uh, Veronica should not have posted that tweet. All right, moving on. There was some controversy at the ladies' event, but not about any kind of sexism. This had to do with uh, cheating, allegations of cheating in the ladies' event. And there's a lot of mystery to this story, and there's been uh, attempts to figure out what's happening by several in media, including some journalists I won't name, but I got contacted by some journalists that hadn't contacted me in the past that wanted to see what I knew about this because they were perplexed by the whole thing. And Haley Hintz, separate from all that, she had been looking into this and she wrote and then updated an article on uh, poker.org about the matter. So she took great interest in this as well. In fact, she was in this event. So very weird story. Let me tell you what happened. And I, I still don't have all the answers here, but I think I'm getting close. I think I've got close to the answer of what occurred. But I don't think I'll ever know the whole thing. And the World Series is keeping very quiet about this. They do not want to say anything. That's kind of weird, too. So here is what occurred. A woman who goes by Ginny, 
J-I-N-N-Y on Twitter posted a tweet accusing another woman who looked like a uh, young, pretty, white, or Hispanic female of sneaking outside chips into her stack at the WSOP ladies' event. And then Ginny alleged that this woman was caught, confessed, and only got a one-round penalty and kept playing. Now, the first weird thing happened after this was that Ginny deleted her tweet but claimed that she stood by the story. So why would you make such an allegation and post a picture of the person, delete the tweet, and then say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm standing by the story? Like, that's really weird. It's one thing to delete it because your story is inaccurate but, <laughs> or you're doubting it, but he or she's saying, oh, I stand by the story. So here's what happened. So first there was the tweet. It said, heads up to my fellow ladies today. This girl took chips out of her pocket, added them to the table, got caught, confessed, and only got a one-round penalty in the ladies' event. Um, what? And she posted a picture of the girl. She has a Gigi poker hat on. You'd think she'd look a little happier here since at the time she was getting away with pocketing chips into the ladies' event. The only thing more fucked up than that is the fact that she only got a one-round penalty. Hashtag WSOP, hashtag WSOP cheater, hashtag ban that bitch. So then she deleted it, and her follow-up tweet was this. Deleted my last tweet. Was shocked when the lady at my table told me this, that, this, that I wanted to warn my friends in the ladies' event. She witnessed it firsthand and was certain that's how it went. She or someone else at the table can speak to it, but I realize now it's not my place. What? I mean, you, you already put it out there. So if you really believe this woman at your table that at the previous table this happened, then, like, why not leave that up there? What do you mean it's not your place? You, you already did it. So don't delete the tweet. You might as well leave it up there. You can say, I posted this with third-hand info, so keep that in mind, but don't delete it. That's kind of weird. But if you want to see this Ginny... Her Twitter is X-J-I-N Sun. X-Jin Sun. She's an Asian female, as you might guess. She's since changed her name to a period. <laughs> so it just Her name is just period, but then her Twitter handle is X-Jin Sun. A person named Lady Geek, Lady Geek 9, Lady Geek in the number 9, tweeted back, I was at the table. It did happen. She did admit to them being in her pocket, but did not, did not offer an explanation or say how she did not know the rules. So then Ginny said back, thanks for speaking up. Sorry you were affected by it. What a weird situation. Good luck in the event. So, right, doesn't this look like it really happened? A woman named Elanit, that's E-L-A-N-I-T on Twitter, that's her Twitter handle, Elanit, she then posted a second picture of the girl where she kind of has her head down and she's got baggy jeans on, but definitely the same girl. And then she posted a screenshot of a message about how this girl was previously caught doing it. So she was actually uh, tweeting to Gigi Poker saying, Gigi Poker, is this one of your players with tournament chips in their pockets? Because remember, this girl has a Gigi Poker hat on, which may or may not mean she's representing them. Then the screenshot of discussing how this is the second time it's not clear who this was from, but she's showing a screenshot with someone talking to her saying, that same chick did the same the other day. I accused her and they did nothing. Then a guy named Mike Maddox, that's Mike and then M-A-D-D-O-C-K-S, Mike Maddox, it's Mike underscore Maddox, spelled that same way, M-A-D-D-O-C-K-S. 
he posted a picture of two different chipsets which ended up on the table. And as you can see, one of the, uh, or two of the 1K chips that are there have a different pattern on them than the other 1K chips. So Mike Maddox posted, one of my friends was on this table. It happened. Here's a photo of the Mitchmash chipsets. So I guess uh, one of the ladies at the table took a picture of two of the chips that didn't match the others, and then Mike Maddox posted it. But guess what? Mike Maddox then deleted that tweet as well. What is with all the deletions here? And he didn't explain it. At least Ginny said why she deleted it, that it wasn't her place. But why did Mike Maddox delete this? But he did. Mike Maddox deleted it with no explanation. But fortunately... I had both of these, and they're up on the Poker Fraud Alert thread in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness form. You can find a copy of these deleted tweets. I'm not going to let these disappear. So what is going on here? Why are people calling this out and posting pictures of it and then deleting it? What is going on here? Now, what is this girl's name? The one who's accused of having done this? That wasn't posted anywhere, right? It wasn't. Nobody knew her. Who was it? There were pictures of her, two different pictures, but who was it? Well, 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 well. After some uh, research into the matter, because I was very interested in this story, after some research into the matter, I came up with a suspect. A girl named Juliana Vidal Cruz. Juliana, spelled J-U-L-I-A-N-A, Vidal, V-I-D-A-L, Cruz, C-R-U-Z. Three names, Juliana Vidal Cruz of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, looks a lot like the girl pictured who was accused of doing this with sneaking other chips onto her stack that came from her pocket. And I found uh, a picture of Juliana at a beach or some kind of uh, water setting where she looks uh, a good deal like this girl pictured there in the GG Poker hat. And I found another picture of Juliana playing poker back in December where her hair is different, but the face looks pretty damn similar. And in both cases, the hair is long, except just the, the hair is a lot darker in the December picture. But it's very possible she got highlights and got it curled or whatever. Now, there is one big difference in that the girl has a septum ring in both the December picture and that beach picture, and yet the one that... Uh, the, the two pictures of her from the ladies' event, this girl has no facial piercings. So, yeah, she could have taken it out, but that is missing, where in all of the other pictures of Juliana, there is that septum piercing. That That is one reason to believe it might be a different girl. But th- there is a lot of resemblance. You look at the faces, like the two poker pictures, it's a very similar face. Now... It gets even more complicated. Juliana Vidal Cruz not only played the ladies' event, but she also cashed in this ladies' event. What? What? So is it really possible that someone caught doing this, someone caught sneaking in chips from her pocket, could have cashed in the event? Well... For sure, Juliana Vidal Cruz was in the event, and for sure, Juliana Vidal Cruz 
busted on the bubble at the same time as another girl. And what they do when that happens is the two people who bust at the same time when they're doing hand-for-hand play, which is where they deal one hand to each table and stop, when two people bust at the same time before they continue the next hand, uh, then those two people will split the first money prize that's being given away. So in this case, it was like 1600 bucks of the min cash, and they each split it and got 800 So Juliana Vidal-Cruz definitely split the first cash position at the ladies' event in 2022 at the World Series. But that does not mean that she is the one who was caught cheating. It just means she looks a lot like the girl who was caught cheating. So is it possible that it's a different person? Well, with the septum thing, I thought, yeah, it might be a different person. It might just be a lookalike, and I, I don't want to drag Juliana's name through the mud if she didn't do this. I also could not find anything online that had been previously accusing Juliana of having done anything wrong. Of course, that doesn't mean anything, but... You know, it's it's just saying she looks like that girl who was in the picture doesn't mean that she did this. Also, even if she was the girl in the picture, you know, maybe some information was wrong. Maybe the girl didn't do anything in the picture. Well, Haley Hintz released an article, and Haley Hintz actually works for the World Series, so she has some access there, I would think, to information. And she said that she had a source at the World Series which wouldn't give the name of the disqualified person, but the source told her that, indeed, someone was caught doing this and that the person caught doing this was disqualified and they were banned from all Caesars properties. Well, wait a minute. That would make it look like that it could not be Juliana because this incident clearly occurred before the money. Everybody agrees this incident occurred sometime before the money bubble hit. So if the perpetrator was banned from All Caesars properties, then how could Juliana have been the one who did it if she lasted all the way to the money and busted in the first money position tied with somebody else? Now, I theorized it was still possible because what if they did further investigation and realized what had happened only after a while had passed and banned her at that point. Maybe she was banned right after cashing. Maybe there were two actions, first a penalty and then further investigation and then banning her completely. But that was just a guess on my part. I also thought it may not be Juliana at all. Well, some more information has come out since then. A lot of people were looking into this. A lot of journalists were attempting to figure out what happened here and who it really was. Now, I was the only one to post... Juliana's name and picture and compare it to the pictures of the girl that was posted. That was uh, me who brought that out. But I admitted the whole way I wasn't sure. I admitted the whole way I didn't know if that was the same person. And I admitted the whole way that I didn't know if this uh, story was 100% true. We were just going on third-hand information. Well, I still don't have complete clarity. I still don't have any proof about this. And there's nothing super conclusive I have. However, Haley Hintz has since updated her article, and that gives us some more information. She wrote, Floor personnel were notified, and an investigation by the staffers and security determined that she had indeed introduced chips, at least two likely altered chips that matched in colors but had slightly different markings and labels than the correct chips in use. So those are the two chips that we saw in that picture that Mike Maddox posted and then deleted. 
The player was temporarily removed from the event, though she was eventually allowed to continue, despite comments from a well-placed official that the player had been disqualified and trespassed. Mm. So Haley Hintz is saying now she's hearing that indeed the player was allowed to continue. They were first taken out of the event, but then they were told you're allowed to come back. It doesn't say in the article that this player went on to cash, but it doesn't say that she didn't cash either. So I think there's a good chance we have the right person. I think there's a good chance that Juliana was the one who did it, but she is not banned. She was not disqualified, and she is welcome to play any other event that she likes. Isn't that lovely? Even after being caught doing this. Now, it's possible that she just pleaded ignorance. Possible she said, I don't know how these two chips got there. I, I don't scrutinize every chip in my stack. Look, they look similar to the others. This must have circulated around. I didn't do this. They were insisting that she took these out of her pocket. So if someone's seen taking chips out of their pocket, and they go through their stack and you find two chips that don't match the others, uh, that's pretty damn strong evidence to ban them, disqualify and ban them. Now, they can ban her for any reason. As far as disqualifying, she could technically go to gaming and say, I shouldn't have been disqualified here, but I think gaming would actually take Caesar's side on this one. So why would they let her continue? I don't know. So I don't have it for sure. I want you to understand. I don't have it for sure that it was Juliana Vidal-Cruz who did this. I don't have it for sure that whoever did was not banned. But that's what Haley Hintz was hearing, and she wrote on poker.org to, in fact, update her previous story. And the girl who is in that picture looks a hell of a lot like Juliana Vidal-Cruz, who was definitely in that event and cashed. Very odd. I wish the World Series would give some kind of statement here. But they're not, so we'll never know. But I think, I think I've think i pieced it together. You can take a look in the thread on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum. It's a thread called, There's a Story Going Around About a Girl Sneaking Outside Chips Into WSOP Ladies' Event, Getting Caught at Receiving Minor, minor Penalty. You can see all this for yourself, all the pictures, all the tweets, including the deleted ones. You can see it all. It's very uh, complete thread, as it usually is here. I like to be complete and clear so everybody understands what's happening, or at least as much as we can understand. I don't think we'll ever fully get the details on this one. Not a very well-covered story, though. Haley Hintz covered it. I covered it, but it's really not getting much coverage elsewhere. This is why... You need to listen to this show because I cover these things. I'm not afraid to cover these things. And I will cover the good and the bad. And if someone's saying bad things about the World Series or accusing them of things that they don't deserve, I will defend them. And I have defended them when that's happened. I don't just jump on the World Series hate bandwagon. There's been many times that I have clarified things and said, no, the mob is wrong. The World Series is fine here. But I will... Try to always get to the bottom of what really occurred, good or bad. Well, let's go from one pocket to another. Let's go from a female pocket to a male pocket. I don't want to be accused of being sexist here, that I'm going to be getting all over uh, Juliana Vidal-Cruz for possibly having done this and not give the same business to Scotty Wynn. So let's talk about Scotty Wynn, who's a much better known name than Juliana Vidal-Cruz and the allegations against him that were brought by one Shane Schlager. This is kind of disturbing and you can kind of 
figure this out for yourself. So first, Shane Schlager posted, Wow, hearing a very credible report that Scotty Wen late-regged, pocketed his starting chips, and pretended he never got any chips. The matter is being escalated. That was from Shane Schlager on July 8th. July 8th, by the way, was not a day one of the WSOP main event. It was a day two. But you are allowed to register at the beginning of day two. So that's what uh, Shane was saying here, that Scotty Wen registered into day 2D, which is for all the day 1D players who made it through, plus anyone who's going to newly register, and that he's hearing a, quote, credible report that Scotty Wen did this. So then someone named Kunal Patel, who's Kunal underscore K underscore Patel, and Kunal is spelled K-U-N-A-L, and Patel is P-A-T-E-L. So Kunal K Patel, with underscores between each one, wrote, A likely inebriated Scotty sat down at my table with his C-card and informed the staff that he wasn't given any chips. A guy left, presumably to get some for him, and after a couple of minutes, Scotty remembered he had put the chips in his pocket. He was later given a one-round penalty. Hmm. Provided that the story from Kanal Patel is correct, that's pretty damn shady. So Scotty shows up, he registered for the event, he takes his seat and says, hey, I was never given any chips. I don't know how this happened, but I late ridged into day two, I got no chips. So some floor man or someone working for the World Series went to go get him the 60K chips, assuming this was an oversight. And sometime shortly after that, then Scotty's like, oh, wait, it was in my pocket, and takes them out. Now, it's important to know that there is a very strict rule at the World Series about pockets. You cannot put chips in your pocket. At the very least, if you put chips in your pocket, they will take them out of play. And it's even possible they can disqualify you. But if you put all your chips in your pocket, that automatically disqualifies you because all your chips would be out of play. You cannot put a chip in your pocket and then put it back on the table. That's been a hard rule at the World Series for many years, and Scotty Wynn is no noob to the World Series of Poker. He's been around forever. He's been around longer than me. So he can't say, oh, wow, yeah, I just realized this. I didn't know that was a rule. I didn't know you can't put chips in your pocket. Wow. So he forgot that he put the chips in his pocket. <laughs> That's what uh, Kunal is claiming here. So that looks pretty bad. Now, what could possibly be the end game? What if Scotty got away with what he was trying? What would he get away with? What would be the point of even doing this? Well, some people were theorizing that Scotty was hoping that he could pocket the chips he was given and then say, I never got chips, have them give him chips, and then later on add those to his stack when nobody's looking. That's what people are theorizing he was trying to do. Basically start off with a double stack. And it's possible. So, you know, this is something I think is really uh, bad that they would let him get away with. The claims later was that Scotty was just drunk, that he was tired, that he just absentmindedly put his chips in his pocket and then forgot they were there. And... Shane Schlager said, the last thing I'll say about this today 
As told, he put on an elaborate act pretending he didn't receive his chips. As it was being confirmed that the proper number of chips were in fact in play and surveillance would be summoned, he found the chips. So Shane's basically saying that he kept this act going until they were going to really aggressively look into what happened here. And as soon as he knew that they're going to look at the cameras and see he put them in his pocket, he's like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, they're in my pocket, they're in my pocket. That's very shady. It's not even like he asked for it. They said, well, we'll go, go get it for you. It's like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. I may put it in my pocket. Oh, yeah, they're right here. So sorry. I don't know why I, I forgot I did that. The fact that it was only when he was told they're going to be checking surveillance that he remembered they were in his pocket looks really bad. But I don't care what he's saying. If you put t- chips in your pocket, then you should at the very least be disqualified. That's always been the rule. That's always been the rule. Now, Chip Jett, who listens to this show, he said to Shane Schlager on July 8th, probably should have all the facts before blowing him up on Twitter. He was sitting out near me while the floor man went to go, quote, look at something. He's now playing, so obviously it wasn't what what was reported. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's just they decided to give him the benefit of the doubt. Andy Block was kind of uh, aggressive back to Shane saying, unless you know for a fact it's irresponsible and libelous, you should delete this now. And a lot of people on Twitter didn't like that. And he said he wrote a, quote, very credible report, not source. How does he know the report is credible? He then followed it up with tweets like, if XXX is not disqualified from this event at a minimum, we should be asking questions. And then Shane said back, credible source, move on. I understand what Andy's trying to say. I understand Andy's point. You can't just go throw around allegations of cheating against players just because you hear something third hand. But if Shane really did hear this from someone who never bullshits this type of thing and who really knows it happened and he puts it out there, I mean, yeah, I guess technically he is opening himself up to a libel suit, but if he's pretty sure it happened, then okay, I think it is good the public knows about it. And there's no way to know for sure, but I think that what is being suspected is probably what happened. And someone posted, I can't believe he was risking it all just for getting a two-time starting stack. Yeah, that's that's a pretty dumb scheme, I will admit that. Because it's just so non-standard that you would show up without chips when everybody else has gotten chips to start and Scotty Wynn is the only one who hasn't gotten chips. What does he think? They're just going to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, okay, here's your chips. Like They're going to go, how come you're the only one who didn't get them? How'd that happen? Because what happens is you go through this late reg line and they give you chips and a seat card. So why would he be the only one not to get chips and just a seat card? I think he just believed that they'd buy it and give him chips. But I don't care. Since they were in his pocket, no matter what the reason... Even if it was accidental, it's too bad. People lose their chips all the time from accidental things. If I think I have pocket aces and I have ace four and I accidentally call an all-in from pocket kings, I don't get my chips back when I lose the hand. I may have accidentally seen the wrong card, but still, that's too bad. In fact, there's other times when you can accidentally call something when you don't see there's a raise in front of you and you just say, I call or whatever, or you don't see how much it is, or you, you misread the chips that have been put out there. It's too bad. It's just, uh, it just doesn't matter what you meant to do. 
then if you lose, you lose. So they make so many announcements about don't ever put chips in your pockets. I've heard this over and over and over again. Well, I've never heard that warning about the photography we talked about earlier. I hear the thing about the pockets all the time. I have heard, I mean, hundreds of times. I shouldn't say hundreds because I haven't played hundreds of events. But I have heard over 100 times about don't put chips in your pockets. So Scotty Wen can't say, oh, I was drunk or I was confused. He put chips in his pocket. He should be out. They should take all the chips out of play, and that was all the chips he was starting with, so he should be out. Too bad. And what do you think people are going to say if, if the World Series disqualifies him for putting chips in his pocket? They'll say, look, this is what we have to do to protect the game. Anybody who puts chips in their pocket gets disqualified, and we've said this for a very long time. Everyone will say, yeah, you do. You do say that. Okay. So it looks like favoritism to me. But then again, maybe not. Maybe they're just trying not to ban people, because if this Juliana Cruz didn't get banned for sneaking in other chips if this is what she did if these stories are true or if whoever it was if it wasn't Juliana Cruz whoever this person was if they didn't get banned I mean what they did is worse than what Scotty did I think that's about equal (laughs) I don't know they have to start handing down more bans for things like this not give anyone the benefit of the doubt especially once there's no better Scotty Wynn knows better Okay, so moving on to the second-to-last World Series topic for this week. And we're going to finish up the World Series topics probably next week. The World Series of Poker Mystery Bounty was a new event, and it took place just before the main. And this is not the first time a Mystery Bounty was done. It's been done in other venues, but this is the first time they've had one at the World Series and they had an opportunity to have some very impressive mystery bounty prizes because of the large number of people that come to the World Series of Poker. So in case you're wondering what a mystery bounty is, it is an event where you get a bounty slip or chip or something like that for every person you knock out, which is just like any other bounty event. I've played bounty events before and In regular bounty events, every time you knock someone out, you get a fixed prize that is stated beforehand what that's going to be. And uh, this comes out of the prize pool. It's not just free money out of nowhere. This is money subtracted from the prize pool that is paying bounties. So then the normal prize pool of what you would get from getting uh, to the top 15% of the event, it's it's less than it would normally be because they take out money for bounties. But the mystery bounty is a new concept. And it's something that has proven very popular, so the World Series tried it. And that is where you don't know what bounty you're going to get for each person you knock out. And that you cannot uh, redeem these bounties until after 4 p.m. on day two of the event. But the bounties can range from something very small all the way up to something very large. Now, of course, the large prizes are rare, but... There is one top prize of $1 million. So if you're lucky enough, you could knock out one person and get a million bucks without getting that far in the event. You could even not cash and get a million bucks. So this introduces a kind of gambling element to it, and it introduces an element where everybody who knocks someone out has a chance, even if it's a small one, at a big prize, even if they don't get very far in the event. 
it's also something that appeals to recreational players who feel, hey, I never get the big money. I'm not good enough to end up at the final table in these events. I'm just going to run into too many good players at the end who are better than me. You're going to outplay me, and I'll never get there. Well, now you have a chance at the big money just by lucking into one of these giant bounties. So according to the structure sheet of the Mystery Bounty event, which began on July 2nd, $300 from each buy-in, and that is a $1,000 buy-in, so 30% of each buy-in, will go into the bounty pool. Players will draw a random bounty prize for every player they eliminate. Top bounty prize is guaranteed $1 million. So they were wondering at the World Series how popular this was going to be. Well, it was a tremendous success. Even though it interferes with the very beginning of the main event, uh, you technically can still enter the main because they end the event on July 6th. So even if you end up winning the event, you can still enter a day two of a main event. So there's no way you can miss the main if you want to play the main, and you could still enter this, and they did that on purpose. But they did wonder if they're going to get that big of a field. Well, indeed they did. They got over 14,000 players, or at least 14,000 entries. You can rebuy, but over 14,000 entries in this $1,000 buy-in event. So that was uh, really huge. And this event was a tremendous success. Everybody enjoyed it. And it's definitely coming back next year. And this is something the World Series has been receiving praise for, that this event, even though kind of gimmicky, has really been something that people have liked, and it attracted a lot of recreational players. So some people were saying that the field in the event was very soft, that it attracted a lot of people who may not have otherwise played, who weren't very good. Now, I'm not exactly sure how it worked, but a certain percentage of people got to go onto the stage and draw from envelopes where the envelopes would be the bigger prizes. And the envelopes had prizes ranging from 25000 to $1 million. So if you go up on the stage at all, from what I'm understanding here, then you've gotten at least 25000 which is already a great uh, uh, prize for a bounty. But of course, you're hoping to get the million-dollar prize, of which there was only one. So who ended up getting the million-dollar prize? Was it a recreational player or maybe like an online grinder nobody knew? Who ended up being lucky enough to get the million-dollar prize? Would you believe it was a Poker Fraud Alert regular listener? It was. And also a well-known pro. The winner of the million-dollar bounty, the single million-dollar bounty they gave away, was none other than Matt Glantz. So Matt went up to the stage, and he dug through a chest of envelopes, and he slowly opened the envelope and saw a one and a comma. That's a good sign. That meant he didn't get the 25K. But it wasn't 100,000. It was 1 million. So as soon as he discovered he got the million, he raised his arms in triumph and 
opened his mouth and yelled out and held up the million-dollar sign and showed the crowd. He will not end up taking home the entire million. Sean Deeb and Paul Volpe each had 10% of his action in the tournament, including the bounties, so they each get 100 k Sean Deeb was seen playing with the uh, million-dollar... Uh, paper that Matt had drawn for good luck in the main event. He was at the table over from me in the main, and he had that million dollars in front of him. Not the million dollars itself, but that million dollar paper. So, a hundred thousand will go to Volpe. Hundred thousand will go to Deeb. In addition, five thousand dollars is going to a player named Justin Lett, L-E-T-T, and that is uh, something that. Matt is doing just to be a nice guy. He knocked out Justin Lett to win that bounty. And he put a bad beat on Justin Lett to get that bounty. So had he not put that bad beat on Justin Lett on day two, then he would not have won this million dollars. So he decided to be a nice guy and give 5K to Justin Lett, even though they had no swap or anything, just because uh, he bad beat the guy, which led to him receiving a million bucks, which was very nice of him. And uh, Matt ended up uh, getting pretty deep in that tournament, too. Uh, At one point, he was like sixth in chips with 360 people remaining. Uh, He did not win the event, but he did get pretty deep. Uh, Let's see what he got there. Yeah, he got uh, 42nd place for another 20K. So that's nothing like a million dollars, but yeah, not bad. Another 20K for the event, and uh, Matt obviously did very well there. And I don't think he cashed the main this year, though. I don't see him on the main event list of cashers, and I know he's not in right now. So I believe he did not cash the main, but uh, he obviously did quite well. Matt Glantz is kind of quietly very successful at the World Series of Poker. And he has uh, $7.5 million worth of tournament cash his lifetime. And this is a guy who plays big events. You know, he entered the, the 50K uh, Poker Players Championship, and he enters a lot of 10Ks. So he does spend a lot of money on buy-ins, but uh, uh, he does do well. He makes a lot of final tables, and uh, he just gets to add another million to his coffers. So if you look at his Hendon mob, you'll see he's just uh, always right there with getting deep in a lot of events. For example, in the uh, 21 World Series, he got uh, ninth place in the 25K horse. He got 7th place in the 10K Dealer's Choice. And these are all tough events. He got 7th in the 50K Poker Players Championship. He got 5th this year in the 1500 if you scroll down, you'll see a lot of deep and final table finishes for Matt Glance. Even though, for whatever reason, when you think about poker players who are frequently at the final table and, and doing very well in tournaments, for some reason, he just doesn't come to your mind immediately. But then you look up his results and go, wow, he's he's doing really well. And not just recently. Like he, he consistently does well year after year. Some years are better than others, of course, but he, he consistently does well against very good competition. So... I'm glad to have him as a listener. Uh, Matt Glantz is is a nice guy. 
He's, uh, I believe, like the same age as me or a few months older. We're very close in age. He listens to, I believe, every Poker Fraud Alert radio episode, or if not all of them, most of them. And he's recommended the show before on his Twitter, which I appreciate. And he's actually one of the few true centrists politically on Poker Twitter that I've seen. Some people claim to be centrists and are not. I've seen so-called centrists who are really uh, Republicans. I've seen so-called centrists that are really Democrats and are not center at all. But he really is very center. And if you take a look at his political takes, you will see that. He is very anti the modern woke movement. But at the same time, he voted for Biden. He hated Trump. He's often critical of Republicans. But often he is critical of the left as well, not just the wokes, but he's sometimes uh, critical of the left in general. So he, he really is in the middle. In fact, I've seen both people on the left coming after him for supposedly being a right winger, which he's not. And I've seen people on the right come after him saying he's a liberal, which he's not. He really is about the most centrist of any poker player I've seen who tweets. And he likes Pete Buttigieg for some reason, <laughs> even though Pete Buttigieg is not centrist. He likes to kind of pretend he is, but he isn't. I don't understand his love for Pete Buttigieg, but I will forgive that. But really, politically, he's he's very much in the middle. And, you know, sometimes I'll see a political take of his, and I will very much agree. Sometimes I'll see something disagree. But at least he seems to have good reasoning behind it. Even when I disagree, it's not like totally out in the weeds. It's like I, I can see where he's coming from. So I'm, I was happy to see him win it. And I, I sent him a text congratulating him. And I actually think that it's good that someone who is recognizable, but not a super huge name, it's not like Helmuth or Negranu won, but like a recognizable pro won it. I think that creates some additional excitement. Yeah, it might also be good that if a recreational player won, just a total nobody, but the problem is nobody talks about it. Like, yeah, it's nice if a total nobody who nobody knows wins this million dollars, but it's not going to get that much attention. They'll quickly say, oh, such and such random won a million bucks. You go, oh, that's good for that guy, and then everyone forgets about it. It's not like a random winning the main event or something. That, that gets more attention. But a random winning the million-dollar bounty, it'll get a hint, attention for a day, and then everyone will forget. So it's not going to do a lot for poker. So I actually think it's better that someone who's a recognizable player wins this and then it brings attention to that event. Because everybody who sees this, even recreational players, they don't go, oh, that glance, you know, he only won it because he's really good. No, he won it because he was really lucky. He was also good. That allowed him to uh, get to very deep in the event and win another 20K. But as far as this bounty itself, he actually got lucky. He knocked out somebody with a bad beat. So this could really happen for anybody. It just happened to be a known pro who got it. So congratulations to Matt. Uh, some people on Twitter were jokingly saying they hate him or writing things like, fuck you, Matt Glantz. Some people saying he didn't deserve it. Some people saying he's always so lucky. This is just another example of it. So a lot of people lamenting that he's luckier than anybody else. But <laughs> I will admit here he was definitely luckier than everybody else. I mean, there's one bounty 14,000 entries, one bounty gets a million bucks, and he gets it. But I have to be happy. A regular Poker Fraud Alert radio listener won the first million-dollar bounty at the World Series. That's pretty cool, right? We could have a, a good series for 
pros who listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio because we had Matt Glantz who gets the million dollar bounty and we have Ari Engel who last I looked is deep in the main event. So that'd be great if they both won seven figures this year. I'd like to see good karma for Poker Fraud Alert Radio listeners. I'd like to see when they do well. I'd like to see when people who enjoy this show have good fortune. Now, to be honest, I'd rather I had the good fortune. I would rather I won the event than Ari. I'd rather that I won the mystery bounty than Matt, though I didn't play it, so I couldn't have won it. But theoretically, I would rather win the million dollars than Matt Glantz, and I'd rather get very deep in the main than Ari Angle. But if it's not going to be me, I'm glad it's them. So congratulations to Matt Glantz, and I guess his luck really knows no bounds. Final World Series topic before we get on to some other things. Tamon Nakamura is a player who is from Japan, who in fact uh, represented uh, GG Poker in Japan called GG Japan. And he is accused by poker pro Adam Hendricks of taking money from him to play the uh, 50K Poker Players Championship and then chunking it off and not actually playing the championship. And GG Poker has taken some action over this. So let me tell you this whole uh, sordid story. And I've seen things like this before, where people who get money from others to play World Series events uh, never make it to the event. In fact, uh, Chino Reem was uh, infamous for that and other things. But uh, presently, Adam Hedricks, he wrote this on June 28th. Unfortunately, poker is a cruel world. Timon last week asked if I wanted any action in the 50K Poker Players Championship. I gave him cash Saturday, and he never showed up to play for day one. I asked him and attached his response, and since then, mute. He has scammed me and others, posting now to avoid, meaning I'm posting this so you can avoid giving him any money. And then he posted this uh, screenshot, which I will read to you. So the screenshot... This is uh, Timon saying, Hi, Adam. I'm thinking about playing PPC, referring to the 50K Poker Players Championship. If I could sell my action, I want to sell a total of 60% of my action, meaning $30,000. Could you buy my action? If it's possible, how much is okay? I was dreaming to play that tournament for a long time, but it's still expensive for me. If you mind, I'm really sorry for sending you that kind of message suddenly. So then uh, Adam asked, is it at face? Referring to face value. And I don't know the answer because he didn't post that part. But then he said, okay, I guess it is face value. He said, okay, I'll bring your 2500 meaning no markup. Whatever percentage he buys is what he gets of action. So then Timon says, thank you. And then he gave him uh, $2,500 for 5K or 5% of the 50K player championship. So then Timon said, I'll do my best. That was on Friday. And then on Sunday, he said, you didn't enter? Because the 50K Poker Players Championship, as you might guess, is not a huge field event. It's not like those $500 events where you just have thousands and thousands of people. So since there's only a limited number of people playing, uh, you can go see who's playing. And if they're not there, you can see who entered. So somehow Adam found out that Timon didn't play. So he asked, you didn't enter two days later? And then Timon said, I'm sorry, I couldn't play PPC. And so then uh, Adam said, any future scams that occur, it's, it's, uh, it's sad the kindest in poker are often the scummiest. 
I'm writing this because apparently in Japan it was known he was a big degenerate and scammer, but it's not known here in the States. Timon, you hurt me. Now your life will change. Referring to how now everyone's going to know he's a scammer in the U.S. and his reputation will be shot. I think it's super important to spread information for the poker community. If you know someone who has a bad rep and see them talking to a friend, a person you know, please let them know to help curb scams going on in the community. Silence is not the answer. He also posted a link to a thread in uh, January of 2022, which is all in Japanese, but you can translate it through Twitter. And this is uh, a scam that uh, happened. So Timon said in January, on January 8th, this time I started coaching and running a club of KK. I'm not sure what KK is, but I confess and apologize for hiding my mistakes and inconvenienced people by arranging them all neatly. And then he writes, I haven't said it before, but I've lost a lot of money online and overseas in high-rate cash games and tournaments. I've also tampered with money I've received from people other than poker, so I'm currently in a lot of debt. We are in a situation where we are inconvenienced by many people. And So this, this was him confessing to a scam in January that was linked by Adam. This is all in Japanese that was translated. But apparently this wasn't known because it was all on uh, Japanese poker Twitter and nobody shared it or really discussed it. And then he posted a screenshot of him asking for more time. So this was uh, Timon saying, I'm sorry, please wait a few days. I'll come see you soon. I couldn't get money for playing and lost all the money with gambling. Please wait for a day. I'll give you money back. I'm really sorry. I'm the worst human. I betrayed everyone. I'll consult with my friend for compensation ASAP. And so then Adam said back, you have 24 hours. And Timon said, I appreciate you. Well, apparently he doesn't appreciate him very much because he did not end up paying him back, and that's what led Adam to come forward with this entire thing. GG Japan, remember, he was a pro for GG Japan, which is the Japanese version of GG Poker. GG Japan uh, basically paid this off, whoever got ripped off by Timon with this PPC thing, and then fired him. So, Adam said, Timon has paid me back in person via GG Poker Japan. He showed a bunch of sympathy, and I hurt him in a way I can't explain. I know he is a good guy, but it's hard to see it right now. Please have compassion and look at the mental health aspect of the situation. (laughs) What? What? Uh, You know, I was with you, Adam, until now. You're right. You shouldn't stay silent when people are scamming the community. You're right that when this happens, you should put it out there. You're right that if you see a scammer talking to one of your friends or associates, you should warn them not to deal with that person. These are all good pieces of advice you gave. But, I mean, great to see you got paid back, but it wasn't from him. It's not like he worked hard to get you your money back. GG Poker which didn't have to do this. They they were generous enough to cover for this guy's scams. They, they were generous enough to pay back people that he had scammed when they don't have to do that. It's not like he was doing this uh, while working for them. So they paid you, great, but you should be thanking them. Just say, thank you, GG Poker Japan. You didn't have to do this for me, but thank you for paying for what your pro did, even though this isn't your fault. And even though this wasn't while working in official capacity for you. So thank you, GG. And Timon's a piece of shit. Like, that should have been, that should have been it. Instead, he's like, um, I heard him. What? You heard him in a way that you can't explain? No, you didn't. Or you hurt for him. Well, still, 
you hurt for him. Come on. I know he's a good guy, but hard to see it right now. How can he be a good guy if he just scammed six months ago and he's doing it again? If you want to make the argument that he got in a very bad spot one time and made a really dumb decision and just scammed people because he gambled away the money they had given to him and then he hurt everybody and felt terrible, but it was too late and he can't get the money back. Okay, I can understand that argument. He's doing it again six months later, so he doesn't feel that bad. Because if he was a good guy and he did this and he felt horrible about it, he would say, okay, I've learned my lesson. I will never do this again. If you're doing this again in six months, then you don't give a shit. So he's not a good guy. He may be a friendly guy. He may appear to be a nice guy. But if he's scamming people again six months after being caught scamming and feeling so bad for it, he's not a good guy. A poster named Singles Hitter said, wow, this is kind of a shocker to me. I've played with him a few times, was gregarious and good humor at the tables, and he would fire all the mixed game stuff, 10Ks, etc. I thought he came for money despite some decent results. He didn't even have the fundamentals down with some of these games. Sucks. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Apparently he isn't very good in some of the games he plays, and he fires anyway. So Singles Hitter thought that maybe he just was a, from a rich family, and even though he had cashed in some things, was probably a losing player, and no, he's doing this through scamming. He's got a gambling problem. So GG Poker Japan released that it terminated its contract with Tomo Nakamura as part of GG Team Japan and shows its intention to compensate some loss of those who bought his action at the PPC. That's according to a Twitter account named SHMPOS, which apparently is a Japanese person on Twitter. And it said, please feel free to DM him or me or Adam Hendricks. So, I mean, it's nice of GG to do this. They didn't have to. I give them credit. It's a stand-up move from them. But Timon, I mean, he doesn't deserve any sympathy here. He's scammed at least on two occasions here in 2022. And this is probably not the first time. I bet he scammed in, in 2021, 2020, 2019. I'm, I'm sure this is not the first year he's turned to scamming. But even if it is, twice in six months, I, I think it's time to say this guy is not a very good dude. So pretty shocking that Adam Hendricks, after this whole thing, is hurting for him and thinks he's a good guy. See, I think Adam had the fire in his belly when the 2500 was missing from his pocket. Not that Adam Hendricks really, really needs the 2500 because he's a successful poker pro and he plays at high stakes. So the 2500 is not a killer to him, but it was just an irritant to him that he got ripped off. And I understand that. I understand why he was so irritated. I would be too. But once he got it back in his pocket from GG, he's like, oh, Timon, he's a good guy. I, I feel bad for him. He, I'm, I'm hurting for him. It's like the fire in his belly went out as soon as he got the money, even though it wasn't from Timon. And Timon did nothing to make it happen. He got it from the company firing Timon. So as far as you should still see it, Timon ripped you off. Just because somebody else bailed him out of it, or something else bailed him out of this, you don't forgive him for this. Especially because you know he ripped people off in January. It's one thing to have a gambling problem. I mean, there's people who listen to this show. There's a lot of people who listen to the show who have some kind of gambling problem. I'm not going to judge you for that. As a gambler myself, I can understand that. But scamming people to keep your gambling habit up and doing it twice within six months when you supposedly feel so bad the first time, that's a big issue. 
So good for calling him out, Adam, but not good for forgiving him. I mean, you can forgive him if you want, but it's stupid. All right, so since we're talking about GG Poker, let's do uh, two more GG Poker-related topics. The first one actually would be a pretty big story any other week, but because we had all this World Series of Poker stuff to talk about here, uh, this gets pushed into the middle of the show. But apparently something is finally being done about cheaters in poker who just keep playing and figure that there's no consequence. Because up until now, there hasn't been. People cheat and their reputation gets damaged. But at the end of the day, they can just keep playing tournaments and keep playing online poker and nothing stops them from continuing to make money. So they go, okay, you know, people don't like me, but who gives a shit? I'm, I'm still making money. I'm still doing well, so who cares? The problem here is that the people involved in the recent cheating controversies also happen to be good players. So Ali Imsrovic is a very good player. Jake Schindler is a very good player. Bryn Kenny is a very good player. Even some of these uh, sub-figures are pretty good. People like uh, David... CSM Mizikowski. So these are not fish who are caught cheating and can't win without cheating. These are players who can win without cheating. That's why it's so ridiculous that uh, they would be cheating. But uh, yeah, it looks pretty bad, some of the allegations against them. And none of them have really denied it. And I was saying on this show, and you've heard me before, you've heard me when we were discussing these recent scandals in the spring. I was saying that maybe it is time that in the case of players who are suspected of cheating, who aren't even defending themselves, who, from what everyone can see, is probably guilty of what's being alleged, that maybe it's time that poker tournament series like the WSOP just ban them. Because they can. They don't have a right to play these tournament series. And I don't think many people will defend highly suspected cheaters if they get banned. Even if they're being banned by different venues than where they are expected or where they're suspected of cheating. And I thought that this would be good because it would finally introduce consequences for highly suspected cheaters which are otherwise hard to place upon these cheaters because it is very hard to prosecute them legally or even find a law enforcement entity willing to do it. So at the very least, do this. At the very least, don't welcome them at these tournaments where they don't have a right to be. So I said, maybe it's time to just start using that ban. Use the ban power for good. That was my opinion. I did acknowledge that it is a slippery slope, and you can't just start banning everybody where an allegation's made. And also, how far back does it go? I mean, these are good questions. But I thought that these questions could kind of be figured out and then people can start getting banned to where we just don't have to see them anymore if, if they're going to be doing this type of thing to the community. That was my feeling about this in the spring. Well, looks like I'm not the only one who feels this way. So some pretty big news was released in the first week of July by both GG Poker and PokerStars, which are the two biggest online poker sites in the world. 
Gigi Poker has launched what's known as a Poker Integrity Council, consisting of five pro poker players who will help decide whether to perma-ban, that means permanently ban, well-known cheaters from GG Poker, and whether to recommend their ban from unaffiliated live events. So GG Poker only has power within its own site, but this council can also suggest to ban them elsewhere. And so they've made partnerships with a bunch of other poker tours to at least listen to them. These other poker tours have not committed to doing what GG Poker recommends, but they've at least made the partnership to look into this and to uh, examine what the council has come up with. So again, the live events will not be required to abide by the council's decision, but they'll be informed by it and might ban the players if recommended. So this could be really be huge because the council's decision could result in the ban of certain known or highly suspected cheaters from all major live tournaments going forward. So which are the live tournaments that have agreed to at least listen to what this council has to say? The World Series of Poker, that's obviously huge. Triton, the WPT, another huge one. High Stakes Poker, the Poker Masters, Poker After Dark, High Roller, PGT, APL, the Asian Poker Tour, King's Casino, Battle of Malta, and uh, the RG Poker Series. So, I mean, you take all these out, where are they going to play? Now, notice the EPT is not there, but we'll get to that in a second. The the European Poker Tour is not there, but I'll explain why when we get to the second part here. That's the only thing I really see missing from here. The Poker Integrity Council consists of five people. Jason Kuhn, who is also a GG Poker Pro. Fedora Hulse, who's a GG Poker Pro. Andrew Lichtenberger, also known as Lucky Chewy, who works for Learn WPT, which is a training site. Seth Davies, who works for Run It Once, that is the training site, not the now-dead poker site. And Nick Petrangelo, who works for Upswing Poker. So notice that two of these five are GG pros and the other three represent training sites. Hmm. A council of people looking to fight fraud and scams in poker. Hmm. If only something existed for the past 10 plus years, which actually was dedicated to doing that, which talks about it and writes it up every single week and covers every single one of these. Hmm. If only someone has been doing that. If only a site has been up dedicated to that. Oh, wait a minute. We do have that. Right here on Poker Fraud Alert. So when I heard about this, I thought, all right, you know, GG can do it at once. They don't have to involve me. This is their own action. They don't even know me. They probably know of me, but they, they don't know me. So they they don't have to involve me in this, but I would think if, if they're really serious about this, that uh, my inclusion of this, my inclusion in this whole thing would be very appropriate, wouldn't you? Even if you don't like me, I think you could agree that I would be fair and impartial with this. I think you could agree that I would do a good job with this. 
I think even my biggest haters would acknowledge that. Well, I made like a little sarcastic remark on the Poker News tweet about this. I wasn't bashing Poker News. Just kind of like, oh, I'm, if only there was a person at a site doing this for the past 15 years. But apparently Jason Kuhn got wind of that and then sent me a DM and said that he agrees that I probably should be part of something like this. And I guess the situation is being reviewed over at uh, GG Poker and they're uh, considering the matter of maybe including Poker Fraud Alert in some way, even if we're not uh, officially on the Poker Integrity Council. You know, I won't hold my breath. It's up to them. They can do what they want. It's their council. But I would love to be involved in something like this. Now, it's not clear if the first band players will be the big three in the 2022 controversies. I'm talking about Ali Imshravik, Jake Schindler, and Bryn Kenny. It's also not clear if people like CSM David Mizikowski would possibly be banned in the future. It's not clear if they're going to just start handling cheating allegations going forward or if they're going to reach back in the recent past and maybe even the not-so-recent past to ban people or to recommend their bans. I have uh, received some information since then that GG Poker was looking to uh, have people on this council who are players who uh, have tools to analyze things or at the very least uh, are frequently on the felt and, and so don't so much want uh, media entities just giving their opinion. They'd rather have this done from the standpoint of uh, those who either have analysis tools or those who can interpret uh, well what the tools say. Uh, and, and apparently they weren't uh, aware that I'm also a player, that I'm not just uh, someone who talks about and posts about fraud in poker, so that I do both. So uh, they, they've been made aware of that, and uh, we will see. But again, I'm not going to be bitter about it. You know, if, they, if they don't want to involve me in this, that's fine. This is their effort. They can, they can bring on who they want. And there's nothing wrong with the five guys they have. I just uh, think maybe they need a sixth guy. In related news, PokerStars has decided to extend all online bans to their live events. Before, they had kind of a soft policy regarding this, where only some players who were banned from PokerStars would be disallowed from playing the EPT, which PokerStars owns. But now they have announced a more hardline policy that... Anyone who is banned from Poker Stars for any reason cannot play the EPT. It's no longer certain people with the most egregious offenses. Now it's if you are banned from Stars, you're banned from the European Poker Tour. Now, why is the EPT then not part of this Poker Integrity Council? Well, I think it's obvious. GG Poker is their direct competition, EPT is their event. So they don't want to cooperate with GG Poker in anything because that's who they're competing with. So the, that's why the EPT is not on there. So they, they're doing their own separate thing, banning people from the EPT who are banned from PokerStars for any reason. 
It is believed that this is taking place at the same time as what's going on with Gigi's Poker Integrity Council, because they also want to take a hardline stance against known cheaters, and that they also don't want people with a reputation for cheating playing in the EPT. So it doesn't even necessarily mean that people who have not cheated on poker stars specifically can play the EPT. They, they can just ban someone because they don't like them, and then they also can't play the EPT. So it also looks like poker stars is getting in on this whole thing as well on their end, which is good. Now, this is a slippery slope. How far back should bad behavior be considered ban-worthy? For example, Justin Bonomo admitted that he multi-accounted in 2006. There's no question. He multi-accounted. He admitted he multi-accounted. He definitely cheated on party poker in 2006. So should he be banned? Now, even though Justin Bonomo has kind of acted like a douche on Twitter and sometimes in person, that's not a reason to ban him. There are no credible cheating allegations against Justin Bonomo in those 16 years that have since passed. So should he be banned from the poker tournaments because he cheated on party poker in 06? I would say no. I would say the 16 years of a clean record since then make it to where we can look past that. That something maybe you shouldn't look past as far as him acting superior to everybody and talking down to people, but as far as uh, banning him, you shouldn't ban him because he cheated when he was a young guy 16 years ago and has been clean since. But what about people like uh, Chino Ream, who haven't... uh, been accused of cheating in poker, but have screwed many people by knowingly taking loans he can't repay. What about uh, situations where there's unproven allegations of cheating? What about uh, someone possibly getting shut out of live poker tournaments because someone with an axe to grind makes an allegation about someone cheating that isn't true? And that person is well-trusted, and then they wield the power to get Someone banned from all poker tournaments. They can basically shut them out of poker by spreading false rumors. So you do have to watch out with this, that you don't just take one person's word for it, or a few people's word for it, and ban people from all tournaments. However, regardless of all this, I think these bans can effectively be used if they stick to clear and obvious and at least somewhat recent cheating situations or really egregious ones which maybe weren't so recent but aren't so far back like Justin Bonomo's 2006 thing. But basically go after any credible cheating allegation and then give the accused a chance to respond. And then you make an intelligent decision of what to do. So if someone's accused of some pretty serious cheating and their answer back is no comment, well, it's a pretty good chance they were cheating. And then you can look at the evidence and say, yeah, not only does it look bad for them, but they won't answer to what's being alleged, so F them. They're probably guilty. Let's ban them. I think that's fine. Because anyone falsely accused should be very happy to defend themselves. And if they won't, that's very fishy. Let's say someone said, Todd Wattell has cheated at the World Series of Poker in 2022. I wouldn't say no comment. I would say, okay, uh, that's not true. (laughs) Let's see your proof. I want to hear these allegations. I want to know why anyone should believe you. I want to see any evidence that I cheated because I didn't. So you couldn't have such evidence. That's what I would say. I wouldn't go, oh, no comment. I'm not answering that. If you say that, obviously you're guilty. So I think that this can be effectively used. Nobody has a right to play poker. Nobody has a right 
to play at these live events. Nobody has a right to play on GG. Nobody has a right to play on PokerStars. Any venue can ban anyone for any reason. And I think it's time they start using that more often to get some of the cheaters out of the game. And furthermore, the fear of getting banned from all these events might actually disincentivize future cheating attempts, especially by people who are already beating the game anyway. So those who think they can get some extra money by cheating, they may think twice if getting caught will result them ne never playing the World Series of Poker or the World Poker Tour or the EPT or any of these events ever again. If they're shut out of all the poker tours, then they're going to go, crap, you know what? This isn't worth it. I'm not taking the chance. So there will be some teeth now, hopefully, to clamping down on cheaters. It's not just bashing them on Twitter or making memes about them. Now there will be some real consequences. Even if it's not criminal charges or any kind of court action, at least it's shutting them out of the community. This way you don't have to see Ali Imstrovic and Jake Schindler and Bryn Kenny running deep in tournaments and going, this isn't fair. Why are these guys even here? By the way, Jake Schindler is uh, very much in the running to be player of the year. So that'll be embarrassing for the World Series of Poker. And it's very possible that the World Series of Poker joined GG in this action because of something like this, because they don't want the embarrassment of Jake Schindler being player of the year. It's the last thing they want, trust me. The World Series of Poker is very conscious about their brand. The last thing they want is a highly suspected cheater as their player of the year. Even if he's not suspected of cheating the World Series of Poker, which he's not, just someone with that rep you don't want as your player of the year. You don't want to celebrate that person. Like last year's player of the year, Josh Aria, he was a great player of the year. Everybody likes him. He's a friendly guy. He's not accused of anything bad. He owns pocket fives. You know, that's, that's a great person to have your player of the year. You can... Celebrate Josh Arie up and down, and everyone will say, great, great for Josh. Not Jake Schindler. <laughs> That's not what they want. This is a good idea. I like it. I just hope they uh, would like to include Poker Fraud Alert. Now, you might say, why would they do that? Poker Fraud Alert is a seventh-tier poker forum and radio show. Who really cares about Poker Fraud Alert, you may say? We're on the fringes. We're not part of the cool kids of poker, you might say. Well, I have an answer for you. First of all, I don't care about that. I would like to be on something like the Poker Integrity Council, for obvious reasons, but I have never operated in the poker community to be seen as a cool guy or someone everyone likes or someone who is really popular. I haven't attempted to do that. I've always beat to my own drum. I kind of uh, fell in with the misfits of the poker world in uh, Never Win Poker back in the day, and I enjoyed it. I just didn't care about that. You know, this isn't high school. I don't have to be sitting at the cool kid's table. And, and I've made some good friends in the poker community, and I don't care if they're known players or famous players. This stuff doesn't matter to me. So that's the first thing. But it is nice to have influence. It is nice when people listen to what I have to say. It would be nicer if I had a bigger audience. Not that this audience is tiny. We have people who listen. We've got uh, a decent audience. But do we have a Doug Polk-sized audience? No, definitely not. And I wish we did, but we don't.
So this has always been kind of a niche site. If it was a site that nobody paid attention to, then I would have taken it down a long time ago. I wouldn't waste my time on it. So the only reason I waste my time with Poker Fraud Alert is because there are people interested in it, in both the forum and in this uh, radio show. Because, you know, if we had 30 people listening each week, then this would go down. I, I wouldn't continue with it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And I don't make money from it. So there has to be a, a certain number of people who are interested. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. But there's enough to where I, I continue with it. So in the 2000s, I was getting invited to a lot of parties during the World Series of Poker. At every World Series, I ended up at a lot of parties that people would hold, sometimes very large parties. But you had to be invited in some way. You couldn't just show up. Not only do you have to know about it, but you have to be someone that they want to have there. So in the 2000s, I was uh, known enough and notable enough to be invited to a lot of these parties, sometimes directly, sometimes through somebody else I knew that would ask if I could come and they'd say yes. But sometimes it was directly. You know, it, it was nice. I was, I, these were fun. And uh, not only were they fun, but often there was a lot of money behind these parties, which meant that uh, there were a lot of free things there. Free food. Free booze, which I didn't drink, but others with me would. You know, anything free, I can go there and eat good free food. I gotta say yes to that. But then it stopped. I'd say probably around Black Friday it stopped. And it's not that there were no more parties. There were fewer parties. But it stopped. No one invited me anymore. In fact, I will confess that since I started Poker Fraud Alert in 2012, I've gotten not a lot of invites. In fact, uh, from 2012 to 2021, the number of invites I've had to these poker parties has been... Zero point zero. Now, it's not that there's tons and tons of these and nobody's inviting me. There's far fewer than there were in the 2000s because the poker world contracted and the money that was behind these also disappeared because a lot of times the... Uh, these online poker sites, which don't exist anymore, were somewhat or completely sponsoring them. So, okay, there were a lot fewer of these, but there weren't zero, and I was getting zero invites. But I wasn't insulted, because again, I'm not trying to kiss anybody's ass. I'm not trying to make friends with all the right people who will get me invited. It's not that important to me. So it's one of these things where if I'm invited, great, and if I'm not, no big deal. If I was the type who really found this was important, then I I would have made an effort to kiss ass to the right people. But I did not, and I don't want to. Now, now here is somebody that, if he could get me into parties, then I I probably would ask him. Trader Risky, hello. What's happening, Trap? Yeah, so I'm discussing the, uh, the GG Poker Party, which I don't think you even know I went to. I did not. Well, you're, you're going to hear about it. So so this is what happened. Uh, something changed this year. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, something's changed. So the last that happened was in, I think it was 2019, either 18 or 19. Uh, some bad news was given to me by Seth Polanski, 
who was at the time the VP of communications for the World Series, and he was or for for Caesars, uh, and and was uh, was also right, I think just for the World Series, whatever. But uh, he was pretty high up at the World Series of Poker uh, hierarchy, as I've said before, and and we had a decent relationship. I know you know some people didn't like him. Uh, we weren't good buddies or anything, but you know he understood what we were about, and he respected that, and he would uh, always answer questions I had for him. So uh, I actually wasn't happy to see him leave, but he is gone now. He moved on to a different company. But he dropped some bad news on me that Poker Fraud Alert would not be getting any kind of media pass anymore, as we had for many years, and that it was not from anything we did, but that they were not going to allow player media anymore at the World Series. They claimed this was because of some kind of abuse that someone else did. They would not describe what happened, but I was told it was an incident, but it did not involve me, and it had to do with one of the vloggers. So <laughs> I was told that even though I followed the rules, that uh, the, this has to apply to everyone who's player media, including me. So if you are... Someone who's in media that also plays the events, then you cannot have a media pass. So what was I going to say? No, you better give me one? Like, okay, they, they don't want to give me one? I, I won't get one. So that was the end of my media pass. And that, that's the way it stayed for a few years. This year, uh, knowing that Seth is gone, and again, I, I wasn't happy to see him leave because we got along and he gave me uh, answers to my questions a lot of the times. He gave me information that I was able to use on the show when there were questions about things. But... I asked them at the World Series, has the policy maybe changed? And I thought maybe it changed because Seth was the one who made the decision a few years ago. Well, the answer was yes, they did change the policy and player media was once again allowed. So I applied for a media pass and I got one. It was granted. So that was good that I had that back. Interestingly enough, America's card room was denied a media pass and... Uh, I assumed, I don't know for sure, but I assumed that was because they compete with WSOP.com by being an illegally operating site in the U.S. market, and WSOP didn't like that. So that, that's my guess. I don't know if that's why they were denied it, but they were very upset that they, they didn't get a media pass. And I'm thinking, ha, 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 you know, big ACR doesn't get their media pass, and I do. What do you guys think of that? But we're a different type of site, of course. We're not competing with WSOP in any way. So we got our media pass. I was uh, happy about that. And I was especially happy about that because I will criticize the World Series sometimes. I'm not, a, I'm not one of the uh, bootlickers of the World Series. I, I will criticize them frequently if they do things wrong. I will also defend them when they're unfairly criticized. But I am not afraid to speak out when there's fail. So I was saying, all right, good. That's nice of them to still give that to me. Knowing, and they're aware of what we do here. They're very aware of what I have to say. And uh, they still gave the uh, media pass, so that's good. I give them credit for that. Then I actually would get these uh, releases to me as, as part of the credentialed media with instructions like, do not post this publicly, so I'm actually being told secrets. Now, it's not just g being given to me, but uh, I'm actually receiving things that the public's not supposed to know yet. Like, for example, remember where we talked about Vince Vaughn was going to be the MC of the World Series and I thought it was stupid? Well, I guess he didn't uh, do anything until day 1D of the main event. And uh, it was going to be a surprise, but he was going to show up and do the shuffle up and deal announcement. 
and also be the one to present the main event bracelet and what that looks like for 2022. So that was, uh, I guess he, he his work was just one day. I hope they didn't pay him too much. But this was like a secret. I, I got this sent to me, I think the day before it was going to occur, and it was uh, instructed in the email that this is not to be made public. So I thought, oh, that's funny. I'm being told these secrets now. Now, I did keep the secret. I didn't make it public. In fact, this is the first time I'm talking about it, and it happened uh, several days ago. But still, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm getting these little secrets now. And then came an invitation. I got an invitation from GG Poker to go to their party. Now, I don't know how long this party has been going on, but I did find footage of it last year on YouTube, and uh, maybe it goes back further than that. But there was definitely one last year that I did not get invited to. But this year, I got invited to it. This party was put on by GG Poker, and I have to imagine they footed the bill for it, but a number of people went to it who were not... GG Poker related, like the World Series of Poker executives were there, like uh, Jack Effel and Ty Stewart. They had someone who was uh, high up at 888 at the party. They had a number of uh, big name poker pros there at various points. Of course, they had all the GG pros there, but even ones that weren't GG pros, there were some there. And uh, a lot of poker media figures were there. And it was invite only. You had to be on the list. It was at the Nobu Villa, which is not the Nobu restaurant. Some people thought it was at the Nobu restaurant. It was not. It was uh, at the Nobu Villa. Now, do you know what that is, Chardarusky, the Nobu Villa? Is that, is that the place at Caesars? Well, okay. Isn't it like a separate hotel or something? Well, you're, you're, you're warm now. You're not quite there, but you're warm. Yes, the Nobu Hotel is a separate hotel at Caesars. It was once the Caesars Centurion Tower, which I believe was built in the 60s. And it was renovated to be the Nobu Hotel. And it is now considered a separate hotel, even though it is in Caesars. But I'm talking about the Nobu Villa, not just the Nobu Hotel. However, where you're correct is that the Nobu Villa is in the Nobu Hotel, that it has a special elevator that takes you just to the Nobu Villa. And it's in the same bank of elevators that take you up to the Nobu Hotel, but there's one special elevator that takes you directly to the Nobu Villa. So they had a, a guy standing there with a list of people allowed to go up there. And uh, I, I walked up and I said, I'm here for the GG party. The GG party was from uh, 7 to 11 p.m., by the way. You could show up any time. I showed up after 9. I wasn't even sure if I was going to go because I, I felt a little bit strange. Like, I'm just going by myself. I don't know who's there. Like, am I going to just wander around by myself? Like, who am I going to hang out with there? It felt a little bit awkward, but I'm like, you know what? I got to go. I haven't gone to these things uh, in ages. I, it kind of feels cool. I'd be, I was invited. And I, w I still wasn't sure why they invited me. Like, what, what changed here? Why was I invited all of a sudden? So I... Went up to the guy there, and I said, I'm here for the party. And he looked, and there I am on the list. He said, oh, yeah, I see you right here, yeah. So he, uh, I saw Todd Wattellis actually handwritten there. And they, he called the elevator, and I got in, and it uh, took me to the top. And I walked out, and there I was in the Nobu Villa. Now, again, what is the Nobu Villa? The Nobu Villa, and you can see it if you go to uh, Caesar's website, 
the Nobu Villa is a very, very expensive suite, giant suite, that you could rent at Nobu, at the Nobu Hotel. It is super expensive, as you might guess. It has a gigantic, I don't even know if I can call it a balcony, but like an outdoor area that is like a balcony, but it's huge. And in fact, I could see it when I would stay at Caesars, and I would look down on it and go, what is that thing? It looked like it was a restaurant or something, but I, like, I knew it wasn't. And I always wondered what that thing was. It turned out it uh, is the Nobu Villa. There's only one of them. So Gigi Poker must have rented out the Nobu Villa, and that's where this party was. I don't know if that's where it was last year, but that's where it was this year for sure. And so I went up there, took the special elevator, came out, and uh, they promoted this party as something that was going to uh, have a lot of uh, sushi. Of course, this is all free. And uh, it's going to have other food. It's going to have an open bar that, of course, is free. And they're going to have entertainment. So a lot of things are going to be going on at this party, apparently. I I decided I have to go. You know, if they're going to invite me, I got to go to this thing. They hired a group called Bella Electric Strings, which I hadn't heard of before. But it's a group of four girls who play uh, violin versions of popular rock songs from the 70s through the 90s. So it was actually pretty cool. They did a good job. It was interesting. I went up there. I, I kind of walked around the party. Uh, there wasn't much sushi left by the time I got there after 9, but I'm not a sushi eater anyway, so it didn't bother me. Uh, there was a lot of this like fried chicken, kind of like these... Uh, it's not like the fried chicken you'd think of. They were co- almost like uh, fried chicken wings, except there wasn't wings, and it was just more kind of like, like small pieces of chicken that were breaded. And fried, so I, I ate a lot of that. Uh, they had some sliders, but they were gone by the time I got there. The funny thing was, there was one slider there, so I grabbed it, and then the slider did not have any meat on it. <laughs> so then I, I seemed like an idiot because I was talking to some random guy there who started talking to me. So I, I mentioned to him like, "Why does the sliders have no meat?" And he's like, "What?" I said, "The sliders had no meat. I, I got a slider, and it was just uh, the bun." The sauce, the tomato, and the lettuce. Uh, I've never seen a slider like that. He goes, there's meat on there. What are you talking about? So it turned out I got the last one where the meat must have been, like, forgotten or something. So maybe that's why the one was still there, because people saw there was no meat in it. But you couldn't tell that he opened it. So I didn't understand, like, if someone opened it and saw no meat, why they didn't throw it away. I threw it away once I saw it. So I ate a lot of fried chicken. And... uh, what else did I eat there? Oh, I had some cheeses and some salami or whatever. Whatever was left. You know, I, I came late, so I'm not going to hold it against them for having less uh, food than I thought would be there. But, you know, it was free, so I'm not going to complain. And there, there were two open bars there. I'm not a drinker of alcohol, so I just had uh, Pepsi there. Haley Hintz was at the party, and I've gotten to know Haley over the years. And... Uh, I really like her. Nice, uh, nice woman. Very intelligent. Very good uh, poker reporter. So uh, talked to her a lot up there at the, at the party. And uh, I saw you know Negreanu was there. I believe he had played uh, the main event that day and already busted. And I, I didn't talk to him. Uh, Josh Arie was there. I wasn't sure what Josh Arie's role was because I don't believe he's affiliated with GG. But you know maybe he's friends with Negreanu or something. He, he was there with his uh, his wife, and 
then uh, I guess Helmuth was there at some point. I, he left before I got there, and, and Matt Glantz was apparently there at one point. He wasn't there when I was there either. I saw Joey Ingram was up there, and uh, that Rampage Poker guy you've been hearing about recently, he is he was there. Uh, Elkie was there, but he represents GG, so that's not a surprise. I'm trying to think who else was there. I, I saw you know a bunch of people. It wasn't like tons and tons of poker pros, at least when I was there. And a lot of people I didn't recognize. They were probably uh, either affiliated with GG or the media that I didn't know. But apparently at some point, a number of people came around who were pretty important figures in poker in some way or another. So I was glad I went. It was interesting. And then uh, towards the very end, as I was leaving, uh, I met the owner of GG Poker. And that was interesting. And I had a conversation with him. And uh, it was he's an Asian guy, and uh, he was nice, and, and we talked for a while there. That was towards the very end of it. I, for some reason, I wasn't even thinking, like, is, I, w- I wonder if the owner's here. But, yeah, the owner of GG Poker was, was there at the party, and I, I never even knew who he was before. So I talked to him. I, I talked to another person who was affiliated with GG Poker that uh, I had known a long time ago, and I didn't even know was still in poker. So that was uh, I. So you know, I, I got to talk to a uh, number of people there, and it was interesting. So I was happy they invited me. I hope they'll invite me again for 2023. I still don't know exactly what changed or why they invited me for 2022, but I'm not complaining. I like when they invite me to these things, and I like when anyone would want my feedback for anything. They weren't inviting me to this party for any kind of feedback, but I'm just saying that separately, like from the previous topic, I, I do like to have a say in things or give my opinion and have it listened to. I don't know. Maybe maybe something changed this year <laughs> to where Poker Fraud Alert is getting some uh, more recognition. Now, we already had recognition in the poker media, and you've probably seen, if you've read Card Player or Poker News or other things, you'll see a lot of times I'm quoted or Poker Fraud Alert is mentioned. So we've we've been mentioned a lot over the last few years especially. And part of that is because I get information a lot and I delve into stories and I also don't hesitate to offer my opinion. So a lot of times... I have very relevant quotes, but a lot of times they'll also acknowledge that I'm the one who, who broke something or, or found something. So you'll probably see if you read a lot of poker news that this site and I am quoted a lot. And that's why when I get something like a media pass, I don't go, oh, I don't belong to have this. Of course I do, because this really is poker media. In fact, we will cover a lot of things that others won't. So we're really the only fully independent and unbiased poker media in the world. And if you think I'm wrong, tell me who is. Tell me who is besides me. I'm not saying everybody's super biased, but we don't have any sponsors. And nobody influences me to say something or not to say something. And that's what you need to be fully independent and unbiased. So that's why it's important to... Listen to this show if you care about this sort of thing. If you care about stories in poker and in gambling where you're going to see extensive coverage and where we get to the bottom of things. like that's This is the place to be for it. So anyway, I, I enjoyed being invited there. And this was B2 
between my day one and two, this is when day one D was going, I played one C. So I hadn't yet busted from the main. And then I went to day two and busted the next day. So that was fun. But at least then I went over to the mixed Omaha and cash. So, okay. By the way, Trader Ruski, were you following my uh, mixed Omaha shenanigans where I had the short stack the whole way? Yeah, I caught some of it. Yeah. I, um, were, were you waiting for the tweet that, that I busted that just wasn't coming? I, I wasn't. I was slammed. <laughs> I was slammed. With oh, okay, you weren't watching. Last okay. seven days. Yeah, there were some people going, I just can't believe this. Like, why? Like, they just, people just were so waiting for the next thing being, uh, you know, I got it in with this and I busted, you know, oh, well, I just couldn't get cards. In the, I just went for 16 hours without that tweet coming. It's crazy. I don't think I'll ever do that again. I don't think I'll ever be able to like have a short stack from start to finish in cash. It's very hard to do. So anyway, how how deep deep did you go? I I got ninety six out of seven seventy one. So it cashed second tier cash. Anyway, uh, if you want to see, so that was the only sorry, Jeff, but that was the only band they had was the they didn't have like a. I would think they'd spend some money and get a big band there. No, it's 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 not as big of it's it's not like the two thousands poker stars parties where they'd get major major acts. And I knew that this is a, and in fact, I was talking to them about this, and they said uh, we wanted to revive these parties that were going on in the two thousands. And we're never going to be as big as what Poker Stars. We're not going to do the, what Poker Stars once did back in the 2000s. Poker Stars didn't even have a party, to my knowledge, anymore. But like, it's it's not going to be what it was back in the Super Poker Boom days. But they wanted to bring something back, so that's that's what they're doing. So you know, that, that's cool. And there's uh, if you want to see a lot of footage of the party, and this is actually all taken before I got there. So that's you're not you don't look for me. You're not going to see me. But Daniel Negreanu got very drunk there. And did footage. He was just going around, just talking to everybody. And on his vlog number thirty-seven on his channel, like in the second half of that vlog, you'll see like twenty minutes of footage. So you can see the Nobu Villa. You can see the view from there, which is very nice from the balcony. You can see who was there and the ground going around and talking to people, and you can get a good idea of it. Kind of like the first half that I wasn't there for. So. If you want to take a look at that, it's uh, Daniel's vlog number 37. That was the party I went to. So, okay, uh, moving on here. I want to talk about a controversy, and we can get Trader Ruski's opinion on this too, that happened on Poker Twitter between Jared Jaffe and a player named Brock Wilson. I had heard of Jared Jaffe before. I really hadn't heard of Brock Wilson. But apparently uh, Brock Wilson is a winning poker pro. And Jared Jaffe has been around for quite some time, and he's a a poker pro as well. Jared Jaffe is not related to Will Jaffe, by the way. Will Jaffe, who does those tough convos. He uh, is not related, but they're both kind of outspoken in different ways. I saw Jared Jaffe at the Mixed Omaha event, and he's a very tall guy. He's he's taller than me, in fact. But he called out this uh, Brock Wilson on Twitter, and people had different opinions on this as to uh, who did wrong. So I will tell you what happened, and then you can tell me what you think of it. So Jared Jaffe posted on 
Twitter on uh, June 26th. And you're not going to be able to see this unless you're following him, because for whatever reason, Jared Jaffe is uh, protecting his tweets. But I did post a copy of it on Poker Fraud Alert, because I am following him, so I just... uh, went and took the tweet and screenshotted it and put it up. So you could you could go to uh, the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum on Poker Fraud Alert and look for the thread, Jared Jaffe catches Brock Wilson, blah, blah, blah. So this is what Jared Jaffe posted. Anyone else interested in implementing a rule that states anyone caught doing this at a table receives 10 lashes or maybe just a good old-fashioned swirly? Thoughts at bwilson9999? And that's uh, Brock Wilson's Twitter. So what he posted was a picture of Brock Wilson sitting at a tournament at the win. Again, this is not the World Series. It happened during World Series time, but at the win. And he has up on his phone one of these charts of what to do in certain hands. You can't read exactly what is on the chart, but he was definitely consulting some kind of poker chart. And Brock Wilson is a pro. He's not looking at an amateurish chart saying, okay, well, uh, if someone opens, then you should three bet with uh, with jacks, queens, kings, aces, and ace, king, and flat with these. Like, it's not one of these amateurish charts. This is something that's much more advanced. So the question is, what was Brock Wilson looking at? Did it have to do with this tournament? And should this be allowed? Now, keep in mind that Wilson did not have cards in front of him while he was looking at this, so he wasn't consulting this chart on what to do in a hand he was in at the moment. He was clearly looking at it between hands. However, there are some who believe that this should not be allowed. And how was this caught on camera? Was it Jared Jaffe who took the picture, or was it uh, somebody else who took the picture? And was this right for someone to go behind Brock Wilson's shoulder and take a picture of this and humiliate him on social media about it. Why not just go to Brock and say, hey, what are you doing? I I don't really like this. So the reaction to this was mixed. A person named Joshua Adcock said, I've seen people doing it too. I kind of feel like it's cheating. What happened to just playing poker and going with reads? If I had to look at a chart for all my decisions, I wouldn't feel I accomplished anything after I won. And then a person named uh, Joseph said, I doubt he's trying to feel accomplished. I think he's going for the feeling of being paid. (laughs) Then others felt that this was okay because Brock Wilson wasn't in a hand. So if he wants to look at charts in between hands to become better, let him. So someone named Adam Demerseman said, all I see is a very hard worker studying a hand history during dead time. And then a person named uh, Jan Suchanek said, was going to say the same. I don't get what he's doing wrong. Now, the controversy got amplified because famed poker tournament director Matt Savage saw the tweet from Jared Jaffe and thanked him for what he thought was snapping the photo. It turned out that, by the way, Jaffe did not take the photo, but this is what uh, Savage thought, which is understandable. So he thanked Jared Jaffe for snapping the photo, and he said, uh, let me know your thoughts the Poker TDA summit, summit is next week. Thanks, Jared Jaffe. Now, the Poker TDA su- Summit is where poker tournament directors get together and discuss changes to the TDA rules, which is the uh, Tournament Directors Association, which is a set of standardized rules that 
a lot of tournaments will follow as agreed upon by tournament directors around the country. So he's saying that our meeting for that is next week. So thanks for bringing this up, Jared Jaffe. We're going to talk about this, not about Brock specifically, but what to do about this, what to make as far as rules here. So I guess that Matt Savage thanking Jared Jaffe sent Wilson over the edge. So he decided to explain further what happened here because Brock Brock Wilson at first wasn't commenting on this. But then he said, not sure why you're thanking this guy, Matt. He did this to be a bully, not to bring up something he even believes to be an actual issue. Since when does he care about the good of the game? He doesn't. He did it to make fun of me for being a, quote, nerd. It was twisted, and he went with it. So then Jared Jaffe responded, would have done it to, ev- to anyone, which, by the way, I believe is true. Then Brock Wilson said back, yeah, so when Aaron Massey came up behind me and took a pick and sent it to your group chat, I'm sure it was like, oh, my God, TDA issue here, guys. Let's post it to help the game. And this is what you came up with, punishing a nerdy behavior with a swirly. And then someone put a note down on my chips saying E equals MC squared. (laughs) (laughs) And waited with Aaron until I got back to laugh about it. I'm sure this is really you trying to help the game and not just be a prick. So so apparently Aaron Massey took this picture not uh, Jared Jaffe, sent it to Jared Jaffe. Jared Jaffe posted it on Twitter and and named Brock Wilson as the guy in the picture. And then someone, presumably Aaron Massey, actually put down a paper saying E equals MC squared while he was on break so he'd come back and then they could laugh at him about it. So, So Brock Wilson's point is, you're not trying to help poker, you're just trying to screw with me. And, and, and put down these uh, put down that note to make fun of me and uh, you're, you're just trying to mock me for being a nerd rather than actually trying to help anything in poker. So then Jared says back, I'm confident nobody thought the swirly was literal because remember he said that maybe he should get a swirly for doing this and and if he didn't take the picture and send it, how else would any of this have happened and did the E equals MC squared bit make you feel threatened? I think what you guys are doing is bad for poker, and the consensus seems to agree. Stop using this nerd bit as an excuse. I'd call anyone out for doing this, and crying like a baby about getting called out for doing exactly what you were doing is exactly what a nerd would do. Just be a man and say you don't give a fuck about anything but gaining every edge you can find. So let's stop here. Uh, I, I think that Jared has a lot of points here. Uh, I, I don't know why Brock is taking this, oh, you're just making fun of me for being a nerd thing. It's it's not like Brock spends a lot of time studying poker theory and then comes to the tournament and wins, and then they mock him, oh, you're just this nerd who constantly studies charts in your spare time and, and then bashes him for it. That's not what happened here. He's giving Brock a hard time not for using these charts as a study tool, but for using them at the table at a live live tournament as it is going on. And the reason this can be a problem is that, let's say Brock played a hand, and he wasn't sure afterwards if he did the right thing according to what these charts say you should do. So instead of waiting till after the tournament and and checking on this, he, he brings it up while at the table and takes a look and says, okay, I did this wrong. Next time I'm in this situation, I'm going to do it differently, even if it's next hand. And that's a big difference than after the tournament or even on the dinner break looking this up. 
actually having it at the table where you can quickly consult the chart to see if you did the right thing and correct any mistakes you made, that is starting to bridge into real-time assistance, in my opinion. Not quite as bad as actually having real-time assistance, but if you can consult these things in between hands, like right after the hand's over, I, I don't like that very much. And, and furthermore, if someone is next to you and sees you do it, who's a recreational player, they may not like it. They may think, what the hell is this guy doing? I have no chance if he's consulting these charts, which I don't have access to. I don't even know how to use them. So I, I don't think that's a great look for poker either. And I, I agree with uh, Jared's thoughts on that. And uh, this whole, th- I do think that Brock was using this, oh, you're picking on the nerd thing as a way to get sympathy. So let, let's talk about the E equals MC squared note. So w- was that really that bad? I, I think it's fine. I mean, they were doing it for a laugh, but okay, they, they caught him doing this, which may not have technically been against the rules, but they were kind of irritated that he was doing this in between hands. So they left kind of a little note to, to laugh about it, like uh, E equals MC squared was, was trying to, I mean, I guess in a way you could say he was mocking him for being a nerd and... Uh, looking, analyzing things with a chart in between hands, but it's not like they put a note on there saying, hey, nerd, better watch yourself in the parking lot. You're, you're going to get hurt. Like It wasn't like that. It's it just an E equals MC squared. I mean, that's not, uh, that's not something that's threatening at all. That's not something that is even insulting. It's just uh, kind of like a little prank, I guess, in, in response to them him doing something they didn't like. So I, I, that, that note isn't very bad, in my opinion. And some people were really criticizing the notes. So what happened was uh, Aaron Massey wrote on Twitter, E does equal MC squared. What's the problem? So someone named David Smith said back, it's pretty harassing to be placing it on someone's chips and laughing at them about it. Thank God it wasn't a woman and a tampon and a coat hanger. So, okay, you know, that's, that's not the same thing. They're not harassing him for being a nerd. They're harassing him for using that chart in between hands and they're doing it in a very gentle way by putting a, a little note on there that's a joke. So I, I don't like the don't pick on me for being a nerd routine to garner sympathy. Brock should have said back either, look, this is fine. I wasn't in a hand. I was just seeing, uh, just studying charts in between hands because I'm bored here in between hands and it's some idle time I have. And I like studying poker theory. And if you don't like it, then tough luck. You can do it if you want yourself. And when they make this something that's against the rules, I'll stop doing it. That would have been an okay response. But to say, oh, you're picking on the nerd, I don't, I don't really like that. It's, it's just not coming at this honestly. It's him trying to distract people from what's going on here. It's, it's either this is okay or it's not okay. If it's okay, then say why you're doing it. Then explain why this is okay. That's it. Don't, don't complain about E equals MC squared. Now, the poker TDA rules, I don't know if they changed it after the summit. It looked like kind of Matt Savage was interested in changing it. But the poker TDA rules at the time said this under electronic devices and communication. It said, players may not talk on a phone at the table. Ringtones, music, images, video, etc. should be inaudible and non-disturbing to others. Betting apps and charts may not be used by players with live hands. So he wasn't violating that. He was uh, not in a live hand. Other devices, tools, photography, videography, and communication must not create a nuisance, delay the game, or create competitive advantage and are subject to house and gaming regulations. So that last part could make it slightly against the rules because 
it could be said that it is creating competitive advantage for him to be able to consult a chart in between hands. It definitely doesn't create a nuisance or delay the game, but it might create a competitive advantage. So, you know, this I, I could see making this disallowed. In fact, if it were my decision, I would say you can't do it. I would say you cannot use any kind of poker analysis tools while you are sitting at the tournament table. If you want to do it on break, fine. If you want to do it at home, obviously fine. But you cannot do it while in the tournament area. You have to not be sitting at or near the poker table when you look at these things. That any kind of uh, tool that allows any kind of advanced tool to improve play that cannot be consulted while you're in the tournament area, except on official breaks. That, that would be the rule I would make. And maybe that is the rule they're going to make at the, at the TDA after that summit. But that would be the rule I would make there. So there are some people saying, hey, this is fine, as long as he's not using it to advise him while in a hand. Who cares if he wants to study past hands? Why does it matter if, if he does it right after the hand or if he does it during the dinner break or if he does it when he gets home? Like, Why does it matter if he does it right afterwards? Well, because uh, your memory is freshest right afterwards and you may have another hand right after that that you can play that's very similar and then you'll do better because of what the chart tells you. So you really shouldn't be able to consult these things while sitting at the table. And it's also just a bad look. That's that's my take on the matter. And I don't think that uh, Jared Jaffe did anything so terrible, nor uh, Aaron Massey with the E equals MC squared post or the or note or the post on social media. And in fact, if uh, Brock Wilson is that proud of what he was doing, that it's okay, just defend it. Just say, okay, well, this is why it's fine. And don't go, oh, you want to give the nerd a swirly. That's... He, he, Jared Jaffe wasn't talking about actually dragging Brock Wilson into the bathroom and giving him a swirly. I mean, come on. It's obvious that was a joke. So that's, that's where the oversensitivity comes in. And, you know, if I was doing this, if I was consulting these charts, which I wouldn't do, but if I was doing it, and then I got the E equals MC squared put on my chip stack when I came back from break, I would think, okay, Someone doesn't appreciate this. And, okay, like, do they have a point? Or maybe should I stop? Even if I disagree with them, maybe I see I'm pissing people off enough that maybe I should stop this. Maybe this isn't as as harmless as I think. Even if I think I should be able to, maybe it's creating enough of a problem here where I should quit. That's what I would think. I wouldn't go, oh, no, they're picking on me for being a nerd. I wouldn't think that. I would just think, okay, someone doesn't appreciate this. This is their subtle way of telling me. So That's how I feel about this whole thing, and... I I really think that solvers and charts should not be allowed at the WSOP or any other tournament, period. Make it clear to all players and then hand down penalties and bans if you catch them. And uh, if you can't win with your own brain, don't play. Now, I had some people saying, well, how can they police this? Uh, What are they going to do? Look at everybody's phone? Send the floor man around to spy over people's shoulders? I said, no, forget the enforcement part. They don't have to actively enforce and inspect what every player is doing on their phone at the table. I'm saying if something like this happens, make the rule clear, and if somebody happens to walk over and get snap a picture of you using a chart, then you're in trouble. That That's that simple. Just make it a rule where you can't do it. Or you know, even have the rule there, so if 
the guy next to you is doing it, you can bring the floor over and have the floor warn them. And that's it. Whereas right now you can't. Right now, Brock Wilson can do this to his heart's content. Really, if, if you can't win with your own brain, don't play. You can study all you want. You shouldn't be using these solvers at the table or charts at the table. Because these charts aren't simple charts. As I said, it's not simple stuff telling you when to three-bet pre-flop. These are complex tools that are taking input for certain situations and then advising you. Believe me, an experienced player like Brock Wilson isn't consulting a simple chart. So why why are these being consulted at the table? That's not fair. This shouldn't be part of poker. Trader Risky, how do you feel about this whole thing? I mean, I feel that it would be hard to enforce, so I have a rule against it. Um, but I think with, with what you last said, yeah, it could be something where if you get caught, you get a round penalty. Yeah, I mean, I'd be fine with that. I'm not looking for like aggressive enforcement. I don't, I don't need that every single person who looks at a chart gets caught and it's a tragedy if they don't. I'm just saying, have the rule on the books and have and if you see someone doing it, at least get get them a warning. Just just make it clear people can't do this crap. And and uh, and you know, if, as long as people know they can't do it, you're going to see a lot of people, a lot fewer people doing it. Like I, I'm pretty sure if Brock Wilson knew this was against the rules, which it wasn't, but if it was against the rules, that if if he was made aware, he just wouldn't do it. Even if he felt he he would like to, he wouldn't. I don't think he would do it. I think he's doing it because he knows he can. So that's that's all I want to see is I want to see this stopped. It's just something that's not fair and. I don't understand all people who are defending why this is okay because it's he's not in the hand. Why, why why is he consulting this at all? I don't think it's because he's bored. I think he's he's trying to review the hands he just played, and that shouldn't be happening while you're in the event. You do that later when you're back at home and you're thinking about hands you played. Yeah, but if he's just sitting there on his phone, I mean, I, you know, if it's I, I don't know. I guess I don't have that big of a problem with it. I don't think it's it a gigantic. Pro- I don't think it's a gigantic problem. It's just something I'd like to see stopped. I just don't think it should be something allowed even if it's not actively enforced or they're not actively looking for people violating it i just i think it should be on the books it's not allowed that's, uh, that's how i feel it could be the storyline for revenge of the nerds part three <laughs> actually there would be up to part five i think there was a part three and four that weren't very well known yeah, well, one of them was even a tv movie in fact in, in uh, i think it was in 94 i believe i even saw it there was a TV movie, Revenge of the Nerds, where you can actually go to 7-Eleven and buy things to scratch and sniff during the movie so you can smell different things happening in the movie. <laughs> it was pretty dumb. The Revenge of the Nerds franchise uh, pretty much hit rock bottom. First one was good, though. All right, so moving on. This is something that would also be a big story and early in the show if we didn't have a lot of other things to talk about. But I want to give you an update about the CoinFlex matter. Remember that? Remember CoinFlex, which was supposedly a stable coin, a cryptocurrency which is supposed to hold its value at a dollar and wasn't a risk? Remember Doug Polk was uh, promoting it on every one of his shows with a little CoinFlex logo in the background. And he was the official ambassador of CoinFlex. And CoinFlex was promising you interest paid every eight hours on your investment into CoinFlex. And somehow that was not going to create a problem. (laughs) Somehow the interest that was like 20% APY was going to be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. And 
they pretty much crashed and burned. They announced in June, in late June, that uh, withdrawals were frozen and that you cannot get your money out of there. Anything you invested is stuck at the moment. And they claim that they're just reorganizing and fixing things. But as I said on the last show where we talked about this happening, the pause of withdrawals is always a last resort when they simply cannot cover withdrawals being made. Because once they do that, then all faith in the coin is lost. And then the second they unpause the withdrawals, everybody's going to withdraw. It's going to be a big run on the bank. So you don't pause the withdrawals as long as you can process withdrawals. And it's not like everybody was withdrawing. So they could not even cover the few withdrawals that were happening before the pause, which is a big problem. And this obviously had the potential to make Doug Polk not look good, given how aggressively he was promoting it. Now, to be fair, as I said last time, Doug Polk did not start CoinFlex. Doug Polk did not own any of CoinFlex. Doug Polk was only a promoter. He was a paid promoter of CoinFlex. And he claims, and I think I believe him, that he was paid in FlexUSD, which was their coin. So if he could not withdraw, he would also not have made any money from the whole thing. And he was saying he's going to lose money on the whole thing. But what he was saying was that he's going to lose money because of the expenses that he had in promoting it. Basically, people that worked for him that were technically spending time that he was paying for helping him design his CoinFlex promotions. So that's kind of like an indirect loss. I mean, it is a real loss, but it looks like he didn't invest in it. It looks like that they probably paid him in FlexUSD for his promotion and then he never withdrew any of it. So if nobody can withdraw again, then he'll have gotten no money out of all the promotion, and then whatever he spent in promoting it is, is going to be a loss for him. I think that's what he's trying to say. I had said on the last show, two-plus weeks ago, that if Doug made any money on CoinFlex, promoting it, that is, that he should use that to help pay back his followers who lost money on the whole thing. But if he didn't make money, then he doesn't owe anyone anything. That basically, I don't want to really see him make money from this while everyone else who listened to him loses. But if he didn't make money, then there really is nothing to distribute. And that furthermore, with any cryptocurrency, it's buyer beware. And as long as Doug didn't know that there was a problem when he was promoting it, if it turned out the coin was mismanaged or was a scam and he didn't realize it, then while this wasn't the best decision for his personal brand and it's going to make him look bad, I don't really blame him for what happened here. He just kind of made a bad decision as far as uh, trusting a cryptocurrency and heavily promoting it when things could go wrong and things did go wrong. So that was my position last time. However, we were not quite at the point where Doug had fully quit. Uh, they had said that an estimated date that they're going to open up withdrawals was uh, June 30th. But they said that's an estimated date. They may not keep to it. So Doug put out a statement basically saying that he's going to wait till July 1st, which is the day following the June 30th uh, deadline, which wasn't even a hard deadline on their end, but that is a, a day following it. And then he's going to put out his own statement. So it was pretty easy to predict that what was going to happen was that they were not going to do anything different on June 30th and that indeed on July 1st, the Doug would officially quit. 
So our last show was on uh, June 26th. And I figured that uh, the next statement was going to be Doug quitting and probably making some uh, harsh statements about them because they obviously put him in a bad position. Now, an interesting twist came before Doug was able to make his statement. On June 28th, and this is an update since our last segment on June 26th, because this happened two days later. On June 28th, Mark Lamb, the CEO of CoinFlex, made a statement blaming a very well-known figure in cryptocurrency for the issues on CoinFlex. This is what Mark Lamb tweeted on June 28th. Roger Ver owes CoinFlex $47 million in USD coin. USD coin is another stable coin that is pegged to a dollar. So he claims that uh, Roger Ver owes them $47 million worth of USD coin. Roger Ver is a very uh, longtime figure in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and eventually left Bitcoin to create Bitcoin Cash. So that's who he is, and he's been a longtime respected figure in cryptocurrency, though somewhat controversial. Someone who is friends with Roger Ver and really, really admires him is my former radio partner on a different site, Brian Mikon. In fact, uh, Mikon has some pictures of himself on Roger Ver's jet. So Roger Ver was accused of owing CoinFlex $47 million worth of USD coin. Mark Lamb wrote, we have a written contract with him obligating him to personally guarantee any negative equity on his CoinFlex account and top up margin regularly. He has been in default of this agreement and we have served a notice of default. He has a long track record of topping up margin and meeting margin requirements in accordance with this agreement. We have been speaking to him on calls frequently about the situation with the aim of resolving it. We still would like to resolve it. He is denying that the debt pertains to him and so we felt the need to clarify to the public that, yes, the debt is 100% related to his account. Roger Ver, a citizen of the European Union, who we believe has significant assets in the U.S., U.K., and other relevant jurisdictions, CoinFlex also categorically denies that we have any debts owing to him. His statement is blatantly false. It is unfortunate that Roger Ver needs to resort to such tactics in order to deflect from his liabilities and responsibilities. Now, what are they referring to? Well... This statement was made at 10, 11 a.m. Pacific time on June 28th. About 40 minutes beforehand, Roger Ver, hearing that there were some rumors that he was the one who uh, caused the whole CoinFlex mess, posted this. He got ahead of it by posting this, and then Mark Lamb responded with what I just read you there. This is what Roger Ver said about 35 minutes beforehand. Recently, some rumors have been spreading that I have defaulted on a debt to a counterparty, referring to CoinFlex. These rumors are false. Not only do I have not have a debt to this counterparty, but this counterparty owes me a substantial sum of money, and I'm currently seeking the return of my funds. Hmm, that's interesting. So we have Mark Lamb, CEO of CoinFlex, saying, hey, you guys, uh, we're owed by uh, Roger Ver $47 million in USD coin, and that's why we're having our problems. And Roger Ver is saying, no, I don't owe that, and in fact, they owe me. So which one is it? Who owes who? Or could they possibly both be full of crap? In the meantime, CoinFlex released a new token called RVUSD. They claim RV stands for recovery, but some people think that RV is kind of a swipe at Roger Ver. 
it's lowercase rv capital usd and that's attempting to get the 47 million back they're promising 20 percent apy interest on anyone buying rv usd paid daily <laughs> so they're releasing a new coin to raise money for the previous coin that they messed up i don't think that's going to work so is it possible that Roger Ver was really the cause here? Is it possible that Roger Ver is broke and screwed CoinFlex here? Or did CoinFlex screw him and they're trying to use him as a scapegoat? Or is it both? Or is it neither? Well, I have been looking at this and I think I have a theory. And then we'll get to Doug Polk's statement. But I have a theory uh, as to what happened here. So they clarified a little bit more about the Roger Ver situation that Roger Ver had an investment in CoinFlex but it was an unbacked investment basically he agreed to uh, invest in CoinFlex but not actually give them the money to hold but that basically if they needed the money he had a contract to give it to them and that's what they were referring to there I have to assume the reason that this was done in such a way is that they probably got him to agree to invest in CoinFlex, but at the same time, he didn't trust them enough to hand them $47 million worth of USD coin, which they could just steal or misuse and screw him. So he probably said, look, I am a very reliable person. I've been in the crypto world for so long, and I have a lot of assets, as you know. So if I say I'm going to back it, I'm backing it. So I am backing it. You're just not going to hold the money. I'm going to hold the money. And then uh, when the money is actually needed, then I will put it up there. But you're not going to physically hold it because you could just run up, run off with it or misuse it. And uh, then I'll be at 47 million bucks. I th- that, that's my guess of, of the way the whole agreement was. And why would CoinFlex agree to this? Because if they didn't, then he probably would have said, F you, I'm not investing then. So that's what I think uh, probably happened. So then... Uh, you may wonder if Roger Ver did have a $47 million investment where he was actually holding it and hadn't actually given it to them and just had a, an agreement to give it to them as needed, then isn't it still his fault if when they needed it that he didn't provide it? Well, we're going to get to that. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to play... Doug Polk's statement about this, because remember, he made a statement and it was a video statement. The statement is called, I stepped down as CoinFlex ambassador. He released it on July 1st, as promised. And I'm going to play what he told everybody, and then I'm going to stop and comment on it. And then we will connect it to what I'm saying here about the Roger Ver situation, which he discusses as well. On June 23rd, cryptocurrency exchange CoinFlex paused user withdrawals and stated they would have an update on the 27th and that hopefully withdrawals would begin by the 30th. I resigned as global ambassador for CoinFlex on June 28th once I got everything squared away on the legal front. And I'm making my statement today, July 1st, because I didn't want to play a role in potentially harming the ability for people to get paid out. There is a delicate line to walk here because what an attorney might tell you is that you should probably say nothing at all. But there are a couple of things here that are really important and why I think I need to make a statement. For starters, I think my audience has always valued the fact that I'm honest and direct with them and that I don't basically hide and shy away from things. 
I try to be forthcoming and say what needs to be said. And second off, the reason that we're in this situation, simply put, is that CoinFlex said that these assets were collateralized and they were not, as that became evident when Roger Ver had a $47 million position that did not have the collateral posted on the site. Over the course of the past six to seven months on this channel and on some of my other YouTube channels as well, I've been promoting CoinFlex and some of their yield earning products, most specifically FlexUSD. Let me stop right here. About this collateralized thing, Doug is saying that he was told that all of the assets that CoinFlex claimed to have that were backing their coin, that they actually were holding those assets. That's what he meant by collateralized. And that he didn't know that Roger Ver basically had $47 million invested on credit where he was actually holding the money and where they didn't have access to it unless he were to release it to them. So Doug is saying he wasn't aware of that. In these advertisements, I say that FlexUSD is fully collateralized because it's advertised as fully collateralized on CoinFlex's platform. And I was also personally told that this was fully collateralized. For those of you that don't know what fully collateralized means, it means that for every dollar that essentially you're being issued in the stablecoin, there are assets behind it that represent the value of that coin. Essentially, they represent giving value to that coin so that you can redeem the money at one-to-one with USDC. Okay, that's good. But I am wondering, since Doug has people that work for him and that help him out, why didn't someone verify this in some way that it really was collateralized? It could have been done. And that that was a mistake on his part not to make sure it really is. It's one thing for them to tell him it's collateralized. It's another thing for him to see evidence it is. That was a misstep on his part. I don't think it was a an intentional misstep. I just think that he was too trusting. On June 23rd, CoinFlex paused withdrawals. Basically, people could no longer withdraw their money. So even if you had FlexUSD, you could redeem it for USDC, but you were unable to withdraw that money. I had to learn this from Twitter. I saw someone tweet that they had paused withdrawals and people are forwarding this to me. I was not told by anyone at the CoinFlex team that this would be happening. Instead, I had to learn by people essentially directing me to this and saying what's going on when I simply had no idea and no one had given me any information. At this point, I became very concerned with the business, a business I might add I have 0% equity ownership in because a cryptocurrency exchange should never be pausing withdrawals. That is a giant red flag and many cases of this happening in the past, those sites have gone under never to pay out their user balances at all. That's not to say we're at that point right now. I don't know exactly what's gonna happen now, guys, because I don't run this company. I have 0% equity in this company. And I'm not sure what's happening behind the scenes or what assets they hold. So realistically, at this point, your guess is as good as mine. But what I do want to walk you through is why I got involved in representing this company to begin with, the specifics of my deal. And then also, additionally, I want to talk about maybe some things that could happen moving forward. First things first, how did I meet the CoinFlex guys? So I actually, I met one of the CoinFlex members uh, a couple of years ago through a poker community. And then I also had someone introduce me via mutual contact. I don't want to say anyone's name that potentially blows them up or makes them seem guilty or liable in some fashion. But essentially through mutual contacts, I came across the CoinFlex team. When I first met the CEO, Mark Lamb, or first heard of the CEO, Mark Lamb, I did a little background on him and everything checked out. He essentially had several different businesses beforehand, including CoinFloor, which is one of the largest, which was one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in England. He had many years of operating that site with no problems as far as what I could find online. 
And so I began to dig a little bit deeper and look at some references. At that point, I talked to a lot of people that were networked in the cryptocurrency community, and everyone had great things to say about Mark and basically the CoinFlex team. There was no red flags whatsoever. No one had anything critical to say. There was no, there were no allegations leading up to this point whatsoever. So when we talk about what the background is, and I see people making these comments online, like, oh, you, this is what you get for not like doing your homework and not like... I did do my homework. I don't, I don't want to blow up people people's spot here on who said what about if these guys were good or not. I, I don't want to talk about who invested in this company because there are some notable investors on their cap table. I don't want to bring other people into it, but I put a lot of research and effort into this. I've promoted almost zero companies outside of CoinFlex that I don't personally own on this channel and other channels. I care a lot about my name. I have passed on almost every deal that's come my way. So when I did take one, I put a lot of research and thought into who I was partnering with. And the reality is that these guys had a good track record. They had essentially in the past been involved in legitimate companies. And I thought that this was going to be fine moving forward. When I was first discussing my contract with CoinFlex, they told me that Roger Ver was an investor in the company, which was probably my biggest hang up with this entire situation. In the past, I have talked about Roger Ver. I actually did a video on him about four years ago. He claimed on a podcast that I turned down talking to him in person or something that just simply never happened. Basically, he just made something up on his podcast talking shit about me. I've long had very little respect for Roger, but I was told that he's just an investor and not involved in the operations of the company. And so I put that to the side because basically everything else seemed to check out. As for my specific contract with CoinFlex, and I have to be very careful with what I say here. I think you'll understand why that might be. Well, if the tokens at CoinFlex are not paid out and you include the additional costs that I took on from staffing, I will have made less than $0. I will actually end up with a loss on this deal. I'm not looking for sympathy here whatsoever. I'm just simply trying to be honest that if it turns out that CoinFlex is not able to pay out these tokens, that I'm going to end up having lost money here too. So this is not a situation where uh, I just got people into something I wasn't involved in to make a quick buck and got paid on the side. I actually had my own money at stake here. And Okay, let me stop right here. A lot of people are taking issue with this statement and he keeps repeating it on Twitter. He actually types in caps, I lost money. Well, I don't think he should be putting it this way. Now, factually, this is probably correct. It's probably correct that he only got paid in FlexUSD, never cashed out any, can't cash it out now, and he did have some sp staffing expenses in which he paid some people to help him prepare some uh, promotional material or even just uh, simply to have that logo put in the background or whatever it might be, is that technically he might have spent a little bit on staff members working on promoting CoinFlex. But it's not a lot of money he spent, I have to guess, on promoting CoinFlex. So given that the amount of money he, quote, lost was not very much, I have to guess. I don't know. I haven't seen his books, but I would guess not much. And it's pretty clear from what he's saying, even though he's not directly saying it, that he didn't buy any Flex, that he just uh, received it and didn't cash it out. And that the reason he lost money is because he's getting zero income from it and yet spend some money on staffing. You shouldn't equate that to others who lost money by listening to you and investing. That's kind of tone deaf. So what he should just say is, my flex, which I was paid to promote it, is stuck just like yours. So I didn't make any money here. I believed in it so much that I never withdrew any myself. 
So this blindsided me. And had I thought there was anything shady, uh, why would I have left this in there to get screwed myself? So I'm really sorry this happened. I didn't see it coming. And now I really wish I hadn't promoted it. But uh, I, di- I didn't make anything from this when it's all said and done unless they open withdrawals. Like, that would be fine to say. So people understand that he wasn't paid U.S. dollars to promote this and then just walks away with it while everyone else who invested is screwed. But to say he lost money like the other people, no, because he got the Flex USD for free, it sounds like, where others actually bought into it. So he shouldn't equate himself to these people. It doesn't sound very good. And he's taking a lot of heat on Twitter for saying that. And I understand it, even though what he's saying is factual. It's just not put in a way that I think uh, is sounding sympathetic. And will lose unless these payouts are processed. As for how this played out, so on the 23rd, it just was announced that CoinFlex has paused withdrawals. I had no knowledge whatsoever this was going to happen. And in fact, was a little bit upset that no one had bothered to tell me that my reputation was going to be under attack. I'm sure he was very upset. Like, I, I really do believe him that he had no idea this was coming, that he thought CoinFlex was legit, and that he had really not promoted anything that he didn't own himself. And then he finally gets into promoting something he doesn't own. And he's like, oh, my God, this is going to be a scam. And my name is going to be associated. This is awful. And they're not even warning me it's coming. <laughs> I had to find out from others complaining they can't withdraw. So I'm sure he was furious and rightfully so. By people saying that this exchange is not paying out withdrawals when I had no knowledge at all that this was even going to occur. So at that point, I became very worried. I reached out to my attorneys to start the process of potentially looking into resigning and began to look at what the updates were like. At that point, CoinFlex issued a statement saying that they were going to, on the 27th, release an update, and on the 30th, they were looking to process withdrawals, and that essentially a counterparty had defaulted on a large position. At that point, I figured that it was likely this was a non-collateralized position. Ultimately, it became known that this was a non-collateralized position. So basically, someone had a large position on CoinFlex that was not backed by real assets that they could liquidate in order to pay people out. On the 27th, Mark Lamb went on to Bloomberg and announced what the game plan would be moving forward through a new token called RVUSD, where you would essentially be buying debt in the company through a token form and being paid 20% interest on that token. Let me stop before he talks about RVUSD. To show you how big this got, yeah, Mark Lamb appeared on Bloomberg and there was an article on CNBC about it. So this was not like a little thing that they're only talking about in uh, crypto and poker circles. This became mainstream news. Now, Doug Polk was not discussed in mainstream news, but what happened with this coin was big enough to where Bloomberg and CNBC were talking about it. It was at that moment that I knew I simply had to resign from this company because the way the optics on a new token, regardless of the legitimacy of that token or not, relying on a new token now to try and raise money to pay back this debt and offering interest on that that comes from the person that owes the money, it's just a terrible look in my opinion. And I no longer thought that my reputation could withstand these the damage that I was taking. In fact, I've been, you know, the joke of, the butt of many jokes on different subreddits and social media and whatever else that might be. And I understand as the ambassador for a site, you're going to take that kind of heat. But Okay, that's unfortunately not the way that it's going today. So this is July 1st. And on July 1st, Doug actually was doing a pretty good job of having a very thick skin 
and understanding that when something like this happens, that there's going to be people who are going to be mocking him, especially because he has uh, given a hard time to a lot of people over the years for things that he felt they did wrong. And that, uh, you know, that now that he was promoting something that ended up screwing a lot of people, that he was going to be the butt of a lot of jokes and criticism, and that he said that comes with the territory, I, I fully understand it. That was a very mature statement and a good way to handle it and to acknowledge that. Unfortunately, uh, it looks like the criticism has gotten to Doug since then, which we're going to discuss in the later part of this segment. And he's now battling with people about this matter, including Phil Helmuth. So we will get to this after I play the video. But at that point, I could no longer take the damage that was being done to my name by these plans to now raise more money through other token vehicles, it became clear I had to resign. There are examples of other exchanges using tokens to raise debt uh, to essentially try and save an exchange. Bitfinex did something similar, but they weren't saying 20% return on those tokens. I think there's a, a pretty big difference between those two things. However, I don't fully understand the tokenomics of either one, so I don't want to get carried away on something that I'm not fully knowledgeable about. And for the record, I do hope that everything does work out for CoinFlex so that people get paid. However, it's not a good look to slap a new token on something that has now basically defaulted because you had an uncollateralized position. We're now putting tokens on tokens to save tokens. That's not a very good look from a PR perspective. That's correct, and he's right, and it's a terrible look, and it is very suspicious. I don't believe it was the RV token that made him bail out. I think it's the fact that they're not allowing withdrawals that made him bail out. Doug is smart enough to know that when they stop withdrawals, it's because they basically have nothing. Otherwise, if they had even a percentage, some kind of uh, even smallish percentage, like 5% still there, that as long as the withdrawals weren't coming fast and furious, which they wouldn't be if no one knew there's a problem, that they could still cover it and no one would be the wiser. So I think he knows that them stopping withdrawals is awful. In fact, he even said that at the beginning, and that is really why he bailed out. The RV thing doesn't help either. That also looks suspicious, but I don't think that was what made him leave. I think he's just kind of coming up with a reason why he left then instead of right when he heard about the withdrawals. On the morning of the 28th, rumors began circulating that the person that owed the money was in fact Roger Vare. Again, I learned this initially from Twitter, where I saw a tweet that a confirmed insider had shown or had documents or something that Roger Vare was the person that owed the money. I had a meeting with CoinFlex that morning where I resigned. And at that point, I became aware that it was in fact Roger Vare that owed the money. And Mark Lamb tweeted out afterwards saying that Roger Vare owed CoinFlex $47 million. At this point, Roger Vare now comes out and says essentially the opposite. In fact, that he does know the money and that Recently, some rumors have been spreading that I have defaulted on a debt to a counterparty. These rumors are false. Not only do I not have a debt to this counterparty, but this counterparty owes me a substantial sum of money, and I currently am seeking the return of my funds. So now we have CoinFlex CEO and Roger Vare arguing about who owes money to who. Withdrawals are paused. People can't get paid out. And there are a lot of people very worried about their money, rightfully so, as to what's going to happen. And now a big underlying question here is, the token, the RVUSD token, was essentially because a super, an ultra high net worth quote unquote person owed the debt and would pay it back with interest. But now that person is saying they don't owe the debt and 
I mean, I would assume are not going to pay back money that they don't owe. So how can we still be raising this money as a token for someone that will pay back a debt they're saying they don't owe? I don't fully understand that situation, but it seems not good. There's another side of this that I've been learning about over the last couple of days. In fact, a lot of it I've been learning about today where CoinFlex operated as a bridge where people could essentially send them Bitcoin cash and they'd give them S Bitcoin, SBCH. So send BCH, get SBCH. And you could use that to essentially do decentralized finance, different, basically use Bitcoin cash on a Ethereum like network so that you could have trades and swaps and loans and all that kind of thing. Well, the bridge address has over 100,000 Bitcoin cash in it currently and CoinFlex controls that bridge. However, they're not letting people withdraw because they're saying that falls under the jurisdiction of other clients with CoinFlex. So basically, those people can't redeem their money at one-to-one with Bitcoin Cash now because they're being lumped in with everyone else. And one thing that strikes me about all of this is that Look, I'm not an attorney, obviously. Uh, I certainly am not specialized in international cryptocurrency exchange law. So I don't know what they should or shouldn't do. And it's possible that their attorneys are saying, hey, freeze everything until we figure all this out. I don't know. I'm not an attorney. That could maybe be something an attorney would say. I really don't know. But what I can say is when you pause withdrawals, it's oftentimes the nail in the coffin for for an exchange because when you unpause them, there's a run in the bank to get out of there and people won't trust you in the future. And so those will be real problems for CoinFlex if they do manage to, to overcome this and open things back up. I'll also say that there seems to be a clear lack of segregation of these accounts, in my opinion. And basically, the Flex USD should have been fully collateralized with assets that weren't commingled with anything else. And the smart BCH, well, all the, all the Bitcoin cash is still there. So it's not like that money is gone or anything. But basically, I feel like these entities should have maybe been run slightly independently and segregated correctly. And then maybe we wouldn't be having this problem today. So that's a breakdown of what's happened over the past week or so. And now I want to give my opinion about things I think that the company CoinFlex should do, again, not related to me in any capacity. I don't own part of the company. I'm not hired by the company. I don't represent the company. This is just my opinion, Doug, what I think they should do from this point moving forward to try and rectify some of these issues. For starters, now that we are outside of the original timeline for when withdrawals may begin being processed, I think it would be great if we could see a balance sheet as for the the assets and the liabilities of this company and where they stand today. Because as of right now, we're told that basically they cannot pay out because of this liability to Roger, but we don't know the assets and we don't know the liabilities. For starters, there's 137 million Flex USD tokens currently out there in the wild. Even if there's $47 million owed that was not did not have the collateral put up for it, which was undoubtedly a mistake from them based on what they were advertising, there should still be a difference of $90 million in collateral there. If that's true... That's still the majority of the money that would be owed to be paid out. Okay, that's the best point he's raised so far. That's the best point, and that's a great question. Even if Roger Ver did screw them out of $47 million, where's the other 90 There's $137 million tokens they issued of worth a dollar each. So it's $137 million that they're supposed to be holding. And even if 47000 or $47 million was promised by Roger Ver, but not actually put up, and then he doesn't want to actually put it up, they should still have $90 million. So where'd it go? And how come they're not showing it? And it's probably because it's not there. 
it's possible that Roger Ver really is refusing to put up that $47 million, but there may be a good reason for it, which I will explain shortly. Additionally, we know that they have $10 million on this bridge that they're saying falls under the jurisdiction of all client funds. I don't know if that's true or not. Obviously, I'm not an attorney, but that's more money that we know that they have. Additionally, there are some amount of user deposits. So we know that there has to be a non-zero amount of money that's also just on the exchange and user deposits. So it would be great if the community could know, is this a situation where they still have 70, 75% of the assets they should? Or is this a situation where there are much greater liabilities than we actually know? Because if everything was fully collateralized until the Roger Ver moment, 137 million flex USD coins, and they're all collateralized. Well, when 47 million is now owed to Roger, or sorry, Roger owes to the Flex USD, and we now have this this difference, there still should be an underlying difference of $90 million in collateral. And I think that the people have a right to know if that exists or not. Second off, at least at the time of this recording... Okay, before we get to second, it doesn't exist. I, I can't see how it exists because then they could process withdrawals. Remember, nobody knew this was happening. Nobody knew this was coming. Doug didn't know this was coming. So if they had $90 million sitting there, they could easily process the withdrawals many times over because most people were not withdrawing. So obviously when they're pausing this, there's a big problem. The problem is that they cannot pay anybody, that the withdrawals were just more than they had left, which is probably very little. As Doug said, once they pause the withdrawals, when they unpause it, everyone's going to want to get out immediately. And that's going to be the run on the back and be the end of the coin. So for sure, that was a last resort. And if they had $90 million still sitting there in assets, they would not even be close to that last resort. And the fact that they will not show what they have is very bad. The website still looks exactly the same. And as far as I understand it, over the last few days, people have still been allowed to deposit. There should be very large warnings for people to know that if they deposit right now, they will not be able to withdraw their funds to protect people from being able to deposit into this situation where they might not get their money back. I also think it would be good if CoinFlex would talk about some possibility of socializing the losses so that everyone will take a haircut on their balances. And I know that that is something that they are really trying to stay away from saying or doing. However, I think people are a little more panicked that the plan is we got to raise the money, we got to raise the money or bust sort of mentality, at least from the outside, that's what it looks like. When we would like to know, as someone that has tokens on CoinFlex, if the worst case scenario happens, what percentage of my balance am I looking at losing? It's probably very high. And that's why they're not doing it. The fact that they're taking deposits, of course, looks terrible. And we've seen that with poker sites over and over, scam poker sites that don't pay anyone but are taking deposits all the way up till the end. Lock Poker was known for that, but many others did too. And of course, they're not going to put a warning because no one will deposit if there's a warning. They, they want to trick the few suckers left who haven't heard about this into putting more money in. And obviously, whatever's left is such a small percentage that nobody would accept it. So, for example, if they would say, hey, we can pay out 70% of the balances, let's just do this. Sorry, it didn't work out, but at least you'll get 70% back. Uh, people won't be thrilled, but th they'll do it and say, at least we didn't get nothing. And Drop, why would they wait till $47 million to, wouldn't they, why would it get all the way to $47 million rather than at them asking for like 5 to 10 along the way? Did it just move that fast? That's what he invested 
basically he said, I'm willing to invest $47 million, but you're not holding it. I'm investing right. it, but you're you're only going to have access to it uh, as needed. I'm not <coughs> sure when or how, but uh, and then I'll get to in a second why I think he he refused to give any when it was needed. But uh, right. as needed, so it's almost like he's giving them a credit line. Right, is exactly he, what he was doing. Yes, and then, he and now need it all. That just seemed a little uh, shady. Well, I'll, I'll, it is, but I'll, I'll get to what I think happened very shortly. I think that would be a good constructive step towards this is our worst case scenario. Let's explore that. This is what we're trying to do. Some other things that I think might be good ideas as well is explain why a token, the RVUSE token, was superior to, for example, just take essentially selling equity in the company and raising money to allow investors to buy essentially into this company and cover the debt that way. Basically, a more traditional way of raising money in a company because if you did it like that or maybe if you had some sort of bridge loan or some something where basically you were able to finance this in either the short term or through equity in the long term, I think people would feel more safe with that than a new token promising interest rate. At least explain why this wasn't the one that was used rather than the more traditional aspects to business rather than this new token that I think makes a lot of people feel very worried. I also think that if you're going to go ahead and name the party, the, name the person that owes you this money, maybe some kind of documentation might go a long way as well. I'm sure there's some legal risk there, but if we're at the point where we're naming him publicly and saying it's this dollar value, potentially posting some proof, I think, would make people feel a lot better about it as well. A couple last items. I think it would be good if we saw a tone shift from how are we going to raise this new money to, to figure things out here to what's our plan for what we do when we don't raise this money and or this is currently what we have. So not what can we get, but rather what do we have? I think that approach would make people feel a lot more calm as well. Anyway, I hope that CoinFlex can figure out a way to raise the money and get people paid back. But whether they do or not, I want to say that I'm sorry to the viewers of this channel who have been put in harm's way because of the actions taken by CoinFlex. The bottom line was they said that their stablecoin was fully collateralized and it was not. It just ends right there. It's kind of a weird ending. And it was not. Over. <laughs> kind of not really much of a conclusion. But putting that aside, let's discuss this. So, I already talked about him losing money on the deal. And he really didn't lose money. He kind of just didn't make money from it. And maybe spent very little on staffing. To, because he's not staffing anyone just for CoinFlex. He just has existing staff that may have worked on it a little bit. But as I said, he brought up some good points. I think this is kind of like a full tilt situation, to be honest. If you remember, when full tilt was exposed for not having the money on deposit, they claimed that the problem was that they could not find a payment processor. So what they were doing in the meantime was taking deposits, giving people credit for deposits, but actually not withdrawing from their bank account until they got a processor to do so. And then they got interrupted by Black Friday where they couldn't do so anymore. And then they were stuck with a uh, big deficit of uh, deposits they could never collect. Unfortunately, that wasn't the whole story. That was only a small part of the story. Now, that part was true. They did have an issue with the processor. They weren't actually collecting the funds for some time. But that wasn't the whole cause of it. The whole cause of it was stealing money out of the player pool 
that was supposed to be money for players that they had on deposit. They were stealing that money for marketing and distribution to owners because owners were expecting distributions. They didn't want to stop. They wanted to make the company look successful. So they were, they were sending this to owners. And then they were also using those funds for marketing when these are supposed to be untouchable, segregated player funds. So that's really what happened. The processor thing was just a part of it, but that wasn't the cause. That was just the final kick in the ass to where the minimal money they did have left wasn't coming in anymore, and then they were broke. This is kind of like if you had to be at work at 9 a.m. and work is an hour away, that you leave home at 8.55 a.m. with just five minutes to get there with a place that's an hour away, and then you run into terrible traffic also, and you arrive there at 10.30. So then your boss comes to your office and says, you're an hour and a half late. What the hell? And you say, oh, well, I'm sorry. I I live a good distance away, and I hit terrible traffic. Well, you're not lying. You hit terrible traffic, but the terrible traffic only caused you a half-hour delay. The other hour, you just left late. You just leave that part out. So similarly, full tilt, they chunked off most of the player funds by just outright stealing it, and it was only the last part of the player funds that were lost because of the payment processor issue, which also shouldn't have happened. They just should not credit anyone if they really cannot take the funds out of people's accounts. And getting back to CoinFlex, clearly they must have stolen or wasted the assets on deposit. And they are now blaming Roger Ver for the entire coin crashing down, which doesn't make any sense, as even Doug Polk pointed out. Like, if it's only $47 million, where did the other 90 go? And why are they not showing the 90 exists? And why are they not using the 90 for withdrawals? They would have never had to pause if they had the 90. Now, let's try to figure out, is it Roger Ver at fault, at least partially? Or is it CoinFlex? Well, I actually think it was CoinFlex. This is what I think happened. I believe, as Trader Ruski said, that the $47 million investment was basically on credit. And they knew that Roger Ver was so crypto-rich that he didn't have to put up the fund. They figured he'll be good for it. And they gave him credit for being good for it, which he probably is. And he probably said, this is the only way I'm going to invest. You guys are not holding my $47 million. There's no fucking way. Now, remember, CoinFlex investors were supposed to be earning interest, quote, every eight hours. Think of how much interest Roger Ver must have been earning on his $47 million worth of FlexUSD. He must have been earning a lot. Well, CoinFlex probably chunked off all or most of their assets, and they could no longer cover the withdrawals, even though there probably were not that many withdrawals. They probably couldn't cover what little was happening. So at that point, they probably went to Roger Ver and said, hey, Remember that $47 million that you said you would send over whenever we need it? Well, uh, we kind of need it. And then Roger Ver probably said back, wait a minute, why do you need it? I thought you have uh, $90 million of collateralized assets. I thought I'm the only one who's doing this on credit. So what the hell? Something's fishy here. And then he said, hey, guys, you know what? I'm kind of nervous here. I'd like to withdraw the interest I made on my $47 million investment. And so then they said, uh, nope, you can't do that. You need to send us the $47 million that we should have had in the first place. And he's like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. Something's fishy here. You guys probably have nothing left, and now you want me to bail you out. It's not happening. This is exactly why I didn't want you holding the money. <laughs> so, so then they got in their little stalemate there, 
and they both can truthfully say that one owes the other money because Roger Ver did make a $47 million investment that he's holding and now won't give to them because he thinks they're shady and he thinks they stole the rest of the money. And at the same time, he can say that they owe him interest, which they're not paying. So they can say Roger Ver didn't pay the $47 million he agreed to pay and he, he's not paying it. And he can say that they're not giving him the interest that they agreed to pay him, which is true. Now, this is all speculation. I'm not saying that this is exactly what happened, but I think it's a pretty good guess. They've never explained why they need Ver's $47 million right now if they already have the $90 million from others. So I think there's no chance they recover from this. I can't see any path to recovery. I can't see any path to where Roger Ver gives them that money. I think Roger Ver had these $47 million tokens on credit and would have only actually given the $47 million to them to actually have in their hands if he felt that they were not acting in a shady fashion and had not stolen the other money. Like, he was not going to give that to them when they're desperate, when all the other money's gone, because he'll know he's never going to see it back. Now, you can ask, well, when would he ever give it then? If they're doing fine, why would they need his $47 million? Well, if they were expanding in some way, if they're doing other projects, there could be circumstances where he'd think everything's going fine and he can verify all the other money still exists that you could think he would give it to them if they need it for another purpose. But I can see why he wouldn't want to do it here. At the same time, I can see why they are irritated with him because it's almost like he was free-rolling them, where if the whole thing works out, then he makes all this interest, and if it doesn't work out, he just says, F you, I'm not giving it to you. So it's kind of a weird investment where he's doing it on credit, which he then revokes if he thinks they're shady. (laughs) Uh, I mean, In a way, you could say, be like me saying, hey, I'll back you in this poker tournament, but uh, put up your own money in the meantime, I'll pay you back soon. And then you lose, and you say, okay, well, can you give me back the money I paid to enter? And I go, no, I, and I think there's something wrong here. There's something shady. I think maybe you chipped them, so I'm not giving it to you. And you go, wait a minute, you, you agreed to give it to me. Oh, yeah, but I, I think you're screwing me in some way. And even if, if I'm right, if, if that person's screwing me in some way, I would be justified to do that. But then they may start to think, well, you know, maybe I was never going to pay them in the first place unless they were to win, and that I was free-rolling them all along. So... That, that's basically what they're probably thinking Roger Ver, but I think Roger Ver is probably correct in his suspicion that they're shady and stole the other money and that he does not want his money stolen. So I'm not even saying he should give the $47 million. Just the, the whole thing was weird in the first place. The whole thing was very weird. And now you see the problem. Now you see the stalemate. That's what I think has happened. And that's why I think uh, neither side is uh, really going into more detail here. Because I don't think they want to explain what happened to the other $90 million. I don't think he wants to explain, I invested, but I did it on credit and I revoked it when they really needed the money. Neither side looks good when this happens. So they're just kind of both accusing each other of owing money. And they're both actually probably correct. So that's what I think happened here. Now, where did the other $90 million go? Who knows? A lot of times with these crypto companies, what they do is then they take whatever investment is made and speculate. So it may have been something like that. It's not a coincidence that there's been a crypto crash in the uh, last few months and that a lot of cryptos have fallen big time 
and then we find that uh, CoinFlex is in trouble. So they may have taken the $90 million and been uh, too tempted to invest in other cryptos and think they're going to get really, really rich now that they have all this that they can further invest. And then all those investments go sour, and they go, oh, shit, now we have no money. <laughs> and uh, uh, Now what do we do? So then they probably went to Roger Ver and said, hey, Roger, uh, we need you $47 million. And he says, uh-uh, not giving it. You guys are thieves. F you. And now they have to pause withdrawals, and here we are. I bet it's something like that. If the story ever comes out, I bet it won't be too far from what I'm theorizing here. So, okay. That was as of early July. But what's happened since then? What's happened in like the past uh, week and a half? Well, let's focus on Doug Polk. Because Doug Polk is uh, not having a good month of July. He's uh, battling with people over this. Where at first he had various people who were criticizing him and trolling him and as he said on the video he's expected that and he knows that comes to the territory but I think when it kept happening and it wasn't stopping I think he started to realize that this isn't going to go away and that he's got to say something but the problem is then he gets himself in this endless cycle where you're just fighting 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 with people on the internet who feel they have a point against you. And then the whole thing becomes bigger than if you just kind of laid low and and, and took some licks. There's been a number of people he's been arguing with about this, and he's also made a number of statements on Twitter which are a little more combative than originally. Because uh, you heard his statement there. It wasn't combative, and uh, it was pretty well-reasoned. And I'm not saying I agreed with every little thing he said there, but... uh, he wasn't getting mad at anybody. On July 9th, he finally cracked. And when I say cracked, I mean the whole thing he was putting there of, hey, I understand it. I know why you're criticizing me. I know why you're cracking jokes at my expense. I understand it. It's okay. Uh, That's out the window. So this is what he tweeted on July 9th. And this was for some reason, in response to someone named uh, Over Under Party, who appears to be kind of uh, a nobody. This guy only has uh, four followers, but for some reason, this this was the straw that broke the camel's back, this Over Under Party guy who tweeted, you backed and promoted an obvious scam, though. That was already enough. So for some reason, that was the final straw for him. So he wrote, all right, I've had enough of this nonsense. This is on July 9th. Number one, CoinFlex is an exchange, not some obvious scam. Number two, a long list of very legitimate people have invested in this company. Number three, they are in this mess because they did not do what was advertised. And number four, I stepped down immediately when I found out. But the last one is not quite true. He didn't step down immediately. He waited about a week. But okay, we'll give him credit for stepping down. But then some people were not taking this as, as a good answer. William Lottie said... Not making allegations, but it's worth pointing out that a long list of very legitimate people invested with Madoff as well as with Theranos. All right. You know, like, that, that's a good point. It's saying like a long list of people investing who are legitimate doesn't mean that the whole thing was legitimate. It just means people were fooled. So that's, that's not bad that they did, but uh, it doesn't look, make you look bad that they did, but it doesn't make you look good that they did. Daryl Fish pointed out, dude, that account has four followers. If what you say is true, and I assume it is, there's no need to justify yourself to every Twitter troll and hater. 
which, by the way, Doug Polk never did before. Doug Polk was very good at ignoring, like, low-followed haters on Twitter, but I guess that one finally made him crack. Then this uh, gimmick account on Twitter called Karen Kessler, which is kind of a parody of Alan Kessler, says, Hey, guys, I jumped off a sinking ship. Please form an orderly line while you wait your turn to come pat me on the back. (laughs) So a number of people came at him here, and I think that just uh, made this worse. I think he was hoping that he'd get more support here. I saw that uh, more and more people were criticizing him, even though there were some people backing him. Like David Tuckman said, uh, well, he, he made another tweet also on July 9th. He said, people are coming after me like I'm the person at fault and or this says something about my character. I stand by my decisions and I've done the right thing every step of the way. The difference between this and closing your eyes and wearing a Bitcoin Latinum hat is tremendous. Oh, in case you don't know what he means there. Who wears a Bitcoin Latinum hat everywhere these days? That'd be Phil Helmuth. Phil Helmuth is still promoting Bitcoin Latinum, which has lost a lot of value this year. And he's basically saying, hey, Phil's wearing a Bitcoin Latinum hat, even with all its problems, and I bailed out as soon as I saw CoinFlex was shady. David Tuckman who sometimes listens to this show, said, people are stupid. You did nothing wrong. Carry on, my man. By the way, good to see you. I'll need to come visit your poker room. So he was supportive. He had some people who were defending him there. But then a person named Brian Lee said, I think this has more to do with how you would make this into a 10-part series if it happened to anyone else, and you would go in on them. In my opinion, your response was fine, but you were also so enthusiastic every time you mentioned them, as opposed to a quick one-time plug at the beginning. And what's interesting about that response is that it got a response then from Phil Helmuth himself, who said, So true! Uh Uh-oh. This is the beginning of a rift between Phil Helmuth and Doug Polk, which is now playing out. That was the beginning of it right there when he said, So true! Then uh, Uno Mas on Twitter said, didn't you mention that you were giving out financial advice? People didn't hear that or they ignore it, like reading terms. And then this uh, Joseph F. person said, he said that as a disclaimer, he also said people should have up to 60% of their net worth in crypto, LOL. So as you see, there's uh, mixed opinions here. Then uh, someone else pointed out, this Andrew Null said, my only issue is it took you a week to remove this from your profile, showing that he was uh, an ambassador. But I get why others are probably upset. You were their access into CoinFlex, and who else are they going to blame? You'll never make anyone happy. Then this tweet enraged some more people. Again, mixed feelings on this, but some people got angry. A short time after, he wrote, I have a team of social media people I employ, and content is my business. I spent a good amount of time researching this company and will, it puts in all caps, lose money on my deal if they don't pay out. Not going to sit on the sidelines here. I have always and will always continue to do the right thing. And then someone named Jeremy said, you're still winning overall, and everyone else that used CoinFlex is losing. That's the issue. And he said, no, I'm specifically losing money here. That's my point. Some people didn't like that. Some people thought that him pressing the I lost money here is not a good look. And I I said that earlier when he was 
doing that video that you just that's not the right way to put it because he didn't lose the same way other investors did because he got his flex for free he just lost in some small expenses but some people said that was tone well, and, deaf and he could have gained users because of the whole thing too right so that could be a wash yeah and and uh jesse martin who's been around in poker for a long time uh he said that doug was being tone deaf with that comment Doug also wrote in the series of tweets he did on July 9th, the bottom line here is that sometimes as a personality, you get put into terrible situations that are not your fault. And at at this point, all I have to say is, does anyone know somewhere I can get a guaranteed 40% APY on my money? So he's making kind of a joke at the end. But I I think this is when you you have to lay off on the jokes because there's people who lost real money here. So it's it's not a funny thing there, even if he thinks he's trying to diffuse the tension with humor a person named john park said back dude you are still responsible for promoting it you're saying you did nothing wrong is the same as bitconnect people saying they didn't know the company was a scam until it was you made the right decisions at the end but don't act like you're not 100 percent responsible for promoting it doug said back it's fundamentally different the bitconnect guys directly profited via affiliate revenue plus promoted something where the money was made by a mysterious trading bot well, okay, there's always the question when someone promotes something, how responsible they are when it turns out to be a scam. Now, for sure, if they know it's a scam or likely a scam or possibly a scam when they promote it and do so anyway, then they are responsible. And that's why I've given some people a hard time for promoting poker sites when it's very clear that it was a scam, that they're not paying anyone. And I've given a lot of criticism to those people now i believe that doug did not know there was anything wrong with coinflex and that once he was informed there's something wrong he did come out with some critical statements about them immediately then i don't know why he waited a week to leave but then he did leave and put out uh, the pretty strong condemnation of them so i will give him credit for that that he was never promoting it when he thought that something was shady at the same time he did make the decision to promote it even if he believed in it and he had to think about what if this goes bad what's going to happen but maybe he was so convinced it was okay that he didn't even consider that so that was on july 9th but it really got worse on july 11th and this was because of uh you know continued people criticizing him including nick vertucci who is one of the guys behind Hustler Casino Live. It's basically owned by uh, Nick Vertucci and Ryan Feldman. And Nick Vertucci also plays on the stream and sometimes gets criticism because he plays on his own stream and wins money basically being really nitty and tight and letting the loose, high-stakes players there shoot off to him while he barely plays any hands and just uh, sticks to premium hands. So he's received some criticism for that. Also, I guess there's some controversy about some uh, real estate operation that uh, Nick Vertucci ran or some real estate uh, seminar he ran a while ago that some people didn't like. So he has his share of critics, Nick Vertucci, but he tweeted that uh, the tweet's deleted now. So unfortunately, I can't read it directly to you, but I saw it earlier and it was a tweet basically saying that Doug always goes after people and now he knows how it feels. So Doug responded, 
Nick, for starters, you are a complete tool. You hit me up over and over again for me to give you free shit. Newsflash, I don't know you. Anyway, huge difference between the people I've gone after for unethical decisions and my situation. Not surprised you can't see the difference. So he came back pretty hard at uh, Nick Vertucci. And then he said, this is the response that all the scums say to try to put everyone on their level. So basically he's saying Nick Vertucci is scum and that now he's trying to say, hey, look, you know, you've been criticizing me and, and look at you. You're just as bad. So Doug's saying that scum like to jump on people who once criticized them so everyone can be seen as scum just like they are. So some people were putting up little popcorn gifts that they want to see these two argue with each other. So he's going back and forth with Vertucci. I don't know why Vertucci deleted that one tweet. More people were on Phil's side, or not, on Doug's side, that one. But uh, then came the Phil Helmuth thing. Remember, he went after... Phil Helmuth about the Bitcoin Latinum thing. And uh, Phil decided he's not going to take it. So Phil actually tweeted on uh, July 11th at 6.50 p.m. So we're only talking about like 11 hours ago. Phil said, you made a big mistake, Doug Polk. Then you try to compare our involvement in the project and show, throw shade at me? You are 100 times more at fault. I never told anyone to buy ever I believed in Bitcoin Latinum, but I knew it was risky. I have made zero, was paid coins only, sold zero. So they're both claiming to be in the same spot, that they uh, were paid in coins of what they were promoting and haven't sold any. Now, you, you can still sell Bitcoin Latinum. It just went way down. So Doug responded and said, I told you personally before, and I'll say it here as well. Anytime a coin pops up that uses Bitcoin or Ethereum in the name, it's a scam. The entire community knows this. There's only one Bitcoin, which is BTC. Now, that's not quite true. Like, Bitcoin Cash isn't a scam. And, yes, there are some that use Bitcoin or Ethereum in the name to try to get credibility in our scams, but that's, that's not true that all of them are. He said, also, for the record, I will lose money in the deal if the exchange goes under. The difference here is when I realize a company's doing something wrong, I have the courage to quit. That makes one of us. Ooh. So, Phil... Is, is not very happy with Doug there. And Doug's uh, shooting back, saying that I'm not wearing a CoinFlex hat anymore. And you are, Phil. Matt Mercurio, who I believe is a listener to this show, said back to Phil, serious question regarding this tweet. When you say you believed in, is that belief no longer there? Are you in a contract where you still have to wear the hat? Getting paid in coins that are now worthless would you be able to renegotiate that sponsorship? Genuinely curious. Mostly curious because it sucks to be work, working for nothing when you could replace it to a, with another sponsorship. And then someone says back, don't expect answers anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, Bitcoin Latinum has been a disaster. It's been kind of stuck around uh, $10.00. Or sorry, it's, it's down actually to $6. It's not stuck at $10. It's been continuing to fall. Last I looked, it was $10. Now it's $6. And it was in December, like at 120 something. So it's it's really falling. So he could still unload it. But it probably looked bad at this point. Probably what Phil is doing is rather than unloading it and taking a fraction of what it was worth at one point, that he's hoping it recovers. And if it doesn't, oh well. Like this way he could say, hey, I didn't take a profit here. Because Phil probably figures it's, it's a bigger hit to his reputation to take a profit at this point. 
than to uh, just go down with the ship and get zero. But he is still wearing the Bitcoin Latinum hat. But it is easier for him to continue wearing the hat because CoinFlex absolutely just isn't paying out. Bitcoin Latinum is just a coin which has uh, failed and didn't live up to its promise. So it is a bit different that uh, Bitcoin Latinum is not an exchange. So they're battling back and forth there. And they got along prior to this. So I have a feeling this is going to be the end of their decent relationship. And Phil is angry that Doug is kind of deflecting onto him. And I, I do see why Phil is frustrated because he wasn't calling out Doug here. He was kind of just doing his own thing, and Doug's going, yeah, well, at least I'm not doing what Phil's doing. And Phil's like, what? How dare you do this? How dare you do this? Why are you blaming me? This is this has nothing to do with me, what happened to CoinFlex. So I, I see on both ends why they're frustrated. Doug feels that he's getting all the hate. He's getting people bashing him and calling him a scammer and a bunch of other things, while Phil Helmuth sits there in every poker tournament wearing a Bitcoin Latinum hat when that whole thing is failing badly. Whereas Doug bailed out as soon as it was clear that CoinFlex was screwing people. So he's going, why am I the one getting the hate here? Phil's still wearing that hat. And Phil's like, okay, you can criticize Bitcoin Latinum, but why are you coming after me when you're having issues? If people are criticizing you, then answer to what they are criticizing. Don't don't bring me into this. I, I understand why they're both kind of pissed. So what a mess. What a mess. This uh, Matt Mercurio brings up a good point, though. I don't know why Phil is still wearing the hat. Maybe he's afraid if he takes it off, it's really going to crash. I think this is a lesson that you just don't become an ambassador for cryptocurrency if you have a good name that's worth something. Because so many of them go bad. Even the ones that just sound really good end up going bad. I don't think that Phil was promoting Bitcoin Latinum because he thought it was a scam. I don't think that Doug was promoting CoinFlex because he thought it was a scam. I believe both were convinced that these were solid things to be promoting and that they're going to get paid in those coin and that it's a win-win that they promote it and that people will buy into it because they're promoting it and the value will go up further and they're paid in coin and this coin will be worth a lot and they'll make a lot of money. I'm sure that's what they thought and they thought it looks like it's a pretty legitimate thing and they'll they'll do well. I bet that's what they thought. Well, we will see what happens. I'm not on the Doug hate train over this. I, I don't think he's handled this perfectly he shouldn't be responding to the trolls. He shouldn't be getting all irritated that people are criticizing him. As he said on July 1st, it comes with the territory. So, okay, stick to that. You're going to have people saying critical things about you and making allegations about you when you have the type of following you do. You have a very large following, and you accumulated that large following in part through uh, criticizing others. So, okay, you know, this is going to happen. And you've stated what you did and why you did it. And it's logical enough. And I don't believe that you meant for anyone to lose money here. And I know you believed in it and you feel like you kind of got 
tricked here by the people in CoinFlex who didn't tell you the whole truth. So, okay. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes bad decisions, bad judgment calls. It happens in everyone's life. So this is yours, Doug, and just say so and uh, move on. And understand you're going to have people trolling you and it'll die down. If you fight back against this, it's never going to end up well. I mean, you need to make your statement about what you did and what you didn't do and why you did things and why you didn't do things. I mean, but you made that statement. You, you spent 18 minutes making that statement in the video. So I think that should be it. So I'm not really blaming Doug here for any of this. These things just happen in crypto. It is a good question why Phil's not taking off the Bitcoin Latinum head. I do want to know that. I think Doug should have just jumped ship immediately. I don't think that's a huge part of it, but I think if the second that they were preventing withdrawals, once that happened, he should have said, I'm resigning as ambassador immediately, and I will reconsider being ambassador again if they get out of this. But this should ne- he said this should never happen with an exchange, and he's right. So he should just say, this should never happen with an exchange. I don't like it. They didn't even inform me it was going to happen as ambassador. It pisses me off. So I can't endorse them right now. And uh, I will reconsider this if they quickly get out of the situation. And then when they don't, then he officially resigns permanently. That, that really should have been what he did rather than, hey, I'll, I'll give them a chance to make things right in the next week and then I'll bail out. But that, that was kind of a, a minor mistake, in my opinion. At least he left. All right, I want to give you an update on Shelby Wells. And this will probably be old by the time you listen to this in the archives, but here's what we have at the moment here. First of all, she's very happy that people are uh, supporting her. She said, the support I've gotten from random people in real life who couldn't care less about poker or random strangers who had no idea who I am is seriously something else. It's amazing. It's made me very happy. If I haven't liked or replied to your message, no, I appreciate it so much. And apparently she finished the day still in the event, but short stacked. She has 1.9 million, which is short at this point. She's unlikely to be the last woman standing. Believe it or not, uh, there's a woman in second place at the moment named Ethysmia uh, Litsu. E-F-T-H-Y-M-Y-M-I-A-L-I-T-S-O-U. I mean, if a woman wins this, this Ethysmia, I can't pronounce her name, but if she wins this, that'll be big for women wanting to get into poker. I'll say that. I don't know who that is, but it's good to see that a woman second in chips. And Shelby said, also, Stephen said some of my table mates rail were talking shit about my poker today. Like, I'm not a pro. I'm just a girl playing poker. Can you chill, please? I think Stephen is her boyfriend or something. She's mentioned Stephen on her Twitter before. She's saying not that the table mates were talking shit, but that uh, some people who are on the rail, maybe she has her boyfriend on the rail there and he's hearing people talk shit about her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever. She's she's not a pro. She got a seat here and managed to get very deep. So, yeah, you can't worry about what people on the rail are saying. They're not even playing. <laughs> They're watching others play. There's always people on the rail talking shit. Oh, you know, you're not good. Oh, if I were only if I were there, I'd play so much better. Yeah, okay, well, then go there and play and do this and get this deep. Prove it. Don't just 
talk about what you would do if you were in that position. Go, go actually beat these tournaments, go beat high stakes, even beat medium or low stakes, then you can talk shit. So there's two women left in the main at this point, Shelby and this woman, Ethemia, who I can't uh, pronounce her name. Ethemia has like uh, 11.6 million. Shelby has 1.9. See if we can get uh, Shelby on the show after uh, this ends for her, whenever that is. Okay, so uh, moving on. Lane Flack has been inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame less than a year after he passed away. I have to think that much like uh, Devilfish, he got inducted because he died. I have a feeling he would not have been the one picked if he was still alive. He got kind of like a sympathy vote for having passed away and being well-liked by those voting for him. I have to say that I hate the whole way they vote. I've explained before how this can be manipulated. It doesn't really mean much when someone gets elected to the Poker Hall of Fame other than the current Hall of Famers who are voting have decided they like you this year. And the the people who are in that voting block can get together and make sure you make it in there. And they can manipulate the voting in the way I described before to where a, a small number of people can get someone in that they prefer. There's only... 32 people voting because the only people who are given a vote are those who are existing members and still alive. So there's only 32 of the 60 members of the Hall of Fame who are still living. The finalists were Matt Savage, tournament director, Isai Scheinberg, PokerStars founder, uh, Norman Chad and Lon McCarran, who were together. It was either they both get it or both don't. Josh Arie, Bertrand Gorspelier, a.k.a. Alki, Mike Matisau, Kathy Liebert, Mike Mizraki, and Brian Rast. And they elected Lane Flack. Uh, David Devil, Devilfish Elliott, as I explained before, was elected five years ago after he died. The WSOP did not release the voting tallies And as I said, this can really be manipulated because of their giving one through ten points for each person. So all you have to do is give ten points to the one person you want and zero to everybody else. And you pretty much uh, cancel out a lot of the other votes. If you can get a a few of your friends to do it, you pretty much guarantee they get in. Now, he did have six WSOP bracelets from 1999 to 08. And he did have uh, $5 million in caches, even during a time when that meant a lot more, before a lot of these high rollers were going. Lane Flack's longtime friend, uh, Tex Barch, said he was an amazing friend, more like a brother. Through good, bad, and all his mischief, Lane had your back. Lane was close to my children. He would come and spend weeks at our house, always entertaining them, taking them places, making sure it was about them. When my daughter died this past January, one thing that brought comfort to me was to know that Lane would be there to greet her and they could laugh together in eternity. Now, Flack had a lot of problems. He, he had a lot of uh, drinking issues and uh, drug issues. 
and he did pass away of a uh, drug overdose. So his death was uh, unfortunately his own fault. A lot of people liked him. Some people didn't. Some people thought he was shady. He was definitely a, a talented poker player, and he won six bracelets. So he, he definitely had uh, success at the table, though some of those bracelets were won during a point when it was easier to win because the fields were much smaller. And as far as the voting goes, Matt Savage, who, by the way, shouldn't be even competing with these others because he was a non-player. They really need separate categories for players and non-players. But uh, Matt Savage was named a finalist more than any other person in the history of the Hall of Fame and still hasn't been elected. And the uh, elections of uh, 2019 and 20, he was second place when they released the voting totals. Then they would not release the voting totals in 2021 for some reason when Elia Lezra was elected. And keep in mind, Elia Lezra was in fifth place in 2020, and suddenly was the one elected in 2021. Many were suspicious of this, especially when they wouldn't release the voting tallies, and it is believed that uh, voting block there got Lesra in because they liked him. And now they just don't release the voting totals anymore. So the whole thing's very shady. They just need to stop this. They need to clamp down on the Hall of Famers. I mean, this is owned by the World Series, so... They could do it. They just don't want to piss off the Hall of Famers. But they could just say, look, we just need a fair voting process. We're, we're going to take it over. We don't like the way this is. We're going to take over the voting process. We're going to manage it. And it's going to be fair. And you each submit you know, maybe two names, and that's it. And no weighting these things one to ten, none of that crap. And then it's going to be a lot harder to rig it with 32 people voting. So it's not a terrible induction. I've seen much worse. At least Flack had six bracelets and had $5 million in caches, most of which before all those high rollers showed up. So, okay. like He's not, he's not a horrible Hall of Famer. I have to think that this was probably, a, again, a voting block thing and probably to honor him after death. So it's not so much a criticism of Flack. It's more of a criticism of the process. I do not like the voting process at all. Okay, so now time to play another video for you. Mickey Moz is back in the news. We had him on this show, I think, in December. And I, I had questions for him. This is the guy who's claiming he's beating the casinos for millions and just always winning, and they're banning him because he's winning so much. And I was doubting that, and I had him on here, and I had questions for him. I was very respectful. I didn't make any allegations against him. I just asked him questions and let him answer in his own words. At some point, he got rude with me, but I let him be rude. I didn't, I didn't argue back with him. I just followed up with questions. And at the end, he promised that we could meet up, and he would show me his win-loss statements at casinos of my choice. And, of course, that didn't happen. I didn't think it was going to happen. But, yeah, it didn't happen. Anyway, even though Spencer Cornelia, who has a channel that calls out fraudsters, mostly in the sports betting world, but even in, in other places as well, uh, he has a popular channel of 465,000 subscribers. And I, I've talked to Spencer a little bit, and he's, he's a nice guy from what I've seen. Uh, people thought he was too soft on Mickey, 
and at first he apologized to people for being too soft on Mickey, but then it seems like he and Mickey uh, have some kind of relationship again. I don't mean a romantic relationship, but you know, some kind of relationship where they're still on good terms. This video was released called I Staked Mickey at the World Series of Poker, the 16-minute video by Spencer with Mickey. So I'm going to play this, and I will comment on it. What's up, everyone? I'm proud to present my new McLaren. This thing is a beauty and a beast. I've been- now, this is uh, Spencer in a garage showing a McLaren in a little bit here. He's pretending it's his McLaren, and then we're going to find out it's not his McLaren. Crushing it on YouTube. Thanks to all of you, and I'm so excited. Oh, what are you doing in my house? Hey, do, do you know them? Do you know these guys? Bro, get out of my house. Hey, we're shooting a YouTube video. How many times I got to tell we're you, bro? We're shooting a YouTube video. So that was a little bit that he's in Mickey's house pretending it's his car and Mickey throws him out. And Mickey walks out with his hot girl who's like in a sports bra. So obviously this is even just to show off, hey, look look at the girl Mickey's hanging out with here. <laughs> so then it says, WSOP staking Mickey. What's up, everyone? I'm Spencer. I'm Mickey. We got a little cash in hand because this is the World Series of Poker. We're going to go play some cards. I'm going to stake Mickey in this video. It's going to be a blast. Hope we win. Hope we cash out big. We're looking for a million dollars or better. In the now, they're going to be entering the mini main event. When I say they are, I mean it's going to be Spencer's money, which is only a thousand dollars, and it's going to be Mickey playing in the mini main, which is like a a faster moving main event with a, with the same structure, but just like a lot faster. And why Mickey, who's this super high-stakes gambler, would need Spencer to stake him $1,000, I don't know. Obviously, it's a gimmick for the channel. But let's let this play out. The poker world staking is very common. An investor will stake or invest in a player during their tournaments by covering a percentage of the buy-in. We have the one and only Mickey here. Let's do some gambling. You ready? Yeah, man. I love to gamble. So we're going to play at the World Series of Poker. I say we because I want to stake you. Um, but I'm familiar in poker world that this is like common to stake. But for those who don't know about poker, what does staking mean? In poker specific, staking is one of the most common forms of transactions outside of like buying in and cashing out. Now there's like websites, large websites that are dedicated to very large uh, player databases where any poker player can go on, register themselves, and it allows the free public, whether they know them, don't know them, are familiar, not familiar, whatever, and these websites give ratings, you know, overall caches, things like this. So you can gauge, uh, you know, what you feel is like the strengths of particular players. And then you can stake any amounts you want, and that player then goes and uses them in tournaments or sometimes cash games. It's generally based around tournaments, but it can be used for anything. So when Okay, I've heard enough. Let's jump to the actual event. I decided to stake Mickey 100% for event number 66 called Mini Main Event. $1,000 buy-in, no limit hold'em, three-day event. I would receive 25% of the payout. This is last year's winner. Look at that smile on his face. I can't tell if he's more excited to win $432,000 or finally accomplishing something other than being labeled as Kevin Love's Greek brother. There were going to be a lot of players in this event, so I immediately began thinking of ways to gain an advantage, but apparently bringing in strippers, fireworks, and a group of Russians dressed as gangsters for distraction purposes isn't allowed or something. I told them I was a D-list influencer and that we should be playing for free in exchange for a shout out, but they drove a tough bargain and we slipped them the thousand dollars cash. So what's the strategy day one? All right, so luckily we're not gonna post this till afterwards, but I'm gonna play as tight as possible. I literally don't care about winning today. The only 
goal I have is not losing. If we make it till tomorrow, my guess is halfway through tomorrow on this three-day tournament, that's when we're gonna hit the bubble, the money bubble. So we're gonna just, we're, we're just gonna focus on not losing today. We just need to survive till tomorrow, even if we come in at a short stack. What? That, if, if that's really the goal, you should enter as late as possible. If, like, if you don't want to build a stack and you just want to get in the tournament as long as you can without busting and then try to just run it up when it gets to the later stages, then you should enter at the very last minute and just do the absolute minimum to slip into a cache and then uh, start trying to get it in and, and run up chips. So it doesn't make any sense to enter right when the event starts and do this, but... You know, it's Mickey we're talking about, so let's just go on. It doesn't matter. Once we make it till tomorrow, then I play super aggro, meaning super aggressively, and that's when we try to rapidly build up our stack. As soon as we hit the money bubble, that's it. We'll figure it out from there. While Mickey was formulating... Uh, there's another problem here. If you've got a short stack, you can't just play, quote, super aggro. People are going to call you. They're going to call you real light, and uh, you're going to bust. That's, that's another issue. You can play super aggro if you've got a lot of chips and put people to tough decisions. That's another big issue with just sitting there with a short stack trying to survive. Playing his strategy at playing poker, I was formulating a plan to pair a queen with a king, but was disappointed to only find fours and jacks walking through the casino. I mean, seriously, poker players, you guys are amazing at statistics and odds with money on the line, but you haven't figured out the odds for getting laid when you're in a room with 4,923 guys and two girls is awful. So he's making a joke about poker being almost all dudes, but all right. I walked Mickey to his table like the obvious newbie I was while the other guys in the room were texting their wives. Hey honey, I'll be home a little late from work today. Don't worry about the missing thousand bucks in my wallet and the aroma of perfume emanating from my shoulders. As the tournament started, I walked through the grand room soliciting people to buy my fake guru sports betting course so I could guarantee a return on my staking investment. No one bit for some reason. The tournament is super dope as a spectator. The last time I got to watch this many men stare into each other's eyes hoping the other guy would bust was during a Republican senator circle jerk. Mickey was unfortunately on his own as my attempt to break into the media room in order to see his opponent's hands didn't work out. The movie 21 made winning look so much easier. Since none of my strategies to give him an unfair plus EV worked, I decided to head home for a few hours. Mickey was playing well though. All right, so we're on our second break of the day. That means we're two-thirds of the way through day one. Uh, I think I'm being labeled as the sharpest unlucky player in the World Series. What? Okay, a few problems here. First of all, second break of the day occurs four hours in. So that is 40% through day one, not two-thirds. But okay. Also, who labeled him the sharpest unlucky player? Like who? Maybe someone as a joke. Maybe someone just trying to make him feel good. <laughs> the sharpest unlucky player. All righty. Uh, you know, I told you a story. I, in the last hand before the break, I had to fold my set. You know, I folded correctly to, the, to a, a river nut flush. Um, so in the, for between hours one and three, I, I believe pretty confidently that I was the tournament chip leader. And then uh, there was an older woman who was playing at my table, and she misclicked. I raised from the button uh, pre-flop. She meant to call me. She put the wrong chip, so she made a massive re-raise. Uh, seat number four re-raised over her really heavy. I thought that he either he had the nuts, like basically pre-flop, or that he was just trying to steal the blinds because of the misclick. So I flat it. The flop comes. The flop theoretically is in my favor. It's like a nine high flop and I have pocket tens. 
she she folded his re-raise. He jams. I'm sitting and I'm taking. Either I got the nuts or I'm dusted. I had no choice. I there was there was uh it was like nine nine deuce with two clubs flop. I figure honestly he had like ace queen clubs. I end up making the call. This is while I was tournament chip leader. He had a pocket queens to my pocket tens. I didn't get there. What? I mean, at least he's telling a losing story. I thought this was going to be something where, yeah, I thought he had ace queen of clubs, and that's what he had. He had ace queen of clubs, and I won. Or, oh, he had ace queen of clubs, but then uh, he spiked the queen on the river after I made the right call. But you know, here he was behind the whole way. <laughs> so, what the hell? So, how is he so sure that the old lady quote misclicked and accidentally re-raised him? So, according to his story, he raised a old lady accidentally mis- re-raised him. I don't see how that happens. And then some other guy who somehow knows the old lady accidentally re-raised him, then raises again, and then Mickey calls, and the flop comes nine nine four, and Mickey goes all in with him. And what do you know? The guy has queens, and Mickey has tens, and Mickey loses. Well, I would think it's pretty obvious from this guy's four bet especially over an old lady, that he's got something very strong and the tens are dead unless they flop a ten. That that is a total amateurish mistake to overplay the pocket tens overpair. That's what I see fish doing at the table, is not letting go of overpairs when it's pretty likely that an overpair is ahead of them that's even better. I mean, look at the guy who busted to me in the main event, who was a good player. He had kings and he still didn't snap call my check raise all in when I had aces and he thought I probably had aces but he felt he was pot committed and couldn't let it go but even that guy had to think for a while to call with kings here we have Mickey putting it in with tens <laughs> and he was the event ship leader before this yeah I doubt that so he had a really deep stack too he took me down pretty heavy and then I played another hand against one of wait the- hold on. that's another problem if this guy if you really were like near the chip leader and then someone else had a lot of chips the last thing you want to do is battle it out with them when you've got the tens over pair and nothing else the what you want to do is avoid that person and only get it in with them when you've got a shitload of chips the other deep stacks by now i'm like not like an overly large stack but i'm definitely maybe like top three at the table uh and i think it was like maybe the one stack below me i flopped the nuts i have um Queen, 10 of diamonds, and the flop comes 8, 9, jack with 2 diamonds. Um, I bet he calls the turn is a blank. It's a 3 of spade. I bet he shoves. I still have the nuts. I snap call with the nuts. He had top set, a set of jacks. The river, another 3. So he fills up on the river. It was like this really, really disgusting spot I was in. Left me with like 15K behind. And from 15K in this last hour... I played super aggressive, super sharp, made some really sharp folds, and I am back to my starting stack at 60,000, so we're still in this thing, and we really have a solid chance, and so far we came from dust, 15K, that's only, you know, 15 big lines, and now we're back at starting stack. During the hour-long break, while the casino pumps the poker room full of oxygen and pheromones in hopes of stirring up action, all of the players rush to the restaurants. If you visit from California and miss paying $120 for a meal, there's plenty of restaurants to satisfy your needs. Mickey got fueled up by eating some pizza and taking pictures with fans. He then headed back to the tables to knock out the people separating us from a big payday while I met up with another friend playing in the tournament. Let's jump to Mickey at the 12.28 mark. Unfortunately. So we ended up busting, but we were right there. We played for 11 hours. We were just shy of the money. 
can't win them all, but I will say it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. I, I love that I was able to do this with Spencer. And, of course, we'll be back next year. We're also going to play more and finish out this year's series. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking to cash for sure. I was told that reaching a cash out position is pretty rare and good players will only make money maybe 10% to 20% of the time they enter a tournament. As I'm filming this, the main event is being played and some of the biggest stars have already busted out before the money. Foxen, Negranu, Ivy, Helmuth, Adelstein, Mike McDermott, and Teddy KGB. On the first page of chapter 53 in Dan Bilzerian's book titled The Setup, he talks about staking Jay Farber in the 2013 WSOP main event that netted Dan over a million dollars on a $2,000 investment. I was hoping to get rich quick with this investment, but it looks like I'll need to wait until next year. I'll finish this video off with some extras hanging with Mickey. Thanks for watching. In our uh, last video that got a lot of views, <laughs> a lot of people were looking at the video and going, oh man, it looks like a screenshot for the app that you showed me without realizing that we were sitting there chatting for like two minutes, just looking through your app as you were going through the, uh, the app to show me your wins. And uh, unfortunately with the editing, it makes it look like it was like instant, you just showed me a screenshot. But you were, for the people watching, he was actually going through the app showing me his tax statements. And so we met up recently and he actually showed me a few other tax statements because obviously one of the big criticisms from the first one is like, oh, he could easily show you one app that uh, he could win at and then there's 10 other casinos that he loses at. Well, yeah, that, that was my criticism, yes. In order to really judge if somebody is a winning player, you need to be the one choosing which statements they show you. You don't let them show you what they want you to see. You say, I want to see this, and they have to agree beforehand that they will show you. Otherwise, if you just let them choose, then if they played at 15 casinos and won at 4 and lost at 11, they can show you the 4 they won, and you'll think they're 4-0, and oh, and you don't get to the, the 11 they lost. So you need to pick them, and there's only so many casinos in Vegas, so you can just start choosing. And you can go with them, and they can walk with you into the business office where... That person can request a statement and they'll either hear, hey, we don't have a statement for you or, oh, here it is. I had someone reach out that showed that he was a loser at one casino and we addressed that. He admitted he is a loser at one casino. However, he showed me many other casinos where he was up. And so I'll give you a chance to address that. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people said in that video, uh, you know, that, that you were like... Um wowed and nice guy and a girl opened the door which you know was completely like authentic yeah. you know it just happened you knocked we were in the other room and she opened the door but something that people didn't realize that you said was that you and i spent at least eight hours together that day yeah. you know dissecting each other's lives and, and and persons and things like this and we had to condense it into a 20 minute video um so yeah so i'm gonna go through i'm gonna show all my casino apps i'm gonna show everything um and for the record the the casino that you showed a loss at was a small loss. It was 70000 I think it was mostly sports betting, and I played like one time there, and they just told me don't play. So for a $70,000 loss versus the tens of millions that I've won in other casinos, to be honest, it's really not even relevant on my radar. But, you know, I am a net profit Baccarat player, you know, long-term life. Yeah. So we can, we can go through and look at all the apps. Which, by the way, to those watching, I still don't recommend Baccarat. I think Mickey approves as well. I have been told by many poker players that you can't win long-term at Baccarat until until the strategy is released. So I would not recommend playing poker. I don't uh, recommend gambling in any way, personally, unless you have an edge, unless you can win. I would I agree, and I'm super heavy in my comments because uh, a lot of people like come to me like, oh, you inspired me, you encouraged me to play, or this, or you know, watching your winnings, I wanted to play and have this um, magical come up. And I'm really heavy in all my comments on every social media. Gambling is a terrible idea. 
nearly every single gambler's a loser, which is why the casinos are so nice. And I mean that respectfully. I just don't want, I'm not incentivized for people to go into a casino and lose money. I'm not sponsored. It doesn't help me. All it does is hurt people. I'm really not in the business of hurting people. It does nothing for me. So I'm, I'm a huge discourager of gambling all around. I think it's an evil, sinful, manipulative, dishonest industry. And they're only out to see you with less money so they can have more. And nearly every time, that's the outcome. We're going to be having a little fun with the poker world because it is the World Series of Poker. I don't really know where I'm going. <laughs> we really didn't learn anything more about his win-loss statements. I understand that Spencer is an entertainer and that his channel is a real venture of his to be profitable and to support him. And apparently it is, and that's good for him. So he's not necessarily doing like hard investigative journalism. And I know he gets views for putting Mickey on, so he probably likes having Mickey on there. And if he's combative with Mickey, then Mickey's not want to come back. In fact, even I wasn't combative with Mickey, and he's, he still hasn't come back because he saw I wasn't buying what he was selling, and he knew he wasn't getting anywhere with me. So until people can choose which casinos Mickey shows them the results from, any results he shows are meaningless. And I'm still not seeing that claimed, that Spencer's allowed to pick which casinos he wants to see. And it has to be more than like one or two, because otherwise you could pick one and that would happen to be where Mickey was winning. You, you should be able to pick a lot of them and then add them all together and say, okay, well, it showed he was a winner, it showed he was a loser, whatever. But Mickey's never going to allow that because I, I think that if that is done, you're going to see that it isn't what he was claiming. I just don't see how he could have any strategy like this that's working and that he would co go advertise this on social media if he really has found something that nobody else has found in all these decades that he's killing the casinos. It just wouldn't make any sense. But we've gone over all that before. Anyway, I don't think that the video was really aimed at anything I said specifically. I think there's a lot of people who said the same thing as me or similar things to me about doubting, doubting him. And in fact, I didn't think it was a screenshot that Spencer saw. I thought Spencer saw a real win-loss report from a casino that Mickey showed him. It was just one that Mickey chose. But I'm sure Mickey was thinking of me, among others, that had the same criticism. Okay, so moving on here, we have uh, our last topic is about Lake Mead. Lake Mead is going down, down, down. And as predicted, we're seeing more and more things appearing that were below the surface for a long time. Most recently, a World War II landing craft can be seen sticking out of the water. And that was once 185 feet below the surface. And, of course, uh, there were the bodies that were found. And other boats have been found sticking out. The lake is now at a record low level. And there are seven states, as we've mentioned before, 
that are getting water from the Colorado River, which feeds Lake Mead. So, so far, they've only found two bodies in Lake Mead. We've talked about them before. They still have not uh, identified who those people are, to my knowledge. There's also a problem of uh, houseboats, sailboats, and motorboats that are beached, ones that were once uh, sitting in the water that now are no longer in the water, that uh, they're actually sitting on sand now. And there's other problems in Lake Mead where places that used to be boat launches are no longer boat launches. Because uh, I'm not sure how much all of you know about boating, but when it comes to lakes, uh, these boat launches are where you can back a vehicle where the boat is attached to the vehicle onto kind of like a ramp, which then goes into the water. So at one point, what you can do is you can back your vehicle to where the boat is sitting in the water and your vehicle is outside the water on the ramp. Then you disconnect the two and the boat's in the water and then you park your vehicle and you get in the boat. That's known as a boat launch. So if the level of the lake changes, then the boat launch is no longer useful because it's going to just point into dirt. (laughs) There's no way to then drive to where the water is. So some of these boat launch areas are now useless. As I said, there are uh, boats that are now just beached and stuck sitting on land. The lake is now below 30% of capacity, and it is 170 feet lower than its highest point that was reached in 1983. And this has been a long time coming. I mean, I've, I've seen it dropping over a period of time. It's not just because of the recent drought. And what you can see is a white line on the surrounding rocks that show where the water once was. And the white line is getting higher and higher over the surface. The reason the high water mark was 1983 was because of the 1982-83 winter. And that's why you should beware when you see these pictures comparing 83 to 2022. While it is a dramatic difference, there is a reason why they're choosing 1983. Because why would they choose 39 years ago? Why wouldn't it be 40 or 30 or 35? Why why is it 39? Well, because the 82-83 winter and spring was historically rainy and snowy all around the West. And I remember it. I was a kid, but I remember it. It was seemingly raining every day in Los Angeles in the 82-83 season. In fact, what was interesting about the 82-83 rain season was that they weren't even predicting the rain a lot of the time. They would say 10% chance of rain today, and it just always came through. Every time they'd claim a small percent chance of rain, it would rain. Now, they weren't as good at predicting the weather then as they are now. They have better technology now to do that. But they were especially wrong during that winter. Just it, it seemed whenever there was a chance of rain, it was happening. So this was all throughout California, all throughout southern Nevada, and it was both rain and snow. And then the snow would melt, and 
it would cause lakes and reservoirs to fill, fill up. So the reason that it hit the high water mark in 83 was because they got so much rain in the area in the 82-83 rain season. So you can't really compare that. You're, you're looking at a, an unusual rain season that filled up the reservoir, that filled it up way higher than it usually would be. And now you're looking at a lot of years of drought combined and also a lot of usage of the water by the surrounding states. But still, it is the lowest it's ever been, and that's a concern. Boating around the lake is no longer easy. There are islands and sandbars that are actually uh, now getting close to the surface that boaters didn't have to worry about before, and now they do. A boater named uh, Craig Miller said to Yahoo News that he was uh, on his houseboat when all of a sudden the engine died and uh, he floated to the shore. And then within days, his boat was beached. He couldn't move his houseboat anymore because where he went to shore to park his boat because the engine died. Now, the engine dying was unrelated to the low water level, but the engine died. He floated it over to shore, and then uh, within a few days, it went from knee-deep water where he parked the boat to no water. He said, it's amazing how fast the water went down. I was landlocked. And then he was trying to get pumps to dredge the sand around the boat to get him to the water, but he just he couldn't do it. And he had to get a tow uh, for $20,000 over to where the water was because of the houseboat being so large and so stuck. And others have reported that they've damaged their boats hitting these uh, sandbars and islands that were under the surface that didn't used to be there because they were way below. Apparently, there's a number of uh, fish dying in the lake, which is now not as uh, deep as it used to be. A lot of different things that are happening over there that weren't happening before. And there's a concern of what happens if the lake gets so low that it either uh, can no longer generate electricity through Hoover Dam or that the water cannot be used for southern Nevada and the surrounding states. Now, we're still not quite there. And this is not a surprise that the waters are receding like they are. And I said this months ago, because what happens to a receding lake when you are going through a typical dry season, which the summer is? There is very little rain in the summer in California and Nevada, especially the southern parts. So I knew they're not going to get a higher level at the lake when there's no rain coming down in any year. This is the dry season. So it's probably going to get to its lowest point around October, maybe November. And then when the rain starts again in the late fall, then we will see if we have a normal rain season, if it starts to return it to better levels. Last year, it looked like that we might have some help from Mother Nature. December was a wet month in the West. In fact, in some parts of California, they had record precipitation in December. So why is the drought not over? Well, it completely reversed. Once January came, there was less rain in January than any year on record in most areas of the West. 
So it went from the wettest December to the driest January, and then February followed to be not quite as bad as January, but still unusually dry. And same with the rest of the month. So overall, it ended up being a dry rain season, even with a very fast start. There are some who believe that climate change is responsible for the change in precipitation patterns in the West, and that might be true, though there have been extended periods in the past where there has been drought that was not a result of any kind of uh, man-made climate change, but just uh, weather patterns where there just hadn't been rain for a while. But I will say that we've had a lot of dry rain years in the West in the last uh, 20 years or so. And it's starting to look like it's not just random that we're just getting drier years than expected because of bad luck. So if I had to guess, I would say that climate change probably is playing a part in this drought we're having in the West, and it may continue. And in some parts of the country, they can build desalination plants. But obviously in Nevada, which is not on the shore, they cannot do that. They can also eventually build pipelines from places that get a lot more water, a lot more precipitation. That can also solve the problem, but that's easier said than done. Yeah, it's a lot of work to do, very expensive to do, but that could be a solution. But they will have to come up with something probably eventually. Uh, Later in the year, when it's not so hot, I might go down there to Lake Mead and just take a look, maybe take some pictures, and uh, I'll tell you guys what I personally see there. Because I, I am interested in seeing all of this. I think it would be interesting. But it's just so hot down there right now. Right now, it's not very appealing to go to Lake Mead and roast down there. Lake Mead is not entirely in Nevada. It's actually partially in Arizona and partially in Nevada. It's right on the border. You actually cross the border as you go around the lake. So I'll give you an update on this uh, if things further change or if interesting things expose as the lake continues to dry up. They actually have signs in the roads coming towards uh, Lake Mead, which will show the water level in a certain year. So there's like a sign that says water level 2002. And that's actually on an existing road at the moment. So as I said, this has been a long decline of Lake Mead's level. Let's take a call from someone who I know is interested in this topic. It's a desert runner. Is that you? Yes, it is. It's a desert runner. What, what do you want to say about Lake Mead? One of the factors I want to say is um, I've always been amazed when I go to Las Vegas. It's the city of L.A. Uh, trucks, Department of Water and Power. A lot of people don't know that the uh, city of L.A. gets, what, 20 or 5 to 20% of the water from Lake Mead. And I'm, like, wondering what L.A. City, what their plan is. And I don't know if they're going to look at desalinization. And I wonder if, if L.A. City could start the desalt the water and reverse the pipeline, send water back to Lake Mead or Las Vegas to start buying water from L.A. City. But the L.A. City is a whole other factor with Lake Mead. It always blew me away to see those workers. Can you imagine being a city of L.A. worker in an L.A. City truck? And you're in Las Vegas working. Yeah, that, 
Yeah, that that is strange, and uh, they also get a lot of water from uh, Central California, such as like Mammoth, where they uh, yeah. and they from the Mammoth area, from the Mono Lake area, which is controversial because it's uh, there. There's some ecological stuff that they want to preserve in uh, Mono Lake, which is a, a unique area. If you've never been there before, people listening, it's an interesting thing to visit if you ever go to Mammoth. And uh, there is some controversy that's been going on for decades about that, about L.A. taking water from that area. The thing is, L.A. just doesn't get the water it needs from its own precipitation. There just isn't that much precipitation in L.A., and there's a lot of people in not just L.A., but the entire Southern California area. So, yeah, I, if they ever do build these desalination plants, it is possible they could send some of the water back in another direction. I, I don't see them yeah. doing it, though. I think they probably would just do it to stop having to take the water from the areas where they're taking it presently. And we may be getting close to I the agree. point where that where they actually do go forward with these plants, which was last discussed about 30 years ago. And then uh, it turned out not to be necessary, so they put that on hold. It's very expensive to build and operate these things, but it's probably less expensive than it was 30 years ago when it was first considered. And they, they may just have to at some point. And yeah, yeah. that may just be what happens. Speaking of, uh, speaking of, you mentioned model Lake. if you, the history, if you remember, you probably saw in cars, there's always a, the bumper sticker saved model Lake. Yeah. Was, I, I don't know, you know where the status of model Lake is now, but it was always the, the stickers were all over the place. You probably remember yeah, that's that's been a controversy for decades now, and it is related to L.A. taking water from Mono Lake. And L.A., in fact, has been very interested in the Sierra Nevada snowpack for a long time. And Mammoth Mountain only exists, you know, the ski resort there and the whole town, basically. It, it all exists because of an L.A. surveyor who was assigned to that area to look at the snowpack every winter so L.A. would know what to expect as far as uh, what's going to melt and what they would get water-wise. And a, the surveyor named Dave McCoy, who was looking at the snowpack in the area, noticed that one area of the Sierra Nevada got more snow than anything else every year, and that is what is now Mammoth Lakes and Mammoth Mountain. So... He said, hey, why don't I start a ski resort here? Because they get more snow here than anywhere else in uh, California. And that's why Mammoth started where it did. And he started by getting a, lo a loan to start with like a rope tow. And it was a very small operation. And then it was successful and it grew. And that is that led to what Mammoth Mountain and the town surrounding it are today. So if it were not for L.A. surveying the snowpack... There would be no mammoth. Yeah, and drop on to ask you, Woody. I mean, I think it's going to be an emergency situation here soon. What do you think? I mean, Clark County, the federal government, there's going to, have to be an emergency. I mean, within months, some like, some ruling or some some conditions are going to have to come down. What do you What do you think is going to happen? Like immediately. Well, what's weird about this is that they can probably project where it's going to go because they know there's going to be no rain for a few more months now. We're only in mid-July, 
and they know until at least mid-October yeah. there's not going to be any considerable rain, maybe longer than that. So I I would think any emergency is probably already being planned, or maybe they think that won't be necessary unless there's another dry winter. And as I said this months ago, that it's just going to keep getting lower and lower during the summer, and indeed it has. I, I can't imagine they'd be that stupid to think, that, oh, maybe the lake will be okay over the summer. Like it's, They should be able to project this at least somewhat. Yeah, I was I was in Vegas in May. Like, you know, I almost moved to Vegas. I might be going back again. I mean, across, I was on Tropicana. They're building new houses, tracks right across the way. I'm like, how, where's the water to come from for these, all these new residents? Yeah, there and is. I just, I don't know. There's, and there's been concern about this for a long time, long before the drought of uh, should Vegas expand very much because can it be supported by the water? that's in the area and then uh, I, I remember hearing about this 30 years ago and then it just kept expanding anyway <laughs> so i i never looked into yeah. what allowed that but i remember that concern and then they kept expanding like vegas has a much higher population in the metro area than it did in 1992 yeah i i can imagine say if i had to move back to vegas i'm going to have to brush my teeth real fast and take real fast showers and then just just to do my part, you know, I mean, I hope everyone is, I just, I just can't see the hotels to see, they're not, their consumption can't change. I yeah, mean, it can't change. That's the problem. I'm, I'm work. Yeah. Well, that's all. Thanks for taking my call and thanks for covering the topic. I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll probably cover it again in a few months uh, where it stands. Probably like in mid-October when it'll be at its worst point. We'll talk about that then and where it stands. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Uh, well, that's all I got. That's it. We're done. It's a pretty long show, though. I had a lot to say here. So we're going to end with something a little bit different. Yes, we're going to end with the Jeffersons instead of uh, All in the Family. Same era. Yes, we're on this was the closing song which was abbreviated this is a minute 20 version of it but I think they cut it down to like 30 seconds the Jeffersons was a spin-off of All in the Family of course anyway we'll do the show again in about a week maybe not exactly a week but uh, we'll have a show next week it's not going to be two weeks again we'll know by then who won the main event Maybe we'll get on the guy that played with me at the Mixed Omaha. Maybe we'll get uh, Shelby Wells on here. And we'll see what else is going on here. I have to imagine the drama is going to die down at the World Series because there's not that much left of it. But that is all for this week. Thank you for listening. Shalom.